The Elder Eronimos of Egina by Peter Botsis, with Memoirs of the Elder Eronimos, translated from the Greek by Holy Transfiguration Monastery, Boston, Massachusetts, 2007. Dismissal Hymn Reaching forth with thy whole soul unto the Lord thy God, thou didst attain to the stature of the great fathers of old, striving after their humility and love for God, and as a sharer in their grace thou dost cover with thy prayers the faithful that seek thy succour. Hence ever pray to the Saviour, O blessed Eronimos, that we may be saved. Cantokian Fourth tone be quick to anticipate. Like Moses thou spakest face to face with God as a friend, and thou wast thyself a fiery pillar of ceaseless prayer, O Father Eronimos. Wherefore do thou lead us from the Egypt of passions, out of thickest darkness to the light of salvation. For thou possessest boldness with Christ, who was well pleased in thee. Meglanarion, unto thee, O Father, the hearts of men, like a book lay open, where thou readest their secret thoughts. Wherefore we acclaim thee, Eronimus our Father, who was like a great prophet, guiding new Israel. Chapter 1 Testimony of Sanctity a conversation was in progress in the office of a certain religious organization in Athens. Four or five young people had gathered, among them a deacon from the provinces who was a student in the theological school. They were discussing general subjects of spiritual edification, when suddenly the deacon interrupted the gathering, and addressing himself to all, said, I often wonder, friends, what the saints were like. How did they live? What wouldn't I give to know a holy man at close range? But where can you find one nowadays when all of us have become depraved? But one of those present answered, Saints still exist even today. I've even met one. You've met a saint? So where is he? If what you say is true, I wouldn't hesitate to travel to the ends of the earth to make his acquaintance. You don't have to go quite so far. Just make the effort to get as far as Egina, and you'll meet him there. Where does he live? What is his name? Well, when you get off the ferry boat to Egina, ask where Father Euronimos lives. Everybody knows him there, and they'll tell you how to find him. After a short while, the gathering broke up and each went his own way. A few days later, they met again, and he who had told the deacon to visit Father Euronimos asked him, So what happened, Father? Did you go to Egina? Yes. I went, answered the deacon, his face beaming with joy. And what did you see? Were you satisfied? My brother, you sent me to see a saint. And I, when I met him, I experienced such joy that I thought I found Christ himself. What a man he is, my brother. I felt such comfort, such gladness, and strength entered me that I thought my heart would burst from my joy. My emotions can't be described. In his presence, I felt like an ignorant child. All my theological knowledge was annihilated before his simple and prophetic word. He really is a saint. My brother, I can't find words to thank you. Nothing I could say would ever be enough. You could not have given me greater joy. May the Lord reward you. Such are the impressions of one of those fortunate people who were deemed worthy to meet Father Eronimos, the renowned elder of Egina. Nor was he by any means the only one who was so impressed by meeting him. All who came to know him 
one this way and another that, speak of their encounter with him with the same enthusiasm and the same love, with the same devoutness and reverence. With his simplicity, his humility, and the holiness of his life, he was able to touch the souls of all who visited him and became for them father, brother, good friend, and above all, their wise and unerring guide. It was because of this that the people of God, who are able to perceive the odor of sanctity, flocked to him to enjoy his divine teaching. They found refuge in their misfortunes, comfort in their afflictions, and help in facing the trials of life. And he, always affectionate, always long-suffering and magnanimous, would receive them all, giving peace to one, consolation to another, courage to a third, guiding yet another in the path of repentance. All were able to fit in his small and simple cell, because his love was large enough for all. And all departed from this spiritual infirmary, changed, healed, peaceful. Who then was this venerable elder who made so many people run to him? From whence did this swallow of the wilderness spring up and was found amidst us to water with his tears the earth made desolate by our sins and to transform it into a spiritual oasis wherein every sort of wayfarer found refreshment and rest? Let us closely follow the path of this terrestrial angel who came with his holy life to inspire a multitude of people in Aegina, in Greece, and in Orthodoxy in general, and to show that even in our days it is possible for a person to reap the fruits of sanctity if he will dedicate himself completely to God. Chapter 2 The Great Mainland Father Hieronymus, whose secular name was Basil Apostolides, was born in 1883 in Asia Minor, the great mainland, as Conteglu so aptly put it, that fountainhead of holiness. His birthplace was Calvera of Cappadocia, a region which showed forth some of the greatest saints of our church, St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory the Theologian, St. Amphilochius of Iconium, etc., Calvary, at the time that Father Hieronymus was born, was a small town of some 4,000 inhabitants. It was considered one of the major commercial centers of the area. Ecclesiastically, it was subject to the Diocese of Iconium. According to trustworthy testimony, Calvary in ancient times was the site of a series of cells and monasteries, some perched like eagles' nests, high up on the rocks, others carved out of the mountains, roundabout. Ascetics lived here like herons in their nests, or like otherworldly beings in the dens and caves of the earth. The very name of the place confirms the above assertion. Calvary is a corruption of the older Calavara, a mixed Greek-Turkish word signifying a place of many cells. This view is supported by the fact that there used to be many churches at Calvary, the evidence shows that last century there must have been over 200. With the passage of time, the angel-like ascetics of the monasteries became fewer, and later, from fear of the persecutions and oppression of a conqueror holding to a different re religion, the monasteries and hermitages closed down one by one. The rasa-clad occupants of the cells were replaced by lay folk, until finally what had been a monastic republic was reduced to a village. The saints, 
wherever they may be found, are not sanctified for themselves alone. They sanctify creation around them also. The power of their prayers and the sweat of their ascetic struggles affect all things around them and transmit to them their holiness. Even as we have icons that work miracles because they were painted by holy men, in like manner the entire area where holy men lived is sanctified and their descendants live by their tradition and under their influence. Calvary was considered the most important Christian center of the whole region. From extant historical testimonies and also from narrations and recollections of the blessed elder Eronimos, we shall mention a few details that will help us to come somewhat closer to the spiritual atmosphere that prevailed there in the elder's day and age. Tradition in Anatolia Every home in Calvary had a separate room, which was the special place of prayer. On the eastern side of this room, they would make a niche where they placed the icons, the censer, the religious books, the synopsis, synaxarion, the psalter, the gospels, and the lives of the saints, holy water from the Feast of Theophany, and so forth. It was here that they all prayed together. They prayed privately also, when any felt the need, but there were also the prescribed hours of common prayer in the morning, at noonday, in the evening when the church bell rang for vespers, and in the evening for compline. Many were they who awoke at midnight in order to read the midnight service, because at this time they said, quote, the gates of heaven open up. And of course there was always prayer before and after meals. It is noteworthy that before they commenced any work whatsoever, their lips whispered the prayer. Lord Jesus Christ. Such was their zeal for prayer that many said that Cavalrioties were the spiritual descendants of monks, and thus a sort of legend took hold. The keeping of Sundays and the other Christian feasts as non-work days was something sacred and inviolable. Not only would the stores and workshops remain closed, but even the women at home would stop every kind of work. It was the same with the fasts which were observed with great strictness. They even made the little children, as soon as they were weaned, to begin keeping the fasts. Many of the people of Calvary, chiefly women, were in the habit of going in groups to country chapels to pray. This usually took place at night, early at dawn, or in the evening, especially during the period of the great fast. One of them would kneel in the middle of the church and would relate to the others who stood narrations from the birth the crucifixion, whatever else they knew, whereupon all began to pray with tears. They attached special significance to tears. They would endeavor not to rise from prayer without shedding at least one teardrop, because, as they said, tears have great power. Quote, they put out the fire of hell. The monastic tradition of the Orthodox Church was maintained very energetically in Calvary. Many abandoned the world, became monks. The women took the lead here also. Once they had decided to consecrate themselves to God, they would go to a convent or would put on monastic clothing and live in a monastic way in the village, occupying themselves exclusively with the study of spiritual and ecclesiastical books, with prayer, with vigils, and good works. Almost all the inhabitants of Calvary nourished within a deep desire to visit the holy places, Every year, around fall, small groups of men and women would gather 
And once they had prepared all that was needed for their journey, which usually lasted for six months, they all set off together. These journeys had a festal character. And when the pilgrims returned to Calvary, the inhabitants awaited them at the entrance of the village in the so-called ravine of the monastery. There they would have a doxology to God and then return altogether. One of the village's 200 churches or so, those of the holy unmercenaries Cosmas and Damien and St. Gregory the Theologian stood out because of the special reverence with the inhabitants of Calvary they had for these saints. On the Feast of the Unmer Holy Unmercenaries, in particular, the 1st of November, a great festival took place in Calvary, which was attended by the whole village. The Holy Unmercenaries, the doctors without money, were their patrons. Even the few Turks living in Calvary believed in the miraculous power of the saints. There are many incidences demonstrating the faith that the Turks nourished toward the Holy Unmercenaries and St. Gregory the Theologian. We shall mention two characteristic incidents. During World War I in 1914, a certain Calvaroti Turk took part in a major battle which lasted for two days. The battle was fierce and his life was endangered. In those difficult hours, he found no other refuge except in the Holy Unmercenaries, whom he knew to be great wonder workers. He implored them to save him and he would give whatever they requested of him. Then during a respite in the battle, when he had been overcome by a little sleep, he saw the holy unmercenaries who said to him, quote, we will save you, but as soon as you return to Calvary, offer our church a vessel of oil, end of quote. The Turk in fact was saved and he immediately gave his whole word to fulfill his vow to the church. Another Turk related that before the exchange of populations in 1924, a certain young girl fell from her house into the void and was not harmed. During her fall, St. Gregory held her by her hand and saved her. After the exchange, the daughter of a certain Turk fell from the same house and was killed. Footnote, in Calvary, and in many other villages in Cappadocia, the inhabitants lived in cave houses dug out of the rock. Most of these, quote, houses were actually formerly monks' cells and were perched up high on the cliffsides. It was therefore not uncommon for people to fall and to be maimed for life or even killed. To continue. According to the refugee Turk, quote, St. Gregory had become a refugee in Macedonia the place where the Christian inhabitants of Calvary were resettled after the exchange and was no longer there to save her. The church's presence in Calvary was conspicuous. Not only did it have the spiritual leadership, but it was also foremost in preserving the Greek language, and it endeavored to keep the national consciousness thriving and flourishing. In the rough and trackless path that the Greek faithful of Asia Minor traversed, in their life-or-death struggle for their religious and national survival. It was their attachment and, and devotion to the church, their worshipful and sacramental ascetical life, their prayers and seething faith in their miracle-working saints that helped them preserve their tranquility of soul and the hope for a better tomorrow. Angel-like ascetics. 
We should make a special mention of certain holy persons who turned the end of the last century extraordinarily helped in the spiritual uplifting of the inhabitants of Calvary and deeply influenced the formation of Father Euronymous' personality. Two of these people were, one, Mishael. Mishael, a patriarchal personage, was an ascetical type, one of those whom we only encounter in the lives of the saints. Austere yet meek, he was like unto a prophet who bears in himself a whole age-old tradition. He combined the type of the austere prophet with the introspective ascetic who spends all his days and nights in prayer. He was a dynamic personality who played the part of a spiritual guide to all the inhabitants of the village. As the elder Euronymous used to say, Mishael was another Abba Isaac. So much had he progressed in prayer. Mishael was married, but he did not live with his wife. They were like brother and sister. He worked for his family and provided for them, but did not live with them. By day he worked alone in the fields, not wishing to work with others lest they observe him as he prayed. The nights he passed praying at some country chapel. Or, if he returned home, he remained by himself. A footnote, literally the outside churches, all the Orthodox countries abound in these small chapels and churches usually found in the fields in the countryside outside the towns and villages or on mountains and hills. Many were built as the fulfillment of a vow or in thanksgiving to a certain saint for a benefaction rendered. In the present instance, these chapels were usually cave churches carved out of the rocks by monks many centuries before. To continue. Or, if he returned home, he remained by himself. He had a great love for stillness, Hezekiah, and a burning desire for prayer. When he prayed, his heart was so inflamed that he forgot himself. He had the strength to remain kneeling in prayer with his hands upraised for two days. He had especially given himself over to so-called compunctionate prayer. This compunctionate prayer as they call it in Calvary, was nothing other than noetic prayer, that is, prayer of the heart. He would kneel before an icon or in the open air outdoors and set his soul free to overflow before God. He would bring to mind his sins and pour forth abundant tears, from which he awaited deliverance. He often went up into the mountain and remained there, praying till nightfall. And when he finished... The sweat of his agony was so great that, as the elder Euronymous would say, quote, if you wrung out his undershirt, you'd get three pints of water. When he went to church during the divine liturgy, he would not enter the nave, but stood in the narthex or behind some column. He would have his head resting on his chest and prayed noetically. Oft times, when the priest made the exclamation, especially our all-holy, immaculate, most blessed, glorious Lady Theotokos and ever-Virgin Mary, he would quietly leave and disappear. As it became evident later, he would go to some chapel to continue his prayer into the night. Many, seeing him leave before the divine liturgy ended, thought it strange, wondered where he went and what he did. One Sunday, therefore, as soon as Michel left the church, some women followed him discreetly, from a distance in order to see where he went. He took a footpath and in a short time arrived at one of the many chapels. A little later, the women followed him 
arrived also and stood quietly outside. Misael, who had not noticed them, began to pray aloud with sobs, tears, and groanings that cannot be uttered. He prayed different prayers, known and extemporaneous, whatever helped to bring his heart to compunction. In this manner, with Mishael praying aloud inside with tears, and the women outside listening to his divine occupation, several hours passed with holy exaltation and contrition of heart. As soon as Mishael finished, he came out. When he saw the women, he was very upset, almost angry. He left without speaking to them, but they, transported by this divine mystagogy, which they experienced so many hours near him, were envious, and they said among themselves, Does God hear only Mishael? Why don't we try to play like pray like him too? And they gave themselves over to the endeavor of prayer. But it is not e as easy as that to devote yourself to noetic prayer without someone to teach you. The women soon understood this and began to approach Mishael, beseeching him to teach them the art of prayer. Though he taught them and told them what to do, he would not show them and would not pray with them. They then began to pray to God that he enlighten Mishael to reveal to them the secrets of prayer by actual deeds. The answer was not long in coming, and even came in a wondrous manner. Soon after, a monk appeared to Mishael and said to him, Mishael, take the women who followed you to the chapel, and as many others as you wish, and at night come to such and such a house which is suitable and spacious. Only do not invite indifferent and superfluous people. I shall be there also, and I shall teach you compunctionate prayer. Mishael, although he avoided people and did not wish to pray with others, obeyed. He invited the women and a few others, among whom was also the elder Eronimos, then a small child, and at night they all assembled at the appointed place. The monk then began to pray with sobs and many tears, which made everybody else weep also. He uttered various prayers and compunctionate sayings which came from his heart with yearning and faith, and revealed the great love that he had for God. This lasted all night and was repeated for a second time and a third. Toward the end of the third night, as soon as he had finished his prayer and was counseling Mishael to continue to teach the Christians, he disappeared before their eyes. Evidently, he was an angel of God or a saint. From that time on, Mishael began to teach compunctionate prayer, and at night all would gather at different houses and pray. Michelle had a daughter who had a great calling to the spiritual life. Her father's genuine child, she inherited from him all his virtues and had a special devotion to compunctionate prayer. And even though she was quite young, little by little various women began to gather around her and she taught them, she guided them, and altogether they prayed with compunctionate prayer. With time, when this assembly gathered in a certain house to pray, it separated into two groups. Mishael with the men would pray in one room, and his daughter with the women in another. And so Mishael's daughter was the consolation of all the women of Calvary, even as he was for the men. When Mishael's daughter reached the age of 18 or 20, she fell seriously ill. All the inhabitants of the village, especially the women, began to be alarmed. If something happened to her, 
they would lose their only consolation. What could they do? They all began to pray. They implored God day and night to make her well because in the difficult times in which they found themselves, she was their singular consolation, the person who instructed and guided them, their bond with God. But her condition only worsened. In their despair, they thought to have recourse to her father, Mishael. They knew well the power of his prayer and the audience he had before God, and they placed with him to pray for his daughter. We implore you, they said, pray to God that he make her well. We're not asking you to make special supplication because she's your daughter, but for our sake, because if we are deprived of her, we'll be left without any consolation. We have so many woes and so many troubles that if we lose our only help and our support, despair will overwhelm us. Michel at first did not wish to yield to their entreaties, lest it be misconstrued that he had a special weakness for for her as his daughter. His mind was bound exclusively to God, all other people he held equal in his heart. Nevertheless, to the women's insistent pleadings, his heart at last inclined. Thus, according to his custom, one Thursday morning, before it dawned, he went up into the mountain. He knelt, lifted his hands on high, and began his prayer. Set afire with divine love, he remained in prayer and supplication from the morning watch until night. While the sweat was running down his face, he spoke to God, and among other things, he spoke about his daughter also, not that he was pained for her as a father, but because they told him that she was the support and consolation of the Christians. Suddenly, as he stood absorbed in prayer, estranged from all that is worldly, and his soul was caught up into things celestial, he heard within himself a gentle voice, a divine voice, saying, Do you give surety for your daughter? No, Lord, I am not able to give surety. I am a sinner, and I know the fickleness of man. Today my daughter is struggling and working thy will. But tomorrow, how can I have surety? May thy will be done. This visitation, which God deemed him worthy of receiving, calmed him. He was entirely flooded with a heavenly tranquility and continued his holy pursuit with even greater zeal. Toward the end of the day, a messenger came to inform him that his daughter had reposed and he should hurry back for her burial. Having been previously informed, Michel received the message calmly and even with a certain relief. He had deep faith in God and in the resurrection of the dead, and he did not permit himself to mourn for the temporary separation of his daughter. His joy for her salvation, which God had revealed to him in a wondrous manner, gave him the strength to transcend even this sorrow over her death. After offering a prayer of thanksgiving to God, he set out with the messenger for the village. This, in short, was Mishael, from what the elder Eronimos related to us about him from time to time, and for whom he cherished a very great reverence. Quote, Such men you do not find today, he, he would say. He was another Abba Isaac. He spoke little, was humble, loved silence, and had a deep consciousness of his sinfulness. He never allowed anyone to praise him, and if anyone made bold to say a flattering word to him, it was likely that Mishael would never speak to him again.
to Father John. In one of the churches of the village there served a priest named Father John. He was a family man. On weekdays he went to the fields. On Sundays and feast days he served in church. He was very simple, humble, unkempt in appearance. If you met him in the road, you would not pay much attention to him. But if you came to know him personally, you would see that this was a spiritual man with rare gifts. He was especially distinguished by the gift of prayer. It seems that in the parts of Anatolia, prayer was a flower that thrived exceedingly. Concerning this, Father John, the elder Euronymous narrated to us marvelous things, which one could only encounter in the ancient ascetics who had a burning faith. The characteristic event which typified his presence in Calvary was the following. When he served the liturgy, he almost always wept and sighed and often could not hold back his sobs. Such was his faith, and to such an intense degree did he live the mystery of the divine Eucharist. But when he reached the time of the consecration of the precious gifts, his fervor would reach its peak. The chanters would finish the, we praise thee, we bless thee, which, which they chanted as slowly as possible, and from within the sanctuary there would still be heard the prayers and sighs of the priest. They would begin, we praise thee, again. They would have to repeat it often, five or six times, until Father John would finish and say the exclamation, especially when this delay for the exclamation, especially our most holy, had been repeated for a few Sundays, the chanters became perplexed, not knowing what to do. They could not chant anything else, the palielos, for example, since the sacredness of the moment did not permit it. All the same, they did not have the boldness to complain to the priest, for they reverenced him greatly. One day, therefore, they told their problem to the church wardens. The priest takes a long time to finish the prayer at the time of the consecration of the precious gifts, and we have no idea what to do. We chant thee, we praise thee, over and over, but in so doing, it seems to us, confusion is created. Couldn't you please tell him to hurry a little? The wardens conveyed the chanter's request to the priest. He answered them, how, how can I finish any sooner? It doesn't depend on me. As soon as I begin to read the prayer, the holy table is surrounded by divine fire, which reaches two or three yards high, and I am not able to approach. I fall upon the ground and pray until God, in his good pleasure, withdraws the divine fire, or many times it divides in two, and then I enter and continue the prayer and make this bread, the pressure, and so forth. When the chanters heard this, they marveled at the holiness of their priest, did not dare to bother him on this account again. So they continued to chant, we praise thee as slowly as they could, and repeated it as many times as needed for him to finish the prayer, endeavoring to feel some contrition at what was being enacted in the sanctuary. Father John, even though he was simple, made his presence felt with his holiness. Crowds of the faithful began to gather at his church. Often Christians from other neighboring hamlets came to attend his liturgy. There were instances when over a thousand Christians gathered at his church. All came to compunction and wept profusely. When the liturgy finished, it was not rare to see the floor of the church wet with their tears. 
in order to come closer and enter more deeply into the spiritual climate that prevailed in Calvary. Let us permit the Elder Euronymous himself to speak to us of the people of his epoch. Quote, the people in my homeland had very much zeal for divine things. They were pure and very pious. They had fear and great love of God. During vigils, the pavement would fill with tears. We children had reverence, love, and obedience to parents and respect for strangers. In school, the teachers taught us reverence and love of God and fatherland first and then letters. Our religious holidays had grandeur and all of us eagerly waited for them to arrive. I loved all this and from my childhood I had great zeal, especially for the things of God. When we came to Greece, after the exchange of populations, we were deeply scandalized. We had the impression that they weren't even any Christians living in this country. People swore, sang worldly songs, dressed immodestly, did not keep the fasts, and didn't go to church. A man, we said, where did, where did we come to? Woe is me, was the expression in Turkish. Had it been possible, we would have immediately taken ship and returned to Anatolia. There our villages were like monasteries, all fasted, prayed, and ran to the churches. The young men in the fields and the young maidens at home doing their work quietly chanted various psalms instead of singing indecent songs as they do here. You never even saw women with uncovered head and short sleeves. But here everything is different, and the more time goes by, the worse it gets. Chapter 3, God-Pleasing Upbringing These were the surroundings and such was the spiritual atmosphere in Calvary at the time the elder Eronimus was born. His parents, Anestes and Elizabeth, were very pious. They had six children altogether, John, Barbara, Despina, Basil, the future father Eronimus, Alexander, and Olga. His father was a potter. His children helped him in his work, especially his firstborn son, John. Pottery was a traditional craft, and the earthenware of Calvary was renowned for its beauty and was much sought after by both Turks and Greeks. His father's work often compelled him to be absent from home for long periods of time, sometimes up to six months. During these periods, the whole care of the house, and more important, the upbringing of the children was undertaken by their mother. She was a woman of deep faith in God and conscious of her calling as a Christian mother, who never tired of counseling and instructing her children to walk in the path of virtue. Her anxiety for the children was very great and often it would manifest itself in prayer. She spent hours in the prayer room, which had been made in a special place in the cellar of the house. Footnote, most of the homes of Calvary were converted cave cells of the monastics of old. Many times the houses were built out of the caves, thus the storerooms and the cellars were usually the caves themselves. To continue, there by night, after the labor and anxiety of the day, she let herself express all her worries and poured out her heart to God, seeking his help for herself, for her husband, and for her children. Prayer brought her relief, and her deep faith revived her and gave her strength to continue the difficult work of rearing the children according to God, to which she had given herself over with such consciousness. 
especially during the times that her husband was absent. Quote, sleep would overtake her kneeling in prayer, as the elder told us. That deep faith and burning love for prayer that she possessed, she sought to plant in her children. Every day, she would assign them by turn, today one and tomorrow another, to read the six psalms, a supplicatory canon, vespers, compline, besides other soul-profiting readings. They said their prayers together and then went to bed, so that very early next morning at the crack of dawn, they would hear, Get up now, time for prayer. She endeavored to instill this sacred pursuit in them from childhood so that they would become accustomed to it and progress in the spiritual life. Basil stood out from his brethren. He had curly black hair, a cheerful countenance, and dark, lively, and intelligent eyes, and even from childhood was distinguished by the seriousness of his thoughts, his prudence, and his diligence. A sensitive lad, he was endowed with a deep and instinctive faith in God. The church was his abode. There, besides the liturgies, vespers, and so forth, he spent many hours each day in prayer and the reading of the books of the church. This inner predisposition and love for the church, God's temple, often led him to the various country chapels scattered in the surrounding area. He would spend most of the day there occupied with God. He would clean the chapel, read, and pray. It would by no means be rare that after these divine occupations, sleep would overtake him next to the holy table. And when he awoke and returned to the village, often at a late hour, he would find his family worried by his absence. He, however, felt joyous and met their gaze with calmness and tranquility, as if telling them, quote, How is it that ye sought me? Know ye not that I must needs be about the things of my father? Luke 2.49 His contact with the church filled him with joy. He was eaten up by the zeal of his house. Even from his tender years, he had only God in his heart, and he felt joy only close to him. He was in the habit of saying to us later, quote, I grew up in churches. I slept next to the holy tables. One could say that from a little child he was temple-bred. He grew up in the church. With her waters was he reared spiritually, and there he felt was his foreordained place. He had all the indications of one consecrated from his mother's womb. He was diligent in school. He also had a beautiful and melodic voice. From the age of seven, he frequented the chanting stand and would quietly chant along with the chanters. He was quite bright and assiduous. He had learned even from that time the whole order of the church. Once, in fact, when they sent a certain newly ordained priest to the church who did not know the Tipikon well, they commissioned little Basil to instruct him how to serve. His pious mother beheld all these activities of her son. She divined his calling and kept all these things in her heart. Luke 2.51 This child shall be a great man, she would say. She began to increase her prayers for the whole family and above all for Basil, whom both she and her husband loved especially. Quote, we were six brothers and sisters, but my parents, they loved me more, the elder would tell us. Her prayers had no end. As she was kneeling in prayer, sleep would overtake her. 
Her tears never ran dry. They formed, quote, two continuous furrows on her cheeks. When later the elder was counseling a certain mother who was anxious about her son because he had fallen away from the path, he said to her, Unto God you will present either your son saved or the calluses on the, your knees from prayer. Evidently, he was inspired to say this from the experience of his own mother who passed the nights till dawn in her prayer room. Little Basil would see his mother continuously pray and weep, and his sensitive soul would be shaken. It would bleed. So he prayed also and wept and asked God to comfort his mother. One day he approached her and said, Mother, what's wrong? Why do you weep? Is it because of our poverty? No, my child, I do not weep on account of our poverty. It's for all of you that I weep, for your father and for you, my children. I entreat God to keep you all well, that you might not depart from his path. Basil heard all this and fell to thinking. He would secretly observe his mother, who sighed and wept, and he himself persisted in weeping. Often he would not even go out to play with the other children at school when it was time for recess. He would stay in the room and think of his mother. He would lay his head on the desk and cry. Once his teacher noticed this, seeing him crying, he asked him, What's wrong, my boy? Why do you stay inside and don't go out to play with the other children? My head hurts, answered Basil. On another occasion, when he asked him the same thing, he answered, My stomach hurts. When this had been repeated many times, the teacher visited his mom and said to her, What's wrong with this boy that he's continuously sick? Why don't you take him to a doctor? He always sits in the classroom during recess and cries. Now he tells me his head hurts, now that his stomach hurts, and so on. His mother did not answer. She prayed all night long, and on the morrow she took the ten-year-old Basil and went to one of the chapels outside the village. There she asked him, What's wrong with you, my child, that you're always crying? Tell me the truth. Mother, nothing ails me. I only think of you and how you're always weeping, and I can't control myself, and I weep too. Listen, my child, I weep for my sins and for all of you, as I told you before, but especially for you. I see certain signs in you, and I entreat God to make you steadfast. I, as you see, entered the world. I'm married. I have a family. You know our woes. I will tell you just one thing. I want you to become a monk or a priest and dedicate yourself completely to God. You are foreordained for this way of life. Do you give me your word here before the holy icons that you will follow in this way? Basil was a little thoughtful and then answered with a firm voice, Yes, mother, I give you my word. Who truly can grasp the magnitude of this offering on the part of his mother, reminiscent of the Emily's and Nona's, or that of the resolute decision of Basil, who from the age of ten decided to embrace the monastic life. Surely this scene in no way falls short of the service of the monastic tonsure, where the candidate vows to remain quote, in the monastery in the ascetic life until his last breath. Their house was close to Mishael's, 
Basil, even though he was still young, had understood the great value of this man, and he visited him often. Misael, even though he avoided people, discerned the faith and zeal of his young neighbor and welcomed him. He conversed with him on spiritual subjects. He counseled him and taught him the secrets of compunctionate prayer. Basil listened to him with attention. He drank in every word that came out of the mouth of this experienced monkish layman, as he, and he essayed to assimilate everything in active deed. He imitated him in everything, in his posture, in his gait, in his speech, as all children of his age do their heroes, their paragons. As the days went by, Basil visited Mishael more regularly. With the passage of time, he as good as became his shadow. He also began, like Mishael, to go off to chapels near and far and to spend not only his days but also many nights praying before the icons or at some stasidi. As he himself told us, the joy he felt in these chapels cannot be described. Here the psalmic verse is fully applied. Quote, the zeal of thy house hath eaten me up. At a time of life when others of the same age occupied themselves with games and mischievous pranks, he was running from monastery to chapel and from chapel to some ascetical cell and was spending his time in prayer. All marveled at the zeal and faith of this child. Even the few Turkish women of the village would say to his mother, What's wrong with this boy, Elizabeth, that he's always running and sleeping in churches? Has he lost his mind? Even from before his adolescent years, he was careful and never spoke without a reason. An idle word never came out of his mouth. He would only speak about spiritual topics, and although he was very sensitive and shy, he had an astonishing boldness and amazing courage in anything pertaining to spiritual things. Once during a religious feast in which his school was to take part at the church, someone had to give the oration. Basil, who was then 11 years old, asked his teacher if he could give it. His teacher tried to dissuade him, saying that he was too young and would not be able to handle it. But Basil insisted, and in the end the teacher permitted him to read the speech from the pulpit in the presence of 2,000 people. This was the first, albeit from a manuscript, of his sermons in church. As the years passed, little Basil strove to increase his struggles in prayer, and the passage from childhood to adolescent found him with the same goals, the same irrevocable decision to dedicate himself entirely to God. He was a model of piety for young and old. Never did anyone hear him sing. When he was merry, he would chant. He would always counsel us likewise. Quote, if any, if any be merry, let him chant. See James chapter 5, verse 13. He even once said to us in jest, quote, A man should be part doctor, part musician, and part madman. Part doctor so that he can give himself some help should he get sick. Part musician so that when he's merry, he'll know how to chant some hymn. And part madman so that when he falls into despondency, he will be able to say, Let's go on an outing to such and such a monastery. In the meantime, he finished school and began giving assistance in the workshop to his father and his older brother John, who also distinguished himself in love of work and piety. 
He was a lover of labor and continued to work into deep old age. Basil turned the shop into a missionary center. He had the gift of speech, and whoever entered the store he would engage in conversation on spiritual subjects. He endeavored to strengthen his piety and to tighten his bonds with the church, but this was not enough for him, so he began to visit various homes and start conversations, especially with the women, and tried to draw them to the spiritual life and to teach them piety and the life in Christ. And his word had such power that many of these women were transfigured. They experienced the, quote, change wrought by the right hand of the Most High, Psalms 76, verse 10, and began to live as nuns. Some of them even experienced a certain friction with their husbands because the latter would be upset when they returned from work on Wednesday and Friday and found the table set with a fasting meal prepared without oil. It became quickly known who was the cause of this conversion, and in the village they began to call Basil, who was then 16 or 17 years old, the priest. That priest changed you, they would say to their wives, whom they saw suddenly manifesting a great turn and love for the church. But he was a man of high integrity and very careful and prudent, and in spite of his youthfulness, all respected him. From this age, that is about 16 or 17 years old, he began to preach in church. Footnote, lay preachers are not uncommon in the Greek church. Usually they are appointed by the local bishop. Each diocese has a group of preachers who go throughout the parishes and preach during the divine liturgy. To continue, as some of his compatriots remember, who also came to Greece after the exchange of populations in 1924, he spoke well and to the point and drew people like a magnet. All marveled and were perplexed at this youth, who although he was so young, yet had great zeal for the things of God, great boldness, and besides all this, great understanding. For the holy unmercenaries, whom all honored at Calvary, little Basil had a special devotion, which was made even stronger by the following incident. It was the eve of the saints' feast, and Basil, according to his beloved habit, had gone out of the village to some chapel to pray. He had taken the mule with him to let it graze. He often used this as, as an excuse to allow him to go off and to be alone to pray. In the evening, he took the animal and started for the village to be in time for the saints' vespers. But suddenly, a thunderstorm broke out, heavy rains began to fall, and the rivers flooded. On account of his great desire to be in time for vespers rather than stopping anywhere to take cover, he forced the animal to run. As he was fording a river, he fell off the animal, and the water flowing down with great force carried him off. He attempted for a long time to stand up, but it was impossible. The water continued to carry him downstream until he caught onto some large rock and managed to hold on there, but to get to shore was impossible. After he had come to himself a little, he began to pray to the holy unmercenaries to save him from the terrible plight he was in, and God, who always attends to the prayers of his faithful servants, was not long in answering. Four Turks who happened to be passing near saw him and ran to help him. They stood high up on the bank of the river, tied their belts one to another, and threw them to the youthful Basil. He caught hold of them and with great exertion got out of the river. 
They brought him to the village in a wretched state. His whole body, but especially his right hand, was full of wounds. They cared for him, and his wounds were healed, but a small disability remained in his hand. He lost the full movement and flexibility of the palm, and the palm did not completely close. The movement of the wrist was also hampered. But Basil, who believed that without God nothing happens, glorified God and thanked the holy unmercenaries for their miraculous intervention. They saved him from the danger he had passed through. And as we shall see in what follows, the elder had the holy unmercenaries as guardians and helpers his whole life long. Chapter 4. Deacon His whole spiritual ministry, which as the years passed became more intense, made him beloved and respected throughout the village. Many encouraged him to become a priest. They believed that he was made to be a priest. Basil also desired it. For in this manner he would be able to live the mystery of mysteries, the Holy Eucharist, more closely. But he did not venture to ask for it on his own. As he would say to us, he believed that, quote, the priest has to be either God-called or called by the people, never self-called. There are many impotents to the priesthood. I add one more, to seek it of oneself. Calvary was subject ecclesiastically to the diocese of Iconium. His compatriots, therefore, seeing his unwillingness to go himself to the Metropolitan and seek that he ordain him, went themselves and besought him for this purpose. The Metropolitan then was a certain Athanasios, who had heard much of Basil's piety and energetic activities and held him in high esteem, so he called him and proposed to ordain him deacon. Basil considered this a divine calling and accepted it with joy. He even expressed his desire to remain a deacon in his own village since he had already formed a bond with the flock which he had created even before he became a pastor. But there was one additional reason. He wished to be close to Mishael in order to be fortified by his words and prayers. But he had not yet entered into clerical rank and officially undertaken his pastoral ministry when the trials began. My son, if thou come to serve the Lord, prepare thy soul for temptation. Wisdom of Sirach 2.1 warns the divine scripture. These temptations are unavoidable and impossible to foresee. Whereas almost all the inhabitants of Calvary rejoiced to hear of the impending ordination, there were a few, four or five in number, who did not see it with a good eye. These four or five were notable citizens of the village, rich and powerful. The reason was the spiritual atmosphere that prevailed in their families, and they feared lest their children, under the influence that Basil would exercise as a clergyman, might forsake the world and become monastics. So they raised up a great war against him. They asked the bishop not to ordain him, at least not in their area. The Metropolitan surmised the cause of the hostility and was saddened because he loved Basil, but he did, did not wish to create a scandal. For this reason, he asked him to go to his friend, the Metropolitan of Colonia, Sophronios, who had his seat in Amiso, to be ordained deacon by him. Basil had certain reservations after the tumult that was stirred up, but 
At the Metropolitan's insistence, he accepted, and having received an introductory letter, he departed for Amiso. There he was ordained deacon by Metropolitan Sophronios. After his ordination, in order to avoid the disturbance and tumult caused by his enemies in his own country, he departed for Caesarea. He was thinking of staying there for a while to allow things to quiet down. On the way to Caesarea, he stopped a short time at Nigdi, where he was offered hospitality for three days in the home of an acquaintance. The affair of these few enemies of his had distressed him greatly, and he prayed continually to God to help him and enlighten him what he should do. The three days that he stayed at Nigdi, he did not sleep at all, but prayed continually. He did not even unmake the bed which they had prepared for him to sleep in. But the acquaintance who was giving him hospitality was a friend of his enemies, and they sent word to turn him out. On the third day in the morning, he visited him in his room, and seeing him sleepless and tired, he felt sorry for him. When he asked him why he hadn't slept, Father Basil answered that he was unable to sleep because he was anguishing over something and was continuously praying that God revealed to him what he should do. And God revealed to him that he should leave. He left Nigdi the same day. Later he learned that his enemies had so much hate against him that they were plotting to kill him, but they were not in time. God warned him, and he fled. Father Bethel stayed in Caesarea for a long time, during which he especially gave himself over to prayer. The things that had come to pass in his village had wounded his sensitive soul. Prayer was his singular consolation, but he missed the cave chapels and the hermitages of Calvary. He missed Mishael, as well as his other compatriots who loved him. So he decided to return and offer his services to his own people, believing that time would have helped to calm down the tumult that his enemies had created against him, and that their hatred would have subsided somewhat. Thus, he returned to Calvary, now a deacon. His compatriots, who, apart from the few exceptions mentioned above, loved him greatly, formed a committee and went to the Metropolitan. Athanasius had now reposed and been succeeded by Procopius to beseech him to ordain him a priest. The Metropolitan had already heard about Father Basil and gladly agreed to make him a priest. But the enemies of Christ and of the truth again raised up an implacable war against him. They were the same four or five men who had enmity against him from the beginning, and they moved heaven and earth if only they might utterly destroy him. Having nothing else to bring against him, they accused him to the Metropolitan of being illiterate. The Metropolitan was put in a difficult position. One day, therefore, he called the young hero deacon, said to him, Please chant a doxas stikion for me in the second tone. Father Basil, who had a melodic and compunctionate voice, chanted the second matinal doxicon, quote, the women who were with Mary, which he particularly loved. The Metropolitan was satisfied as much by the beautiful rendering of the hymn as by his reverent composure, and he asked him, Do you want me to make you a priest? No, your eminence, because certain people in my village do not want me. Since they don't want you in your own village, come, and I'll ordain you and place you in my village. Father Basil did not consent. 
In the meantime, a disturbance had erupted in Calvary. Those who loved him and were the majority, all the people, as those who remembered the events relate, got up and went to the bishop demanding that they make him a priest. They could not bear that the opinion of four or five persons who had no involvement with the church should prevail, and that the will of the believing people who had a high regard for him and wanted him as their pastor should not be taken into account. They even conscripted his mother. They exhorted her that she also should endeavor to convince her son to yield to the will of his pious compatriots and that of the very metropolitan. But Father Basil was unyielding. If even one does not want me, he answered, I will not become a priest. Such was his fear of God, and so great his sensitivity, that it sufficed that the negative voice of only one of his fanatical and unjust enemies would cause him not to accept the priesthood, even though his conscience did not convict him in anything. Father Basil remained in Calvary and continued his previous energetic activities, despite the opposition and war his enemies had raised against him. The faithful recognized him as a shepherd and flocked to him, and he taught them the secrets of compunction at prayer and counseled them how to live according to Christ. On Sundays and on feast days, he chanted and preached at the church of St. Gregory the Theologian, and the people ran to hear him. But his enemies did not rest either. Darkened by the hatred nestling within them, they tried to convince the priests and the church wardens not to allow him to preach, nor even to chant at the Analogion, just as the scribes and Pharisees threatened to cast out of the synagogue anyone who followed Christ. Father Basil was patient in all this with Job-like patience and fortitude. He would go to church and follow the unbloody sacrifice in the sanctuary, praying and shedding copious tears of contrition and compunction. But his enemies, blinded by their passion, could not bear to behold him even there. They feared that simply his modest presence in church, even without his speaking or chanting, would of itself have an influence on the people, and they thus reached the extreme recourse of attempting murder. One Sunday they waited for him to come out of the sanctuary so they could beat him up, but divine grace covered him, and he passed through their midst without their perceiving it, just as once the divine teacher passed through the Jews. Metropolitan Procopius, who saw his compatriot's evil and unjust intentions against Father Basil, called him one day and suggested sending him to the Holy Mountain for a certain period of time. He believed that this would profit him spiritually and would also help to calm the spirits and quiet down the noise of the storm that had been roused up around his name. Father Basil greatly longed to go to the Holy Mountain. He had heard much about it and believed that there he would find holy elders who would profit him spiritually. The Holy Mountain belonged to the jurisdiction of the Ecumenical Patriarchate, and the pertinent permission had to be obtained from thence. For this purpose, on the 5th of August, 1911, the Metropolitan wrote a letter to the Patriarch, quote, requesting the consignment of Hero Deacon Basil for a certain period of time to one of the sacred monasteries of the Holy Mountain for his practical training, end of quote. The patriarch answered, quote, that he send him to him for this purpose. 
But while the patriarch's answer was still on the way, Father Basil, saddened by the unjust and irrational conduct of his enemies, decided to depart for the holy places. For many years he had desired to go there to worship the sacred shrines. Later his compatriots who came to him to Greece said that Father Basil loved his homeland so much that he probably would never have left it had it not been for the evil and envy of his enemies which drove him away. Chapter 5 At the Holy Places When he announced to his parents his decision to depart for the holy places, they received it with reservation. They feared that he might possibly never return to them. But Father Basil was determined to accomplish his journey, and in the end his parents consented and allowed him to leave with their blessing. Before leaving, he gave word of his pilgrimage to the holy places to a certain widowed aunt of his in Constantinople, Despina, who was a very faithful soul and very strong in prayer and the word of God. A little later, she also traveled to the holy places, and they met there. Father Basil reached the Holy Land in 1911 at 28 years of age. His first concern was to worship at all the holy shrines, to kiss the places where the feet of Christ had trodden. He went first to the All-Holy Sepulchre, then to Golgotha, to the Praetorium, to Bethlehem. After that, he visited all the other shrines, Canaan, Tabor, Hebron, Jericho, the Well of Jacob, and so forth. Wherever he went, he experienced the presence of God. He would bring to mind the great events that took place at each shrine he visited, endeavoring to delve deeply into the mystery which each of these events had hidden within itself, and his heart was pricked with contrition and his eyes flowed with tears. He experienced such spiritual exaltation and a sense in his heart that some fifty years later when he made his acquaintance and he spoke to us of the holy places, he would weep. His prayer, or rather his supplication and admonition, which he gave to all who visited him, was that they all go to worship in the holy land at the holy places. Quote, I pray to God that he will not permit you to die before you worship at the holy places, he would tell us. People come from the whole world to visit the Acropolis, and here in Egina, the Aphaya, which is nothing but broken pieces of marble. And shall we who are Christians not go to worship at the place where our Christ was born, was reared, was crucified, and rose from the dead? Even now I often go noetically and worship these holy places. I stand in Bethlehem, and I hear those most compunctionate troparion. Why, O Mary, marvelous thou, amazed at that which is in thee, because I have given birth in time unto the timeless sun. Is it possible for anyone to grasp this, the most supernatural event mankind has ne ever known? After saying these things, the elder would dissolve into tears. When one saw him at such moments, he appeared totally estranged from all things earthly, as if he hadn't the least perception of his surroundings, while on his face shone a divine light reminiscent of the transfiguration. Father Basil visited all the sacred shrines under conditions which, as he described them himself, were not at all pleasant. He had no money. Oftentimes, he did not even have bread to eat. And on many occasions during his long journeys, 
he met with unexpected trials and temptations. But the sacredness of the place and his piety enabled him to overcome all obstacles. Quote, who can separate us from the love of Christ, he would say. And he would continue with ever-increasing faith and strength of will. After he had gone the round of the holy places, he wished to remain for a time in one of the monasteries of the area. And since he did not him know himself where it would be best to go to be profited, he asked the advice of a certain spiritual father named Anthemos. He sent him to the monastery of the Venerable Forerunner, close to the Jordan River. Before he left for the monastery of the Venerable Forerunner, at Jerusalem, he met his aunt Despina, who had come from Constantinople to worship in the Holy Land. He rejoiced at seeing her, because she was a spiritual person with an ascetical mind and a special love for prayer. She also had the gift of speech and profited many souls with her teaching. When Father Basil left for the monastery at the Venerable Forerunner, his aunt went to stay for a while in one of the women's convents. Father Basil remained at the monastery of the Forerunner for nine months, and the abbot entrusted him with the duties of the secretary of the monastery. At the same time, and for the same reason, Father Anastasios, who was also present at the monastery, he was a monk from Pontus in Asia Minor, who later went to the Holy Mountain and joined the Synodia of the elder Yosef the Hezekist and Cave Dweller. There he received the great schema and was renamed Arsenios. He reposed a few years ago at the age of 98 at the sacred monastery of Dionysiu, having lived as a monk some 80 years. Father Anastasios's was distinguished by an almost childlike simplicity, but also by a flaming faith and strong love for prayer. At the monastery of the Venerable Forerunner, the abbot entrusted him with the obedience of steward of the storehouses. There the two men met and were united with a close bond of friendship. In the evenings after the obediences of the day and the church services, they would meet and discuss various spiritual subjects, exchange experiences, and pray. Both considered their acquaintance to be a blessed coincidence. One day, the two befriended monks were visited by Father Basil's Aunt Despina and Father Anastasios's sister, who was then about 20 years old. She had become a nun at the age of 16 in the convent of the Holy Mother of God Theo Scepasti at Trebizond in Pontus and had now come as a pilgrim to the Holy Land. Father Anastasios's sister was none other than she who would afterwards be the venerable Eurondisa Ephraxia, who later came to live in obedience to the elder Euronimus on Egina and faithfully served him during the latter years of his life, after his disability, as we shall see further on. The abbot permitted the two women to remain as guests in the monastery for one week. This whole time they all gathered every evening, and Father Basil taught them compunctionate prayer until midnight. The nun, Eupraxia, forged a spiritual bond with Father Basil and also with his aunt, who had it in mind to found a convent, and she followed her to the women's monastery where she was staying temporarily. 
During his stay at the Monastery of the Venerable Forerunner, Father Basil had the opportunity to visit various other monasteries in the surrounding area. He especially loved to visit the place beyond the Jordan where St. Mary of Egypt struggled, for whom Father Basil had a very great reverence. He marveled how a weak woman had such endurance as to live for 47 years in this desert without seeing a human being. The mind of man, he said, is unable to comprehend what the righteous Mary accomplished. Quote, she made the decision to die if necessary, and God helped her to achieve that which appears impossible. Every week he would take the small rowboat of the monastery, would cross the Jordan, go to the chapel dedicated in her honor. He would light the vigil lamps and pray that God strengthen him in his struggles, even as he had strengthened our righteous mother of old. He would spend the whole day there praying and at night would return to the monastery. After living in the holy monastery, the venerable forerunner for nine months, Father Basil decided to leave. He was inflamed with the desire to visit other shrines also and was thinking of going to Constantinople, to St. Sophia, the center of orthodoxy. He had the thought that since in his country where people had little or no education, there were spiritual people like Mishael and Father John, how much more would this be the case in Constantinople? He believed that there he would find experienced spiritual people who would be able to teach him what he did not know. The abbot and the fathers of the monastery had come to love him, for they all had been profited by his presence, his piety and his conduct in the monastery in general, and they entreated him to stay with them for good. But Father Basil gave first place before everything else to his spiritual prophet, and at the time he reasoned, this was to be found in Constantinople. Because of this, he thanked them all and departed. Chapter 6, Constantinople Father Basil left the Holy Land for Constantinople. On the way, he thought of passing by for a short visit to his own country, Calvary, to see his kinfolk. He believed the hatred of his enemies would have abated, but it is evident that this hatred was the work of demonic activity, and instead of finding that with the passage of time his enemies had been appeased, as soon as they saw him they became worse and threatened to make trouble. The sweet and meek Father Basil, even though many entreated him to stay and said that they would take it upon themselves to protect him, did not wish to remain. He was a lover of quietude, tranquility, and Hezekiah, and as he used to say, he didn't want contentions. He therefore decided to leave for good. He bade farewell with tears to all his acquaintances and venerated for a last time the churches of the holy unmercenaries and of St. Gregory the Theologian, where his holy relics were also treasured, and he departed. On his way to Constantinople, he passed by Nigdi to bid farewell to Metropolitan Procopius, who loved him and had stood by him like a father in all his trials. The latter consoled him, counseled him, and gave him the following letter of introduction to the patriarch. Letterhead, Nigdi, October 13, 1912, number 193. All holy and most divine master, in my letter of August 5, 1911, I humbly submitted to your divine all-holiness the facts concerning a certain hero deacon, Basil, 
Anastasis Apostolidis, a native of my humble community of Carvalho, and ordained by our beloved brother in Christ, the most reverend metropolitan of Colonia Sophronios, and I requested that he be sent for a certain period of time to one of the sacred monasteries of the Holy Mountain to be trained in practical matters. Your divine all-holiness, accepting my entreaty requested by the letter dated September 21st of the same year, that I send him to you for further instruction. But since the above-mentioned Deacon Basil in the meantime had left for Jerusalem, your command to send him to the reigning city was not fulfilled immediately. In May of the present year, having returned to his native land for a change of climate, he remained inactive till now. Now he is coming in order to avoid persecution by his compatriots and to be put under the protection of your divine all-holiness, to remove himself from the disturbance that was raised up here for no reason, and on account of which it was not possible either to enroll him in the list of clergy in my humble metropolis, or to make use of him in any capacity. Reverently submitting the present request and kissing your all-holy hand, I reverently sign your lowly brother in Christ and all-willing, Bishop of Iconium Procopius. Father Basil arrived in Constantinople, received the blessing of Patriarch Joachim III, and gave him the letter from Metropolitan Procopius. Then he set off to worship and pray at the All-Holy Shrines. He went to St. Sophia, to the Holy Springs of Blacarne, and Balukli, the life-giving spring. He venerated the relics of St. Euphemia. He visited the great school of the nation, the monastery of Cora, Pamacaristos, the ruins of the monastery of Studium. His soul exalted. He glorified God and thought that here, in this holy place, where there were so many churches, so many hierarchs, the great school of the nation, there should also be an intense spiritual life. If in his country, where people did not know letters, hardly even knew Greek and had no patristic books to read, a certain level of spiritual life prevailed, then Father Basil believed here he would find holy persons of a high spiritual level from whom he would be able to learn what he did not know. He asked around, and wherever he heard that there was any good spiritual father, he would run to meet him. But he quickly was disappointed. Wherever I went, a man like unto Mishael, I found not, he told us. Many, when they heard him ask about compunctionate prayer of the heart, began to look upon him strangely, as if he was deluded. Father Basil was very distressed over this lack of experienced spiritual guides. Having no one to confess his pain to, he sat down and wrote a letter to Michel. He related to him all the marvelous things he had seen and venerated in the city, but bewailed the tragic spiritual poverty. Among other things, he wrote to him, No matter where I looked, I could not find a man like you to profit me spiritually. All the profit that the spiritual fathers of Constantinople were unable to give him was accomplished by one austere answer that came to his letter to Mishael. After the letter began with courteous and warm words to him in his sorrows, it ended, quote, You, my child, undertook to hurl me down into the depths of hell. If you write to me again that you cannot find a man like me, I will not write to you again. 
neither shall I pray for you. And even your very memory I shall blot out of my mind and my heart. But I set before me all my sins, and I was not shaken. What men these were, the elder would say. I only said one word to him, and he, in order not to be tempted, brought to mind all his sins. Where can you find such men today? If you do not say a word of praise to them, they seek it from you. They delight and rejoice in praises. Father Basil understood well the sense of Michel's answer, and his whole life long he endeavored by every means to avoid praises. An incident similar to that which took place between him and Michel to give another example is the following. On one of my visits to Egina, at a certain lull in our conversation, I'd gone out into the courtyard so that the elder would rest a little. After a short time, he came out with a fountain pen in his hand and said to me, Perhaps you know how this works? Yes, Yeranda, I answered, and I showed him how to fill it with ink. I'm not familiar with these things, therefore I give it to Peter as a gift. A footnote, that is, Peter Botsis, the author of the, the hagiography at hand, to continue. And he should remember that it is from a sinner. The sinner is the man who receives it, elder, not he who gives it, I made bold to say. And the elder, who was always sweet and meek, suddenly became serious and answered me in a stern tone of voice, which brooked no gainsaying. Listen, my beloved, this is how I see myself, and this is how I wish to see myself. And if you wish to see yourself likewise, I do not hinder you. From other incidences also, it was evident that he did not permit anyone to speak to him even one word of praise. Many times, services which he rendered himself he attributed to others in order to avoid praise, whereas he put down to his own account the mistakes of others. Initially, the patriarch settled Father Basil as a deacon at the patriarchate. The elder always told us good things about Joachim III. A footnote, Joachim III, who lived from 1834 to the year of our Lord, 1912. Born in Constantinople, he served as patriarch from 1878 to 84, and from 1902 to 1912, the year of his repose. Known for his almsgiving and compassion, he strengthened the bond of the Church of Constantinople with the other local Orthodox churches, especially that of Russia. He was greatly esteemed by the last sultan, Abdul Hamid. During his exile between his two tenures as patriarch, he resided on the holy mountain where he was loved and esteemed by the holy fathers of the monasteries and the skis. His family name was Dimitriades, and according to some, he was one of the greatest patriarchs after the fall of the city in 1453, characterized as of great mind majesty, and great accomplishments. End of footnote. The elder always told us good things about Joachim III, that he was faithful, devout, educated, energetic, and very compassionate. It is evident that the patriarch also loved Father Basil, which is why he kept him at the patriarchate. Father Basil served at the patriarchate for some time, the length of which we are not able to determine exactly. When he did not take part in the divine liturgy, he chanted, and oftentimes preached. He did not receive any wages. He subsisted on very little money 
from that which the Christians would put in the knapsack he always had with him, and which he never counted. He used only what was absolutely necessary, and the rest he distributed to the poor. As time passed, the Christians who got to know him began to leave their own churches and attended the patriarchal cathedral. As eyewitnesses attest, multitudes of the faithful would fill the church of the patriarchate to overflowing. In the spiritual dryness prevalent in Constantinople, this young deacon, who had come from the soil of Cappadocia, caught them by surprise with his fiery faith, his simplicity and humility, his love, and especially with his ascetical and mystical ways. He reminded them of other epochs, such as one reads about only in the lives of the saints. Father Basil continued to live as he had been accustomed to when he was around Mishael with prayers and vigils. He struggled against his passions and cultivated the virtues with exceeding ardor. He lived the essence of orthodoxy. Quote, he suffered things divine, and he endeavored to transplant into his own life the experiences of the Holy Fathers. And this suffering things divine transfigured him. It sanctified and illumined him and inundated him with love for his brothers, whom he saw running to him like sheep without a shepherd. So it was that he began to preach evening sermons, to which many people went to hear him. His words were simple, to the point, and apophatic. They had immediacy, directness, and a great impact on his listeners, because they came from a heart ablaze with love for God and neighbor, and chiefly because they sprang from spiritual experience itself. He made no attempt to enrich his speech with rhetorical formulas or insipid and sensuous generalities. He spoke of our Christ and of compunctionate prayer, of tears and humility. He spoke of his elder, Mishael, and Father John, and he would narrate to them all the spiritual experiences which he lived when he was close to them. And the faithful people listened to him with riveted attention. They understood that this cleric was not like the many. For besides his sermons, he provided them with every other assistance possible, both spiritual and material. His cell at Constantinople was without whitewash and full of cracks. He covered the cracks with cardboard, but the wind entered unhindered and in the winter the cold would pierce him through. But he was totally indifferent to himself. His entire concern and care revolved around others. At Katikoyai in Chalcedon, he was able by his exertions to erect a five-story building which served as a school. At Constantinople, especially at the churches of St. George and St. Spiridon, and at Halki, he often held vigils. Many people would attend, usually more than 300. It would be useful here to mention a few incidences which have reached us, either from things alluded to by the elder himself, or from narrations of eyewitnesses and those who heard them themselves, who came to Greece after the catastrophe of Asia Minor in 1922. These incidents bear witness to the great love that he had had for God, which guided him to the love for neighbor, as well as to the integrity of his Christian character and his total dedication. One of the faithful, a follower of Father Basil's had his own store in Constantinople. He was a good family man and a faithful Christian. One day his store caught fire and the damage was extensive. 
It was appraised at some 600 Turkish banknotes. Crushed with despair, he wept and rained blows upon himself because he had lost his whole livelihood and could not feed his children. Father Basil, finding him in such a state, comforted him as well as he could and asked him to follow him. They went to his cell, and there Father Basil said to him, Take that knapsack hanging on the wall. It has money in it. Take it and be on your way. How much money does it contain, Father? I don't know. I don't ever count it. However much it is, take it. It's all yours. The poor store owner was beside himself. Such behavior, such kindness, he had never encountered before in his life. Not only not to know how much money he had, but also to give it all to him so generously. He took the money and left doubly gratified, above all because he had verified that there existed people who, above money and other material values, lived in a way consistent with their calling. But his astonishment was even greater when he got home and discovered that the money which Father Basil had given him was exactly 600 banknotes. He could not contain himself and dissolved in tears. From then on, he became one of his most devoted disciples. Once Father Basil had informed that his brother-in-law, J. Panagiotolopoulos, who had a grocery store in Calvary, used to open his store on Sunday. He was very grieved by this and sent him a letter filled with humility and love. Among other things, he wrote to him, quote, My much beloved brother-in-law, how many weeks does the year have? Fifty-two. Fifty-two Sundays in the year. How much money do you make? I ask you kindly to write me, and I will send you double what you make. Only do not open your store on Sundays, and God will give you every good thing. Sunday belongs to God. It is the Lord's day. And we ought to go to church, to pray and beseech the mercy of God, this with much love. End of quote. The elder's brother-in-law was so moved by this letter that he never opened his store on the Lord's Day again. The elder lived God intensely and completely. He did not wish that anything in the world should disrupt this love and devotion of his for God, neither his love for parents and relatives nor any other power. Once a young man visited him, who was intensely preoccupied with certain problems to the point of being dejected. As soon as the elder saw him, he asked him, Do you have a father? Yes, elder. Do you have a mother? Yes. Your attitude indicates that you have neither father nor mother. I have my Christ as father and our Panagia as my mother. Whatever ails me, I entrust to them and I find peace in myself. On another occasion, the elder was visited by a certain monk from the Holy Mountain. When Mother Euphraxia, who served the elder in his later years, saw him, she asked him if he knew her brother, Father Arsenios. The monk answered in the affirmative. The elders rejoiced exceedingly with childlike joy, and she ran to the elder and enthusiastically said to him, Elder, this monk here, he knows Father Arsenios. The elder pretended that he hadn't heard her, and the eldress repeated her words. Then the elder answered, Well, what of it? See how she rejoiced when she heard about her brother? 
Here we hear about Christ, and we aren't moved at all. And as soon as we hear about our brother, we leap for joy. I rejoice only when I hear about Christ and our Panagia. Them do I have as father and mother and brethren. On other occasions, because he saw our personal attachment to him, he asked us, When you pray, do I ever come into your mind? If the answer was, yes, Yeranda, he would continue, I am your greatest enemy. If between you and Christ some other person comes in between, whosoever it might be, you must reject him immediately. For he captivates your mind, which should undistractedly be given to God. Whereas he loved all people, his love for God was so great that he did not want anyone or anything to disturb it. During his stay in Constantinople, for example, his mother he sent, sent him a few letters. Father Basil loved his mother exceedingly, and he was afraid lest if he read them, his love for her might be rekindled at the expense of his love for God. Therefore, whenever he received a letter from her, he would straightway tear it up without reading it. He would only write a few words to her to inform her that he was well and not to worry. Surely his heart would bleed at this practice of his, but it shows us the magnitude of his self-denial and his spiritual grandeur. No saint of our church ever ascended to heaven with ease. The life of the saints was full of adversities and trials, which God himself often allows, either to train them in patience or to give them occasion to increase yet more in sanctity. The elder's life was also full of hardships and trials. As he pursued his spiritual struggles and his work in Constantinople, his left hand, which had been wounded in Calvary on the eve of the Feast of the Holy Unmercenaries, began to bother him. Doctors said that he had osteomyelitis and advised him to be hospitalized immediately. Father Basil, with the help of faithful men, entered a hospital and had all the necessary examinations. His condition was not good at all. The malady was treacherous, and if his hand were not amputated, it would spread to all his body. The doctors informed him of their decision and had even appointed the day when the operation would take place. The persevering Father Basil, who was entirely submissive to the will of God, accepted it with patience and trust and divine providence. Quote, if the Lord suffers it, then let them cut off my hand, he said. He knows best. May his will be done. Better with one hand in paradise than with two in hell. He prayed without ceasing to the All-Holy Virgin and the Holy Unmercenaries to intervene miraculously so that he would not lose his hand, but that if, he were, if it were not in the plan of God that it be saved, they give him patience and fortitude. And his prayer was heard on the eve of the day when the amputation was to take place. He was visited by the brother of a monk of the holy mountain. He knew certain folk medicines, and with these he healed various illnesses. He heard of Father Basil and the danger besetting him, and he made haste to visit him and encourage him not to consent to have his hand cut off, but to leave the hospital, and he would heal him. Father Basil considered this visit to be a visitation of God, who hearkened unto his prayer. He left the hospital, and verily after a few months of treatment, his hand became well. 
He thanked God for the benefaction he had received and warmly entreated his benefactor to teach him how to prepare the medicine so that he in turn also would be able to heal others. But the man did not wish to reveal to him quote, how to fix the herbal medicine because, as he said, he had a son who was a doctor. Many years later, the elder on one of his visits to the holy mountain became acquainted with the monk who was the brother of this practical physician and also knew the secret of medicine. That monk showed him how to prepare it, and the elder for the rest of his life, and especially during the period that he served as chaplain of the hospital of Egina, healed without payment very many of the sick. After he had spent some years serving as a deacon at the Patriarchate, Patriarch Yermanos V, who had succeeded Joachim III in 1913, Appreciating his work and the influence it had among the people, one day called him and announced to him that he was thinking of ordaining him to the priesthood. I'm going to ordain you a priest, he said, and will assign you to a church where you will have a sizable income since many memorial services are held there. Father Basil had a very great reverence for the priesthood. Having as guide such priests as Father John of his homeland, he never thought of becoming a priest just to satisfy some inner inclination of his own, far less when the priesthood was offered to him as an occasion to make money. He had espoused voluntary poverty since his youth, and such a prospect not only did not attract him, but even repulsed him. The greatest sin of the priests, he was wont to say, is the love of money. For this reason, just at hearing the patriarch's words, he spontaneously and resolutely answered in the negative to his proposal. The patriarch was annoyed with this negative answer, for he did not expect it and countered it. Quote, but why do you not accept it? I don't want to consider the church a house of commerce. Then I will not assign you anywhere. It doesn't matter. I don't want money. And so it was. He remained a little while without assignment. Then the patriarch placed him in the church of St. George of the Seven Hills and later in the church of St. George on the island of Halki. Wherever he went, he created yet another new spiritual hearth. Himself living the mystical experience of orthodoxy, he endeavored to pass on to the Christians the apostolic and patristic tradition of noetic prayer. He always recommended the study of patristic books because thereby the patristic mind and phronema is conveyed to our own times. And this was the goal sought after by Father Basil, that we all might acquire the mind of the fathers. He was himself, according to the characterization of many, a contemporary father, another Abba Isaac. Little by little, without his seeking it, his fame spread. Everyone spoke of this new deacon, who, although living in Constantinople, lived ascetically, made a great impression with his prayer and resounding words and brought help to many. Once he was visited in a humble cell, in his humble cell by a Turk. He was sent, he said, by his master, who was a judge, to invite him to his house. Father Basil became a little alarmed. He was not used to invitations for the sake of social visits and the possibility of some unpleasantness. Bringing with it some new trial crossed his mind. But he said his prayers and went with the Turkish servant. When they reached the house of the Turkish 
judge. He was received by him in person and even with much warmth. They sat in the parlor and the caddy and began the conversation. Effendi papa, I am a Turk, Muslim. But from the wages I receive, I keep what is necessary for my family and the rest I spend on alms. I help widows, orphans, and paupers. I give dowries to poor girls for their marriage. I help the sick. I keep the fast strictly. I pray, and generally speaking, I try to be just. I do not show partiality to anyone, no matter how high a position he has. What do you say? All these things that I do, are they not enough for me to gain the paradise that you Christians speak of? Father Basil was impressed by all that the Turkish judge told him. And the centurion Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, immediately came to mind. He discerned between them a similarity and way of life. He understood that before him was a just and well-intentioned man and that perhaps his mission was similar to that of the apostle Peter to the centurion. So he decided to give witness to his faith. Tell me, Effendi, do you have children? Yes, I do. Do you have servants? Yes, I have servants. Who fulfills your commandments better, your children or your servants? Certainly it's my servants, because my children, with the boldness that they have, are often disobedient and do whatever they want, whereas my servants always do what I tell them. Tell me, Effendi, when you die, who will be your heirs, your servants who faithfully do your wishes or your children who disobey you? Why, my children, of course. Only they have inheritance rights, not my servants. Well then, Effendi, all the things you do are good, but the only thing they are able to do is to number you in the category of good servants. But if you wish to inherit paradise, the kingdom of the heavens, you have to become a son. And this can only be done through holy baptism. The Turkish caddy was impressed with the illustration that Father Basil related to him. They talked some more, and in the end he asked him to catechize and baptize him. And after a little while, the Turkish judge was baptized and became an Orthodox Christian. During his stay in Constantinople, Father Basil underwent many trials. Summing it all up, he would tell us, Often while in Constantinople, I suffered deprivations. Sometimes I didn't even have bread to eat. Often I slept out of doors covered with lice. But glory be to God, I endured it all. The only thing I besought of God was to gain my Christ. Once, after an accusation by his old enemies back home that he had not done his military service, he was called by the Turkish authorities to serve in the army. Suddenly, the young deacon found himself in a military camp in the midst of many other young men. His soul was afflicted exceedingly. It did not bother him so much that he would have to serve his time in the military. He could serve God wherever he was found. But he did not wish by any means to take off his rasso. He had a very great reverence for the rasso, the garment of repentance and did not want under any circumstance to take it off even temporarily. But he did not despair. The deep faith he had made him turn his gaze toward him who is all-powerful and toward his all-holy mother, our Panagia, the quick help of all who call upon her. 
He prayed with hot tears and besought them to come to his aid and help him in this plight that was so exceedingly difficult for him. And God did not tarry to show his wondrous intervention. After he had passed the first night praying on the top floor of a five-story structure, where he had been assigned to stay before being dressed as a soldier. In the morning, he came down and walked about in the compound. He endeavored to compose his thoughts and was thinking what he could do to avoid taking off his rasso. Suddenly, one of the guards who saw him walking about amongst the other newly enlisted called him and sternly said to him, Hey, priest, what do you want in here? Get out of here quickly before I get into trouble. Father Basil heard this voice as the voice of an angel. He was quick to understand the intervention of divine providence, and he left the camp. He could not hold back the tears of compunction and thanksgiving that filled his eyes. Straightway he went to his parish and then on to the patriarchate for protection. With tears he implored the patriarch to intervene in any way he could, so that he would not have to take off his rasso. The patriarch made a personal appear to the sultan, and was successful in obtaining a decree which exempted all hero deacons from the compulsory draft. In this way, Father Basil was able to keep his clerical garb and continue to serve as a deacon in his parish. A little while later, Father Basil visited the patriarch and said to him, Your All Holiness, I wish to leave and go to Greece. I fear that here the Turks will take off Arasa. Are you being funny? answered the patriarch. It's impossible that such a thing could happen. Yet his words are shown to be prophetic. Some years later, a bishop of the jurisdiction of the patriarchate visited the elder dressed in secular attire. He asked insistently to learn from what source he had derived the information that the Turks would legislate the abolition of the rasa. At the time they had been impressed at the patriarch Kate and how he had been so fully informed, they didn't grasp that the information he received did not have its origin from any secular source. It was the prelude of a gift which God later so richly lavished upon him, as the reward of a life full of sacrifices and love for him. At the parish of St. George, where Father Basil served, he was once visited by the nun Euphraxia, whom, as we have said, he met in Jerusalem at the monastery of the venerable forerunner. She was accompanied by her brother, the monk Anastasios, the future elder Arsenios, the cave dweller. From Jerusalem, the two siblings went to their homeland, Pontus, and from there to Constantinople. When they learned that Father Basil was there, they rejoiced greatly and went to meet him. They wished to go to Greece, to enter some monastery there, because they feared that in Turkey the conditions would not remain normal. Father Basil helped Father Anastasios to obtain leave from the Turkish rulers to go to Greece, after which he went immediately to the Holy Mountain, where he lived till deep old age under obedience to St. Joseph the Hesychist and Cave Dweller. He reposed with the name Arsenios in the door in the odor of sanctity at the age of 98. As for the nun Euphraxia, because he was not familiar with any convents in Greece, he entrusted her to his widowed aunt Despina, a very spiritual person and a worker of compunction of prayer, who aspired to build a convent. 
the nun Euphraxia, lived with her and under her protection for six years until she was forced to abandon Constantinople. Chapter 7, Greece We are now found in the year 1922, a landmark year for the Greek presence in Asia Minor. Father Basil had already completed 10 years from 1912 to 1922 in Constantinople, a decade filled with struggles and trials which were not, however, to have their end there. The devastation of Asia Minor came for its Greek inhabitants like a lightning bolt in an atmosphere that was already less than pleasant. Footnote. The victory of the Turkish nationalist forces over the Greek army in August of 1922 caused a general panic among the Christians of Asia Minor that brought an estimated 150,000 refugees to the port city of Smyrna. After Smyrna also was taken by the Turks on September 9th, it was set on fire, thronged, though it was with such multitudes and became, in the words of a Western observer, a titanic blast furnace. At the time, some considered it an atrocity without precedence in human history. In the wake of the destruction, the Treaty of Lausanne of 1923 provided for the exchange of populations. The Christians of Turkey were to be transplanted to Greece, and the Muslims of Greece to Turkey. The exchange began after the Treaty of Lausanne was ratified in July of 1923, but it was not until 1924 that the Orthodox Christians of Cappadocia began their exodus. The genocidal massacre of the Armenians had already taken place some years before. To continue, in the upheaval that followed, Father Basil sought to leave Constantinople and to go to Greece. His thinking was that in Greece, the sweet fatherland, he would be able to work out his salvation with greater ease and under more favorable conditions. There he would at last find holy elders and experienced spiritual fathers. He would not be under the persecution of the tyrant. Perhaps the feeling he had, was it just a feeling, that the Turks would force them to take off the rasa also confirmed his decision to leave Constantinople. The Turkish judge whom Father Basil had made a Christian implored him to remain in Constantinople and he would undertake to protect and provide for him. He had him as his spiritual guide and did not wish to lose him. The patriarch also had a special liking for him and wished to keep him in Constantinople, promising every solicitude on his part. But Father Basil did not accept. For him, this was an opportunity to distance himself entirely from his relatives and acquaintances, to become, quote, a stranger to the world, and to live dedicated entirely to God. Thus, in September of 1922, having received his passport, dated September 16, 1922, from the Greek consul of Constantinople, he departed for Greece. For the length of the journey, according to his beloved habit, he prayed continually. He felt that he had thrown himself into the abyss of the mercy of God, and he entreated him to guide his steps in the path of salvation. At last he reached Athens. Here he met his compatriot, Constantine Basilides, who loved him exceedingly. He assisted him as well as he could and introduced him to a certain priest monk, Chrysanthus, who served in the church of St. Basil at Callipolis in Piraeus, 
Father Chrysanthos was a spiritual man. Father Basil found in him a friend and besought him to try to find a holy monastery for him to dwell in. Father Chrysanthos finally sent him to the monastery of the enclosed in Philae of Attica. Father Basil left with longing to go to pray and dwell in the monastery. His quiet and desert-loving soul with his experiences of the hesychists of Anatolia sought like a thirsty deer for some desert place and real ascetics to whom to entrust his spiritual guidance, that he might partake of their experience as tried ascetics. Being by nature a quiet and introspective soul, he desired complete quietude in order to give himself over to compunctionate prayer and the vision of God. As he approached the monastery, he met two elderly monks outside. Father Basil bowed humbly and, transported on high as he was by divine, his divine thoughts, he greeted them with the usual monastic greeting. Bless, Holy Fathers. Welcome. From whence do you come to us? From Athens. They sent me to your righteousness so that I might find my salvation. Have you brought a newspaper from the capital? What would you do with it, Holy Fathers? Newspapers don't contain anything but worldly affairs. We have left the world. Shall we get involved with worldly affairs again? It is to help us pass the time, blessed one. How will the day roll on if we don't have a newspaper to read? This dialogue threw Father Basil into various cogitations. His own mind went about in other realms, heavenly ones. He could not understand how it was possible that men who had left the world could think in such a worldly way, how their mind could be attached to things and affairs that they had not only renounced and abandoned, but had even promised with an oath that they would preserve themselves far away from them. Accustomed as he was to see men consecrated to God like incarnate angels, he refused to make compromise with the present reality. That very night he decided to leave in order to safeguard his soul from every contamination and worldly thought and to preserve his mind pure, given up only to God and to prayer. Early in the morning on the next day, he thanked the fathers for their hospitality and departed. This experience filled him with anxiety. Conditions in Greece were far different from what he had expected to find, and now he was troubled, wondering where there might be a place suitable to struggle for his salvation. With his deep faith and trust in the providence of God, he prayed continually that God would reveal to him his will. He had it as a custom before every work and every decision to pray earnestly to God and the All-Holy Virgin, and it was there that he committed his every hope. He never trusted in himself. He never did anything that was dictated by his own personal volition or some passionate desire. He possessed absolute trust, united with absolute obedience in the will of God. Chapter 8, Egina Thanks to the efforts of Father Chrysanthos, Father Basil was appointed shortly as a deacon to the cathedral of Egina. In the beginning, this was pleasing to him at the first opportunity. He took the ferry boat to that beautiful island in the Saronic Gulf. When he arrived, even before he appeared at the church, he made the acquaintance of Archimandrite Pantalaemon Faustinis, afterwards Metropolitan of Caritia and later of Chios, 
who at the time was serving in Egina as a sacred preacher, and had initiated praiseworthy spiritual and philanthropic activities. The two men talked at length on spiritual matters. They esteemed each other and were joined in mutual friendship. When Father Basil visited the Metropolitan Cathedral to meet the clergy and inform them of his appointment, his soul was not at peace. Perhaps a certain coldness or indifference with which they received him contributed to this, and suddenly he decided not to remain there. When they called on him to give his signature that he undertook his responsibilities, he answered, I don't know letters. Don't you know how to sign your name? I don't even know A from B. Then how did you make you, how did they make you a clergyman since you don't know letters? Even they who ordained me repented of it. Later he met Archimandrite Pentalaman again and explained to him what had happened. The latter entreated him to remain on Egina, since he perceived Father Basil's spiritual depth and his virtues, and that in his person he would find a worthy assistant in his work. When he met with his personal persistent refusal, he suggested that he visit the monastery of the Golden Lion, Chrysio Leontisa, and he, if he found some rest of soul there, he would himself obtain the necessary permission for him. He spoke to him about the patron saints of Egina, St. Dionysios of Zacthinos, and the newly appeared St. Nectarios, the sanctified bishop who had reposed only two years before. At that time, the memories of St. Nectarios were still quite fresh on Egina. The inhabitants of Egina always already believed in him as a saint. They prepared holy icons of him. They prayed to him to intercede for them before God and to protect their island on which he had built his convent. Father Basil heard all this, and he both marveled at and loved the saint, and his heart was kindled. So he contemplated following the advice of our commandrite Pentalaemon. Before he went to the monastery of the Golden Lion, he passed by the convent of the Holy Trinity. While there, he prayed at the saint's grave and entreated him warmly with tears to help him and to reveal him what the will of God might be. Later, he would say this to us regarding similar circumstances, quote, If you have to make a decision about something, either be obedient to your spiritual father, if the situation warrants it, or else make fervent supplication and then observe where your thoughts find rest and do that, end quote. The same he also practiced himself. He prayed fervently and departed for the monastery of the Golden Lion. But he did not find rest there and did not long remain. His God-loving and desert-loving soul sought the desert to give full rein to his loving disposition for God and to fly with the light wings of faith and prayer to the heights of divine ascents and vision. He could not reconcile himself to the many cares and frictions over properties which during that period devoured and squandered the monk's time. His soul desired the heavenly. His mind longed to be unbound by any earthly desire or pursuit in order to be able to rise up undistracted to the throne of God and there to take delight in prayer. His main care till the end of his life was not to bind his mind, not only to the things of the world, but in general to anything that was not necessary for his salvation. 
This brought him later, after he had occupied himself with the buildings of churches, to make that unsettling statement, which, no matter how much of an exaggeration it might appear to be, reflects his stand on these matters. Quote, Take care of your noose. Don't bind it to anything. I myself have repented even of those churches that I built. Why should I have bound my noose with so many cares and hindered it from prayer? It is evident that a soul with such heavenly thoughts and divine quests, which seeks perfection with all the will and strength that is in her, is not easily satisfied with whatever surroundings she might happen to find. Thus, Father Basil, having thanked the monks for their hospitality all the days that he stayed in the monastery, took his leave. In the city of Egina, he again met with Archimandre Pendelaman, who made superhuman efforts to convince him to remain on the island. Father Basil's soul had already begun to find rest on this island. He highly revered its patron saints. He liked the place because it lent itself to quiet and was dotted with picturesque country chapels. He also esteemed its inhabitants, who appeared to him to be simple and pious people. He had thought that later he would be able to build a hermitage in some isolated place where he would be able to be alone with God alone, to give himself over to ascetical struggles, and so he accepted to remain as a deacon at the Metropolitan Church. Toward the end of 1922 began his diaconate in Egina. He served at the Metropolitan Church where oftentimes he chanted and preached. At the same time, he pursued philanthropic work with Archimandrite Pentelaman. They both strove as much as they could to alleviate for the inhabitants the pain of their ailments and their poverty, and there were many things they were able to do. The times were difficult, poverty was great, the means were few, and the illnesses were many and often incurable. For this reason, they were accepted by the inhabitants who considered them their own as their defenders and patrons, and this they had shown in very deed and many times with great self-sacrifice. In those years, the most grievous disease people had to confront was tuberculosis. Not only was it incurable and led to certain death, but what they feared even more was that it was highly contagious. Fear and trembling would seize the family when they discovered that one of their relatives had been assailed by this disease, the curse of that epoch. They would be forced to send him away from home, and that unfortunate man had to live isolated far away. They would scarcely even come near him to leave him a plate of food, then depart as though chased off. And when he finally died alone and with no one to help him, they even avoided burying him. Once one such sufferer from tuberculosis died in a rowboat at Egina. Fear, panic seized the people. On the one hand, they feared to fetch him in order to bury him, and on the other, they were troubled by the danger they risked from an unburied corpse. Not even his relatives would come to a decision and dared not approach. As soon as Father Basil heard about it, he went immediately to see Father Pendelaman. They discussed the matter and decided to go together and fetch the dead man and bury him. The citizens of Egina watched in astonishment and disbelief as the two clergymen, disregarding the danger, dared to do that which the dead man's relatives would not do. This self-sacrifice of theirs raised them even higher in their estimation. This event made plain 
to the two clergymen the urgent necessity of giving their help so that the newly instituted hospital of Egina might be equipped the soonest possible to serve the islanders' needs in the best possible manner. To this end, they turned their attention and their efforts as soon and soon the condition of the hospital improved significantly. In the meanwhile, another refugee arrived in Egina, Father Basil's sister, Barbara, who was now a widow together with her two young children. When she came to Greece and learned that Father Basil was in Egina, she decided to go be with him. Father Basil assisted her as much as he could. Thus, to his other cares, he added the protection of his family's sister. And his solicitude was not confined to securing material goods only, finding work, and so forth, but extended to their spiritual cultivation also. He was, moreover, so humble, so meek and sweet, of such integrity and attentiveness as a person that simply his presence instructed. The hardships of being a refugee, his continuous agonies and struggles, had a grievous effect on Father Basil. He slowly began to feel exhausted, that his strength was abandoning him, and finally he was forced to take to bed. They put him in a single room in the hospital, fearing lest he was stricken with tuberculosis. Many argued that he had contracted the illness when he went and buried the man who died of the disease. In the end, with the help of God and the care of the doctors, his health was fully restored. In the course of the hospitalization, he was not content only to receive the doctor's attentions. He himself visited the other patients, comforted them, and tried to raise their morale. His patience and fortitude, his kindly demeanor, and the purity of his life impressed the other patients. The result of his endeavors were so marvelous that when the time came for him to leave the hospital, both the directors and the personnel besought him to stay on as the father confessor. Father Basil, who had forged a bond with human suffering and greatly loved the infirm, answered, quote, If you give me the room in which I was a patient to make it into a church, I accept. The room we grant you, but we have no money to give you. I don't want money, not a dime. My, by myself, with the help of God, I will fix it up. Thus, Father Basil began the work of raising up the church, which he dedicated to St. Dionysios, Archbishop of Aegina. In the beginning, he built a small church. He afterwards enlarged and renovated it four or five times until it reached its present final form. For the building and successive renovations of the church, Father Basil exerted tremendous efforts. He was himself an example of untiring labor and industry. He took part in all the manual work. As those who knew him in the old days would relate, whatever he undertook to make with his hands, he did imp impeccably. He worked as a carpenter, as a brick mason, as a craftsman. He was also greatly helped by pious women who, seeing the righteousness of his life and his freedom from avarice, assisted him and gave him all that was needed for the building of the church. Even as of old, with St. Cosmas of Etolia, so also with Father Basil, many besought him to receive their offerings for the building of the church. Parallel with the building of the church, Father Basil did not neglect the work of the comforting and spiritual formation of the sick. This he considered his primary work. Every day he visited them like a loving father. He asked them how they were doing, 
and gave them courage. He let his soul, which was rich in love, overflow and encompass them all with its sweet warmth. Like a good instructor, he first bestowed his bountiful love and kindness. Then he endeavored after that to transmit to them his fervent and steadfast faith by which they were able to acquire patience, which was so necessary if they were to suffer their sickness without murmuring. His entrance in the wards of the sick, with his sweet, tranquil, and imposing presence, was a pleasant change, a bedewing of the Holy Spirit that warmed their tormented soul and raised their morale. With the comforting words that flowed so bountifully, easily, and freely from his mouth, they ceased seeing their sickness as a trial and looked upon it as a gift of God or as something allowed by his grace for their spiritual cultivation. All of them blessed the hour and the moment that they came to know this earthly angel who had the power to lift them up to spiritual heights, formerly unknown to them, who was able to change even their most bitter trial into a blessing of God. Alongside the consolation and spiritual edification he offered them, he never tired of tending to their physical healing also. The rich and unsparing love he bore for all moved him to occupy himself with the alleviation of bodily pain. The relevant experience he had in healing injuries, wounds, and so on, acquired from the things he had undergone himself, helped him in applying himself to the healing of the ailing with success and efficacy. That which particularly characterized him in all his endeavors was his real, guileless, and unselfish love for God and his fellow man. He never allowed a thought of pride, self-projection, or ostentation to prevail in his soul. He performed the work of love because it had to be done, because he loved God and man, and not to win fleeting praise or to gain some transitory glory of dubious worth. For this reason, he never cared that his name be heard of in the accomplishment of a work of love, but only that the work be done. He knew well the destructive power that praises and glory harbor for the soul, and so avoided them with a passion. He strove to remain in obscurity, looking for recompense only from Christ, the bestower of rewards, which is richer and more abiding. The following incident makes manifest his great humility and avoidance of human praise. At the hospital, he had once substantially contributed by word and deed to the complete recovery and cure of an ailing villager. On the day when this villager was released from the hospital, he sought to find Father Basil to thank him, but he could not. But one day he met him in Egina and ran to meet him, to express to him with emotion his thanksgiving. Father Basil remained unperturbed and said to him, Concerning what matter are you speaking to me, I don't understand. But... Are you not the priest who healed me in the hospital? No, my boy, you're mistaken. The man was confused. Could there be such a resemblance? Then curiosity began to torment him. Why was this priest trying to hide from him? Why? Others seek by all means to appear as benefactors, and here he is running away from it. He lost no time. He quickly went to the hospital and waited until he saw Father Basil cross the threshold with priestly dignity. Why, Father, did you hide from me when I met you down in Egina? He burst out plaintively. I? Oh, you must be mistaken. You must have seen someone else. The villager's dismay was succeeded by admiration. The priest, he reasoned in himself, is a different manner of man. He isn't like ordinary people. And he returned to his village 
doubly benefited. His humility and pursuit of obscurity was not confined to the avoidance of praises. Many times he went to the point of even assuming the responsibility for actions and damages done by others in order to restore love and peace. On not a few occasions he presented himself before the authorities of the hospital and said that he was at fault for this or that damage, either at the request of the guilty party or without his knowing in order to forestall the coming reproach or the imposition of some sanction. On account of the general esteem that he enjoyed, they did not want to grieve him, nor did they seek who was guilty, and the matter stopped there without any further seeking of punishment. Although by day the hours were taken up with the work of building or adorning the church or with the sick, by night he gave himself over to his beloved prayer to send up his deep sighs as fragrant incense before the throne of God and to pour forth abundant tears. Being a soul especially sensitive and given to quiet, he found rest only in prayer through which he was raised up into the celestial realms. He touched the throne of God and there forgot himself in the sweetness of his presence. He had the rare gift of coming to compunction and weeping very easily. He never prayed without weeping. With the first, through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, he said to begin Vespers or any other service, a breaking in his voice was noticeable, which betrayed sobbing, and tears would be rolling down his ascetical face. Thus, while on his knees praying for himself, his patients, his spiritual children, and the whole world, sleep would overtake him for a little. Then he got up again and began the same struggles. Chapter 9. A Priest Called by God In the meantime, Archimandrite Pantolemon Faustinis was elected Metropolitan of Caritia, but he never forgot Egina and especially Father Basil, whom he had a particularly esteem and love. He often invited him to his metropolis, and together they made various visits of spiritual ministry. The better he got to know him, the more his esteem for him increased. One day he said to him, I think you should become a priest. The faithful have need of shepherds. Reflect on the responsibility you have before God for these people who have come to you. If those who have understanding don't become priests, then who will? Father Basil did not want to take up such a burden. He had a very deep understanding of the mystery of the priesthood, and as he later told us, he desired to remain a deacon till his death. He felt himself to be very sinful and could not imagine it possible that he, with his sinful hands, should touch the Lord of glory. So it was that he avoided the matter and answered the metro Metropolitan politely but firmly that he did not desire to become a priest. But during one of his visits to the Metropolitan of Caritia, while they were liturgizing on August 29, 1923, the Metropolitan was prepared to ordain him priest, and he announced it to Father Basil during the Divine Liturgy. But, Your Eminence, no buts, you are going to show obedience. Father Basil was caught by surprise. He was not expecting this. Humble as he was, he did not want to resist and disobey the bishop. He presumably thought that since things came about in this manner, it was the will of God, and he obeyed. 
He came before the beautiful gate, with his lips and all of his members trembling with emotion. Quote, Divine grace, which always healeth that which is infirm, and completeth that which is wanting, elevateth through the laying on of hands Basil, the most devout deacon, to the priesthood. Receive this which is entrusted unto thee, and guard it until the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, when he shall ask of, it, of thee. Of quote. Words and prayers that engrave themselves deeply in his soul and strengthen even more the feeling of responsibility which he felt so heavenly within himself. Heavily, the divine liturgy ended with the Metropolitan bestowing on him the office of Archimandrite and advancing him to Father Confessor in order to hear the Holy Confessions. Footnote, in the Greek church, ordination to the priesthood does not of itself confer the right to hear confessions. It is through a special prayer read by the bishop with the laying on of hands that a priest becomes a spiritual father confessor with the blessing to hear confessions. To continue, the greatness of the gift and the grace of the priesthood made Father Basil, now a priest, send up supplications, entreaties, and thanksgiving to God for having deemed him worthy to receive this great office. Before he departed from the metropolis of Caritia, the Metropolitan gave him the following, quote, directive. Protocol number 638-510, Kimi, August 29, 1923. The Metropolitan of Caritia to the all-righteous Archimandrite Basil Apostolides. Our mediocrity entrusts to you the most pious priest monk, the Ministry of Spiritual Paternity. Wherefore, you are obliged to receive the thoughts and actions and various passions of all that come to confession to you and to provide for their repentance and salvation according to each one's strength and their differing sins. For you shall bind what needs to be bound and shall loose what needs to be loosed as the fellow worker and servant of the spiritual and apostolic grace given you of God unto the salvation of men's souls. As for those who are brought to the dignity of the priesthood, you are obliged to examine everything about them exactly, as the apostolic and canonical injunction requires, lest you err through indolence or by some sudden mishap, and thus partake of other men's sins, as the divine apostle says. For this reason, the present directive letter written by my mediocrity is given to you for all surety. Signed, the Metropolitan of Caritia Pantalemon. Father Basil returned to Agina, a priest. Shortly thereafter, by request of the administration of the hospital, he undertook the duties of rector of the Church of St. Dionysios, which he had built himself. But the great responsibility of the priesthood weighed on him heavily. I was a deacon for eleven years, he told us. I never desired to become a priest. They made me one by force. He considered the work of being a father confessor, with its responsibility of hearing confessions both very heavy and dangerous spiritually. He often said, quote, Many become father confessors without having the corresponding experience, without themselves having applied, they teach and guide others. This is dangerous. When they made me a father confessor, they gave me a book to read entitled 
Confessor's Handbook. There I learned of sins that I never imagined existed. After reading a few pages, I closed it and gave it to an elderly priest. Take it, I told him. I don't need it. I don't want to hear confessions. End of quote. In Egina, there had already gathered around him a number of pious women who were guided by and obedient to this ascetic, who was at once both otherworldly and filled with love for mankind, who came from the sanctified earth of Anatolia and brought to their land a spirituality hitherto unknown. As many as were able to enjoy, enjoy him serving the liturgy, recount the majesty, the compunction, and the heavenly atmosphere that reigned in church during the divine liturgy. For Father Basil, the divine liturgy was not a formality, some obligation for the servicing of the faithful, but divine exaltation and participation. In it, he lived in succession all the phases of the Lord's appearing upon the earth, the progression to Golgotha, and the very awesome and man-saving sacrifice which finds its crowning in the divine changing of the holy elements. At this point, Father Basil would stop for a long time and was unable to hold back his tears, remembering that blessed priest, Father John, whom he had known in Calvary. How is it possible, he would later say, that God, who is beyond touch and has no need, condescends to be touched by hands that are sinful and mortal? And he would dissolve in tears. The presence of God and the angels was manifest to Father Basil. He felt this presence close to him, next to him, and he trembled with divine fear and emotion. He was so certain of this presence of the bodiless hosts and so accustomed to it that he once told a certain visiting clergyman as something completely natural and matter-of-fact, quote, if you don't see your angel next to you at the holy altar, don't liturgize. I fear the divine things greatly. I tremble, end quote. A great crowd began to gather at the hospital church. The people left the other churches and came to attend the divine liturgy where the elders served. Drawn by his humble presence, his comely and modest voice, and especially his great piety which he was able to impart to others. It was also his habit to preach. His words were like sayings, concise and clear. They touched the hearts of all. The administration of the hospital which followed all this activity of the chaplain thought it worthwhile to propose to him a 15-year contract of service. The people saw how useful and profitable this priest was to them, and they wanted to bind him to themselves. They feared that he might suddenly leave for the holy mountain, as in fact he had on occasion expressed the thought and desire to do, or that he might found some monastery and forsake them. For this reason, the administrative council called an extraordinary meeting and made the following decision. Quote, the administrative council of the hospital of Egina St. Dionysios being called by its president to an extraordinary meeting comprising the members listed below and according to Article 5 of the Constitution, taking into account the president's proposal that he who is serving as the priest of the church of the hospital Archimandrite Basil Apostolides, being the chief founder of the church and having offered out of his own material means much for the building of the church, and not only this, 
but having gathered even more funds from various pious Christians, on account of his virtuous life and the faithful performance of his duties, is the cause of the flocking together of many people into the church, from which the hospital profits, and caring for the interests of the hospital, judges it necessary that the said priest be legally bound by an agreement and thus remain in the hospital in the future. Resolved. To give to the President Tassia E. Bitra the authority and right to proceed to draw up a signed contract either by a public notary or in private agreement with Archimandrite Basil Apostolis by which he will be obliged to serve as the priest of the hospital as he is serving presently for 15 years. The hospital undertakes the obligation to provide for him domicile, food, and a monthly stipend of 400 drachmas. This contract may be drawn up for the duration of one year with the clause that Archimandrite Basil Apostolides has the option to serve notice within one month after the signing thereof that he wishes the extension of the agreement for the duration of 15 years, whereupon the one-year agreement automatically becomes binding for 15 years for both parties by obligation, for which cause the present document is drawn up and legally signed being deposited in the original in the notary's office in Egina, signed the president and the members. Father Basil's tenure as priest at the church of the hospital of Egina lasted much less than what the administrative council wished and expected. After his ordination, he served the liturgy for 40 days continually. These days, Father Basil lived in a state of divine ecstasy and exaltation, something between heaven and earth. Neither he nor those who lived with him were ever able to forget these heavenly experiences. Together with the priest of the Most High were also lifted up to celestial heights all who attended and observed him in these divine ascents. These experiences increased his fear of God even more, which he so intensely felt within him. And the more his soul was lifted to the heavens and approached the throne of the divine majesty, the more he felt himself unworthy to minister the immaculate mysteries and to touch the king of glory. Participation in the divine gave him the desire to escape from the things of men and to see, quote, the things accomplished above nature, no longer as a man with mortal eyes, but with noetic eyes of his pure and chaste soul, which saw this, the very body of the Lord, being slaughtered. And while he lived in this state of divine participation and of the divine darkness, offering daily the unbloody sacrifice, on the fortieth day after his ordination to the priesthood, he was deemed worthy to see a terrible vision. This played a definitive role in his later course as a celebrant of the Most High. During the divine liturgy, while his prayer, as was wont, had carried him away and lifted him on high at the throne of the slaughtered lamb, suddenly he saw the precious body and blood of the Lord actually changing in the holy chalice and taking on the form of flesh and blood. Father Basil was terribly shaken at the sight of this supernatural phenomenon. For a long time he prayed in the presence of this divine mystery, shedding abundant and burning tears. Afterwards, with unsteady step on account of emotion, he came out, of, he came out at the beautiful gate and gave the dismissal 
without revealing to anyone the astonishing miracle that had taken place in the sanctuary. When everyone had left the church, Father Basil knelt and gave his pure soul free reign to be emptied out in the presence of his Creator. For many hours he prayed with tears and besought God to beckon that his divine body resume the appearance of bread and wine so that he would be able to consume the holy elements. His humble soul saw in all this God's favor in revealing to him in such a visible way his unworthiness, and this evoked contrition, and he besought God with greater fervor and superabundant tears. Finally, after many hours of prayers and tears, which could be compared with the days which the God-seer Moses spent on the God-trodden mountain of Sinai, the Immaculate Mysteries resumed their original form, and Father Basil literally communicated of the precious body and blood of the Lord. That same afternoon, shaken by this experience, he appeared to the administrator of the hospital and with evident emotion said to him, I'm sorry, but I am unable to continue to serve as the chaplain of the hospital. Let us endeavor to find some priest to replace me. Until then, I will serve you. But why, Father, are you not satisfied? Perhaps the money we offer you isn't enough. We can discuss this. No, that's not the reason. This work is very heavy for me. A certain priest confessed to me that while he was serving, he beheld at the time of the consecration the bread and wine changing into flesh and blood, and it took many hours of prayer for the elements to return to their natural condition so that he could consume them. Yes, the work of a priest is very heavy, and I neither wish nor am I able to carry it. At the first opportunity, he visited the Metropolitan of Carizia, Pentelaman, who was his confessor. He related to him with tears all the details of the vision, and he besought him never to reveal it to anyone. Later, nonetheless, the Metropolitan made it known, for the sake of spiritual profit, to the president of the administrative council of the hospital. Mrs. Tasia Betra, that that it was Father Basil who saw this fearsome vision. She marveled at Father Basil's great holiness and humility, and at a later date she related everything to the eldress Euphraxia. Father Basil continued to serve a little longer until approximately six months after his ordination. A cousin of his arrived on Agina, Father Cosmas, a very devout and virtuous priest monk. Father Basil suggested to him that he undertake the position of priest for the church of the hospital, and he accepted. Father Basil rejoiced not only because he found a replacement, but even more because Father Cosmas was very pious and led a righteous life. Many related that when he liturgized, they saw him in the sanctuary, quote, a forearm's length off the ground. He also was a worthy son of Anatolia. From that time on, Father Basil ceased serving the liturgy. But at the request of the administration of the hospital, he continued to offer all the services as rector. So Father Cosmas liturgized, and Father Basil chanted and preached the word of God. He maintained and increased his contact with his spiritual children both within and without the hospital. He continued to occupy himself with the relief and consolation of the sick, to strengthen them, to fortify their patients, and never lost an opportunity to plant in them 
the seed of faith in Christ. His holy life alone was enough to inspire them all, for they saw before them the living example of a Christian brought to perfection. He was the personification of love, an uncompromising ascetic, and at the same time a quiet yet very active and efficient worker in society. Chapter 10 The Angelic Life After the vision he saw during the Divine Liturgy, Father Basil thought of making a pilgrimage to the Holy Mountain. He had already conceived this desire in time past, wishing to see the conditions that prevailed there to decide if he should go to live in one of its monastic houses. But now he felt an acute need to hasten this trip, not only to worship that holy place and appraise the conditions there, but to go to confession to one of the ascetics of Athos and seek his advice. In the course of this first trip of his to the Holy Mountain, he visited most of the monasteries. He forged a special bond with the abbot of the sacred monastery of Simonopetra, Father Euronimos, who was also from Asia Minor. He stayed there several days. He went to confession, and they exchanged spiritual experiences. Father Euronimos saw the pure and guileless soul of the humble priest monk, Father Vasili, so enkindled with divine love, and so loved, and he loved him very much. Father Basil left the holy mountain, profited and maintained communications with Father Euronimos of Simonopetra. He often corresponded with him and sought his counsel in many spiritual matters. On his next trip to Athens, Father Euronimos visited the ascetic of Egina. He had been impressed by his great faith, his love of God, and his ascetical way of life. He thus suggested to him that he receive the great angelic schema. Father Basil desired his whole life long to become a monk of the great schema, to be clothed with the garment of repentance. He only stated some reservations and scruples concerning how spiritually prepared he was for this. As always, he did not want to undertake this responsibility on his own, to do his own will. For this reason, he answered that he had to mention it to his spiritual father and let him take the appropriate initiative. He wished to make the beginning of the monastic life with obedience. But when Father Euronimus insisted, Father Basil humbly bent his head and accepted his decision as the manifestation of the divine will. The date for his tonsure was set for December 13, 1923. Father Basil, accompanied by a few pious faithful, came to the little chapel of St. Eurasimos, which was located close to the convent of St. Nectarios, to receive the great angelic schema. There, in the stillness of this solitary country chapel, were heard the awesome prayers and promises of the newly ordained monk, the recollection of which would accompany him his whole life long. Quote, Why hast thou come hither, brother, falling down before the holy altar and this holy assembly? I am desirous of the life of asceticism, reverend father. Dost thou desire to be deemed worthy of the angelic habit and to be ranked in the choir of the monastics? Yes, God helping me, reverend father. Our brother, Eronimus, monk, is clothed with the tunic of righteousness and gladness of the great and angelic habit in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Father Euronymus gave his own name to the newly tonsured monk as an indication of the favor and great love that he nourished for him. He would later say to his acquaintances, Do you see how from a thorn a rose comes forth? In this manner he demonstrated both his own humility and his great esteem for his new namesake in Aegina. In confirmation of the tonsure, he gave the following certificate. Sacred Cenobitic Monastery of Simonopetra, Certificate. The undersigned certifies that with the paternal blessing of the all-sacred metropolitan of Caritia, Pandalaman, I tonsured as a monk of the great scheme of Basil Apostolides, renaming him Hieronymus, on December 13th of the year 1923 in the sacred chapel of St. Eurasimos, which is in the proximity of the sacred convent of the Holy Trinity of Egina. His righteousness, Euronymous monk, remains under the guardianship of the Metropolitan of Caritia, Pantalaemon, while residing in the hospital of St. Dionysius on Agina. He was tonsured, as has been stated, into the great schema, and asked for me the present certificate, which I impart to his righteousness to be used wherever need be. Signed, the Holy Mountain, July 27, 1924, the abbot of the sacred Cenobium of Simonopetra, Archimandrite Euronymous. Chapter 11. Suffering the Things of Men Father Euronymous took on a new position in the society of his faithful. Since he refused out of exceeding piety and immeasurable humility to continue to serve them as a celebrant of the Most High, he dedicated himself to their spiritual edification and became their spiritual director and instructor, the elder, as he was known to his flock in Aegina and later throughout all Greece. He was for all an affectionately loving father, their good counselor and dear friend, their encourager in inflictions, the great helper in their difficulties, their instructor in faith, and in general he was the example of kindness and love. He had special concern for the poor and the sick. Wherever he heard that there was somebody who was sick or poor, he made speed and endeavor by all means to help him, and if he were not himself in a position to help, on many occasions he went about begging that he might be able to alleviate the pain and destitution of his neighbor. On account of his holy life, many people, among them even the affluent, reverenced him and had him as their spiritual father. Father Euronymous, who had never asked even a dime for himself, often used his influence to assuage his fellow men's hardships. And this he did in a gentle and sweet way, and with humility, which always brought about positive results. In this manner, he was able to achieve two purposes simultaneously, to aid those who were in need and to accustom the Christians to doing good works. Once he had visited his friend, C. Basiliades in Piraeus, after they had a cup of tea, he said to him, I want you to do me a favor. Let's go together to a certain house. Fine, elder, let's go. They took a taxi and went in the direction of Taburia, a poor section of Piraeus, where refugees from the Asia Minor catastrophe of 1922 had settled. They stopped at a place that Father Euronymous indicated and rang the doorbell. When the door opened and they entered, the scene they encountered was horrible. A family scourged by poverty, the father sick in bed, without any money, 
even for medicine, and his young children barefoot and hungry. They sat for a little while and spoke with them, and afterwards, as soon as they were outside, Father Euronymous said to his friend, If I were in their place, would you not help me? Yes, Yerunda, without fail. I earnestly entreat you, therefore, to undertake the care of them. Say that you do it for me. I ask this of you as a personal favor. Fine, Yerunda, may it be blessed. On the evening of the same day, the doorbell rang again, and someone unknown, an employee of Basiliades, brought them some parcels full of food and a little envelope with money. The people didn't catch on who these strangers were who behaved toward them in such a Christian way with such humanity. In this manner did Father Euronymous work, quietly and with results. Human suffering tormented him because he did not suffer the things of God only but the things of man. Also, he also displayed great concern for his compatriots, many of whom, since they had arrived from Asia Minor, tormented and in dire poverty, suffered hunger and were not able to endure the poverty and tribulations and therefore despaired. Some contemplated suicide, others gave themselves up to drinking. They themselves were suffering and their families endured hunger and afflictions. Father Euronymous counseled them all. He strengthened their morale, made their faith steadfast, and provided them as he was able. Wherever he learned that there was such who suffered undeservedly, he ran to their aid. He had care for all. Very many are the incidents related by people who were helped by Father Euronymous, and certainly those we do not know are many more. The unlying witnesses are the widows and orphans who wept on the day of his funeral because, as they said, they lost their provider. Father Euronymous worked in secret. His purpose was not self-projection, but rather how to help the afflicted, both in body and soul, and this poured forth from a soul inundated with love for God and neighbor. Alongside the care he had for the least of his brethren, his little flock, he did not neglect his spiritual obligations. By day, he was the untiring worker in society. By night, he was the meditative ascetic, the exact observer of the spiritual life and man of watchful sobriety, who spent himself in prayer. He prayed for his sins, for his spiritual children, and for the whole world. Prayer for Father Euronymous was no dry formality. It was an integral part of his life. In an oblique way, as was his wont, he once said, quote, Some men, when a little time passes without praying, are not able to endure it. They suffer. The hours in which they want to pray and cannot seem to them as maritic torments. These words give us to understand the measure of his love for God and the violent desire that impelled him to commune with him in prayer. In confirmation of this assertion, we mentioned the following. Without fail, when he spoke to his visitors, after about an hour's conversation, he would say, quote, Now go out a little so that I can rest, and afterwards I'll call you again. None, treat so-and-so to a cup of coffee. Give him some leukemia, leukemia, whatever you have, give. It was the time of his communication with God, and Father Euronymous was not able to endure any longer. And all the while that the kind Eldress Euphraxia, like another Martha, was occupied with serving treats, usually 15 to 20 minutes, he would give himself over to prayer. 
When after this quick intermission of spiritual exaltation, the visitor was called back to his cell, he would see his face shining as it had been the face of an angel. And he would immediately begin to give counsel on certain specific matters, which as a rule were of direct concern to his listener. And his prayer together with his words had such power that they gave the assurance with certainty that that which was one heard was not only the product of his own spiritual experience, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Here I ought to state one of my own personal experiences. After every visit to the Yerunda, no matter how troubled and run down I was from various trials and difficulties, I always left so rested and comforted it was as if nothing whatsoever oppressed me. And I know not if the beloved reader has ever had such an experience. But personally, I am obliged to confess that as I took the path leading from the hermitage to the town of Egina, I felt so light that I just barely felt that I touched the earth. The remission of transgressions and the various temptations which I deposited with him and which he as a loving father lifted off me, I felt had an effect even on my bodily weight. Such power did his prayer possess. The problem troubling his brother or his spiritual child was also his problem. That is why he often told us, quote, When I pray for my brothers, I spend something of myself. My heart bleeds. In the year 1927, the eldress Euphraxia arrived in Egina as a refugee from Constantinople. She was numbered among the exchange of populations, and according to the regulations, had to leave Constantinople in 1922. But the aunt of the elder Euronymus, who was her guardian, hid her in her house for five years. She believed that in the future things would improve and she would be able to found a convent there. But the events betrayed her, and the eldress Euphraxia left for Greece knowing neither where her relatives were to be found nor the elder, in whom she hoped to find a guardian. When she arrived in Athens, she learned from some acquaintances that the elder was on Egina and she left to find him. The elder received her and gave her every kind of help possible. Because she was poor, without help, and unprotected, he thought of temporarily sending her to her relatives until she, she could be settled in some convent. The eldress Euphraxia had heard that after the exchange of populations in 1924, her siblings had settled in Thessaloniki. As a good and loving father to all, he took her with him and he went to Thessaloniki. They searched everywhere. They gave notification to the Red Cross. They put ads in the newspapers, but they found no one. Quote, God has loaded you on my shoulders, he finally told her, and took her with him back to Egina. He rented a room for her and took care through his acquaintances that she always had food and good companionship. After a little while, they were informed that her siblings were settled in drama of Macedonia. But before she was able to visit them, she fell grievously ill from the sufferings and hardships of the Asia Minor catastrophe of 1922 and was forced to enter a hospital in Athens. The elder took care for everything, and primarily because he feared, lest under the sufferings and the illness she succumb and lose her patience, he took pains to strengthen her faith and reinforce her patience. The letter that follows, which he sent to her, while she was undergoing treatment in the hospital, shows his paternal anguish. 
Footnote, the letter is translated in the way it was written, with abrupt sentences and peculiar grammatical syntax. This is typical Cappadocian manner of speaking and writing. The Cappadocians would say a few words, and the hearer was supposed to fill in the rest. To continue. Child in the Lord, sister Euphraxia, Eldris, may divine grace protect you in all your hardships. I implore the all-good to take pity on us. Have faith in the Lord, who governs the whole world and us. Have this in mind. Whatever good takes place, receive it with piety. I know that you must be very anxious. Since the Lord permitted, sister, let us accept. Have this thought. All things are good. I am far away, but I am in your thoughts, and I understand. Our only consolation is God. Let him try us. Only let him not abandon us. Beware. Much sorrow poisons a man. This God does not want. May we not sin. As genuine servants of his, let us be patient. The Lord above beholds and rules. Let us be faithful to him. He has given that we might be patient. No one knows the mind of the Lord. Have the patience of the saints. Do not search out what takes place. Only have patience and courageous faith. From the depths of the heart, shed a teardrop. He hearkens and makes trial, and quickly he shall comfort you. I received the telegram to send you the certification of destitution, but the person responsible says that he grants it only within Egina, not outside. This is the order of the ministry. I will send you, he told me, to Piraeus, to the office. They will give it to you. It will be good anywhere in the country, and I will look into it. Write me that the administration and the doctors there say, because there are also persons there who grant it, he says, only locally. This will come to pass, God willing. Do not be anxious. Only write me the particulars, and I will help you with all my strength. I had telegraphed you that if nothing can be done, come home, and God will be our helper. Greetings to all. Blessings to all. Next year, if I have health, I will go to drama. Your continual supplicant to the Lord, Archimandrite Eronimos Apostolides. The Eldris Euphraxia remained hospitalized for a while and then came out of the hospital. After that, since she had need of attention and care, she went to her brethren in drama until she recovered completely. The elder, even after she left the hospital, did not cease to have solicitude and concern for her, being afraid above all lest she lose her patience on account of the many hardships, privations, and sufferings she had undergone. He made every effort to strengthen her faith and patience. The following letter which he sent to her at that time demonstrates his paternal care and anxiety on her account. Sister in Christ, Euphraxia, nun. I pray that our Panagia be always at your side, and that divine providence gift you patience and perseverance in your faculties and consolation in your sentiments. Today, Wednesday, I received your letter and rejoiced that you are well. Glory to the Most High that I am well also. Have it in your memory that we are monastics, that we should have great patience. You know this better than others and that through struggles we will be saved. Catechize your mind, that all the saints were saved through struggles. Let us not sin by losing our patience until this end was illness given by God that you may be saved. 
Do not despair. Lift up your mind to the invisible and behold the everlasting life, its happiness. Believe in all that our mother, the church, teaches us. Let us not fall short. Let us have a little patience. The Lord from above beholds. It suffices that all things will pass. You have suffered many things. Signed, to all greetings, prayers, and blessings, your continual supplicant to the Lord, our commendra Hieronymus Apostolides. Amidst the many cares and concerns he had for each and every one of those in need, he did not neglect his duties at the hospital either. He had become all things to all men. He spent himself. He anticipated all things. At the hospital church, he chanted and preached. There he received all who came for confession. Nor did he stop his daily visits to the wards to see the sick, to encourage them, to address to them a sweet word. And the sick awaited his visits as a visit from God. In the meantime, the Archbishop of Athens in all Greece, who was the general overseer of the hospital, Egina, <clears throat> appointed Father Euronymus his representative for the hospital. And a little later, he appointed him abbot of the sacred monastery of Chrysol. Chrysolontisa on Agina. He valued the elder's character and his work very highly, and because of this, even against his will, he burdened him with the above duties. The help the hospital received from the offerings that came on his account and the income from the faithful who filled the church was great. The administrative council of the hospital, which observed this many-faceted activity of the rector and the related benefit resulting therefrom, acknowledged his contribution, and out of gratitude decided to proclaim him a great benefactor. Thus, on May 14, 1930, it sent him the following letter together with the relevant excerpt of the minutes of the Administrative Council. Letterhead, Hospital Clinic St. Dionysios Egina, Egina, May 14, 1930, to Eronimos Apostolides Archimandrite of the Sacred Church of the Hospital Clinic St. Dionysios, Holy Archimandrite, because you, as the representative of the general overseer of the Metropolitan of Athens, in the hospital clinic of Agina St. Dionysios, and as a clergyman serving in the sacred church of the hospital, have offered many spiritual material benefits therein. An award and tribute of appreciation is granted by the administrative council of the hospital, which being assembled signed Act Number 136 on March 27th of the current year, which being attached hereto is sent to you that you may be appraised thereof, signed the President Taisia Betra and the Secretary L. Luis, Act 136. Today on Agina, it being Thursday, March 27, 1930, the Administrative Council of the Hospital Clinic St. Dionysios in an extraordinary meeting had as its main topic of discussion the activities of the representative of his beatitude, the Archbishop of Athens, Chrysostomos, the general overseer of the hospital clinic, Archimandre Eronimos. The president introduced in the council the subject of this clergyman's activities as the representative of his beatitude in the institution and as a sacred preacher and as the founder and builder of the sacred temple of our all-venerable St. Dionysios in the hospital, and that the raising up of this temple came about by funds that this clergyman alone gathered from various virtuous citizens with great labors, a thing most difficult for the present time wherein a very great recession prevails. 
The council, having heard the president's report, acknowledges the said clergyman is in truth a great benefactor on account of his labors and sacrifices. Wherefore, it declares and approves unanimously, first, that as a token of gratitude the clergyman's name be engraved on the marble, marble plaque of the great benefactors of the hospital clinic, second, that there be sent him a congr congratulatory document an expression of gratitude on behalf of the whole administrative council, and third, that a copy of this decision be sent to his beatitude, the Archbishop of Athens, that he may be appraised of the activities of the said clergyman, who is his representative. Likewise, that a copy of this decision be given to the aforesaid Archimandrite Euronymous Apostolides and present and present abbot of the sacred monastery of the Dormition of the Theotokos. The subsequent matters are entrusted to Mrs. President, signed the President Taisi Betra, the Secretary Lila Luis, the members to continue in the list of the members. The Archbishop of Athens also gave him permission to preach at the Cathedral of Athens every time he came to Athens. And the elder, for a long, very long period of time, went to Athens every Sunday evening and preached at the cathedral. Many of his spiritual children and compatriots, Greeks from Asia Minor, would gather there to listen to him. Those who are still alive speak of these sermons with nostalgia. He spoke simply, with clarity, and with exceeding compunction. He never spoke without weeping during his talks. He strove to transmit his experiences to his hearers, to teach them noetic prayer and hesychism, the ascetical life and the patristic discipline which constitute the identity of orthodoxy throughout the ages. After every talk, all awaited him in order to see him, to receive his blessing, and to hear some personally consoling word. It was there that he learned of his compatriots' ordeals and trials, so that afterwards he might run to find them and encourage them. He had managed to combine to an exceeding great degree the life of a hesychist with that of one who tirelessly works for the good of society. The great flame of his love for God flooded him also with love for his brethren. His life had become one continuous sacrifice. It was an inexhaustible fountain from which welled up unending goodness and love. Of the little time left from the exercise of his manifold activities and occupations, he devoted a significant part of the study of the holy scriptures and patristic texts, chiefly the ascetical writings. He especially had a very great weakness for the ascetical homilies of Abba Isaac the Syrian. He read them with regularity. A day did not pass in which he did not read at least one page, which he also recommended to all his spiritual children. Quote, Let not one day pass without reading at least one page from Abba Isaac. I love the Blessed One very much. I have him as my elder. And whatever you read, apply yourself and say to yourself, Do I do this? In this way you will be prompted by the reading to cross over to accomplishing it indeed. Yet and I read him, but I observe that I am not corrected. I once said to him, Listen, he said, the more you wipe a glass, the cleaner it gets. Read it, do not neglect it, and the prophet will come. As often as you pour water into a glass, it will be cleansed, even if no water remains in it. Once, 
Father T., then a deacon, who used to visit him regularly, asked him, yet to tell me what spiritual books should I read to be profited? Abba Isaac was the elder's answer. Agreed, you'd often spoken to me of Abba Isaac, and I read him, but what other books should I read? Abba Isaac. All right, and any other books besides Abba Isaac? Abba Isaac. As for me, even if I am able to apply one small part of Abba Isaac's words, I do not desire anything else. Thus with you also, read even one page a day with attention and you will discover great gain. Only read him with attention. Have him like a mirror in order to see your weaknesses. So much had he come to love Abba Isaac and had wholly espoused his writings that he had himself become the express image of them. His life, his words, and his counsels reminded one of the great Syriac ascetic. This is why many spiritual people, when they met him, cried out, I've met another Abba Isaac the Syrian. He did not simply read Abba Isaac, but as he advised others, whatever he found in his words, he strove to apply himself. St. Isaac was his mirror, and he struggled continuously his whole life long to cleanse himself ever more completely, to purify himself even from the subtlest of thoughts, to pursue the illumination from above. But from the other patristic texts, which he read besides, like an industrious honeybee, he gathered whatever he found that was profitable and took care to stamp it upon his life. His speech was always sprinkled with references to such patristic texts, and whatever he considered most remarkable, he had the habit of transcribing. There are many of his manuscripts with transcriptions of texts from Abba Isaac, St. Simeon the New Theologian, and so forth. We offer a small text out of those which he copied, which also shows his own disposition for continual and unrelenting struggles. Quote, run, therefore, brethren, run in order to reach the desired one. Make haste, make haste, lest the prey get out of your hands. Contend, contend that others might not take your crown. Small is the labor, but great the repose. Temporary be the afflictions, but the good things that ye inherit are everlasting. Bitter is the cup of martyrdom, but sweet is the enjoyment of the Lord Jesus. A most profitable commerce is this, beloved. You give a corruptible body, and you receive it back incorruptible. Chapter 12. To the Mountain That is Holy Every year, without exception, from the time that he came to Greece, he made a pilgrimage to the holy mountain, and unfailingly saw his father confessor Archimandrite Euronymus at the monastery of Simonopetra. Afterwards, he would visit other monasteries to venerate the holy relics and to exchange spiritual experiences with the fathers of the holy mountain. Father Euronymus was greatly profited by these visits, even as he also profited many. He often told us with nostalgia about his meetings with ascetics and hermits and the spiritual benefits he derived therefrom. He always spoke of the holy mountain with admiration. When he wished to relate examples of holy fathers to show their great piety and their ascetical mind, he often made reference to the holy mountain and its ascetics. To emphasize the magnitude of the value of the priesthood and the great responsibility thereof, he told of a certain Hagiorite monk, who, wishing to avoid becoming a priest because of his great reverence, cut off his nose and ears. 
Another time, desiring to make plain the grandeur of humility, he related concerning a certain bishop, perhaps he had St. Nephon, Patriarch of Constantinople in mind, who went to the holy mountain to become a monk without revealing to anyone that he was a bishop. They assigned him the most menial jobs, and he not only tolerated everything, but even rejoiced inwardly because he had put on the garment of our Christ, holy humility. And it was necessary for God to reveal in a wondrous manner that he was a bishop, perhaps for the edification of the monks. Otherwise, he would have passed his whole life without notice in obscurity and would have died as a simple monk. Father Euronymous considered the holy mountain to be a place where saints lived in reality, an ark of orthodoxy. Once while in Keriez, the capital, he heard a monk shouting, using abusive language. He made frequent references to the patriarch. He said he was going to punish him, he was going to beat him up, and other incoherent talk. All this made the bystanders laugh at his expense and derisively shake their heads. Everyone thought him to be demented and laughed at him or just ignored him. Father Euronymous, with the spiritual discernment that he had, saw certain signs in his speech that did not indicate an insane person. At a certain moment, he called him privately and asked him, Tell me, why do you say these things? By golly, is he a patriarch? I'll fix him. I'm going to punish him. Listen, I am a spiritual father and you don't fool me. Tell me the truth. Why do you act this way? I'll tell you, Father. I am a sinful and weak man, and I am afraid of the praise of men, that pride may not overtake me. In this way, I humble myself and pretend to be crazy so that men will despise me. Maybe God will take pity on me. Maybe God will save me. I have not said this to anyone, and I entreat you, at least while I am still alive, not to reveal this yourself. And saying this, he went away cursing and threatening the patriarch and the rulers. Father Euronymous glorified God that he had revealed to him a man with the rare gift and the power of disregard to the glory of men and continually humble himself that God might take pity on him and save him. This monk was evidently one of the few who have appeared in the ecclesiastical realm and have broken with the world's way of thinking. Preferring the foolishness of God, they do not conform to the acceptable forms of Christian behavior, but rather become a spectacle to the world. In essence, their presence is a mocking of the world. Although they feign foolishness, their life is full of miracles and teachings with cryptic illusions, which, for as many as have spiritual sense, help them to return to the right Orthodox Christian way of life or strengthen and help them in their faith. On another occasion, while he was walking from one monastery to another, he met a, a hermit in the way of Logite Yeronda, how are you? O Kyrios, what can we do, my father? We struggle. I entreat you, please pray for us, because here on Holy Mountain, the devil mightily wars against us. But does he only war against you? Does he not go about in the world also? In the world he has his representatives women, which war against men, whereas here on the holy mountain, where women don't come, the devil doesn't stop, even for a moment, to war against us. No, Yeranda, I don't agree. 
The discerning father Euronymus answered him, Women may be more easily susceptible to evil, but surely they are not represent representatives of the devil. They are images of God. I think your characterization is extreme. The ascetic agreed with him. He justified himself by explaining that what he said was an exaggeration on account of the war which the monks received from the devil, not that he really believed it. It was simply a figure of speech, which oftentimes the Hagiorites use with a dose of humor. They exchanged the kiss in Christ, and each went his own way. With such experiences was his life filled on the holy mountain. On his visits, visits there he profited some and was profited by others, but he always left rejuvenated spiritually, and certain thoughts he had of permanently settling there continually gained ground. Chapter 13. Experiences of a God-seer. Onegina, his fame had spread. Everyone spoke of him with admiration and love, considering him their own man. There began to gather around him a goodly number of young men and women, many of whom, being inspired by his way of life, began to manifest the proclivity for a total dedication to God, to be drawn to the monastic life. Many young girls implored him to start his own convent so that they could become nuns there. But Father Euronymus always acted with prudence. He did not permit himself to be swayed by these urgings of the young. He prayed intensely that God revealed to him his will. Yet he had an exceedingly great love for stillness in the monastic life, and he endeavored to make them feel this also. Many times when young people gathered around him, he took them and they all went together to some field chapel, Footnote, exo ecclesia, outside, from the two words, a small church or chapel outside the city of villages, usually in the fields or on the hilltops and mountaintops, built by the pious throughout the centuries because of vows or a benefaction rendered by the saints to whom they're dedicated. There are literally some thousands of such chapels dotting the landscapes of mainland Greece and the islands. They are usually celebrated on their feast day or whenever one wishes to honor or beseech a certain saint. It is said that there are some 365 such chapels on the island of Egina. To continue, they all went together to some field chapel for vespers and compunctionate prayer. These spiritual gatherings have remained unforgettable for those who had the special blessing to attend them. Even though 40 or 50 years have passed since then, they still remember them with nostalgic and compunction. Behold how one of those fortunate souls describes the experience of one of these blessed gatherings. Quote, we gathered early in the evening, about 10 young people, and started out with the Yeronda to go to one of the field chapels, about half hour by foot from the hermitage. The elder was cheerful, and during the whole trip he chanted, or consoled, counseled us. When we arrived, he entered the sanctuary. We cleaned the church and lit the icon lamps. Immediately afterwards, we had vespers, during which Father Euronymous chanted with his melodious and compunctionate voice. Then he began to teach us compunctionate prayer. For one or two hours, he prayed before us with tears, sobs, and sighs that cannot be uttered, evoking contrition in the hearts of us all. When he had finished, we came out of the church and he went into the sanctuary. 
We then started a conversation among us about the spiritual experiences that we had had in the presence of this blessed man, and we waited for him to come out so that we could depart. That epoch was different from today, and the young people had to be home before it got dark. Four or five hours passed, it began to grow dark, and the elder was nowhere to be seen. We began to worry because if we were late, our families would not permit us to go with him again. I then decided to go as far as the sanctuary. I opened the door carefully, and the sight that I beheld shook me. Father Euronimos was on his knees with hands uplifted and his gaze set on high. Tears ran from his eyes, while his face was radiant with an unusual light. I immediately went out and related to the others that Tabor-like spectacle I had just seen. We all found ourselves in a dilemma. We did not want to disturb him in this divine state he was in, but we had to return home early so that our parents would permit us again to make these sacred little excursions. We finally decided to speak to him. I went to the sanctuary again, very slowly opened the door, touched him lightly on the shoulder. Yaronder, we have to go. The elder started a little, as if he were coming to himself from a dream, and answered, oh, yes, let's go. Shortly he came out without saying a word, and altogether we took to the road to return. One can easily understand the spiritual exaltation that we all felt after those celestial hours which we were deemed worthy to live at his side. These sacred little excursions took place regularly. And what wouldn't the chapels of Egina at Paliacora, at Lavadia, close to the convent of St. Minas, and so on, have to say concerning the prayers of Father Euronimos? He also, as it would seem, was bound to these chapels and was nostalgic for them till the end of his life. I remember when on the first day that he entered the hospital, Alexandra, one month before he went to rest, he asked me, does the hospital have a church? Wherever he was, his mind was on churches. Yes, elder, and a very beautiful one at that. Why, do you know of any church that isn't beautiful? I feel the same in whatsoever church I find myself, even should I go to a little field chapel. And even if it has only one icon, that's enough. God is present everywhere, and not only in large and imposing churches. Evidently, his mind ran to the numerous little chapels of Egina and to the heavenly moments that he had experienced there. His spiritual children besought him continually to go regularly on excursions to field chapels to have vespers. And what didn't they devise in order to steal a little time so that they could stay a little longer with him during these sacred and mystical meetings? As one of those blessed souls who were deemed worthy to live these experiences with him relates, the girls would scheme among themselves to turn back the clock two or three hours before they left the house because they promised their parents that they would return home early. People back then were simple, did not catch on to these tricks. So the girls, when they returned home, would turn the clocks forward again. In this way, they managed to prolong their stay with him for a few hours and so enjoy more of their divine devotion to prayer. These were the unique occasions that Father Euronimus always, that he allowed little white lies. Whereas he was always austere and counseled, do not tell lies, not even for a joke. When there was an occasion for spiritual profit, he yielded somewhat. Endeavor, quote, by all means to steal some time 
so you can offer it to your spiritual pursuits, he was wont to say, and to a certain soul who was not permitted by her spiritual father to read ascetical books. He once say, to all the sins you have, add one more. Buy Abba Isaac and read him every day. Maybe your spiritual father does not know. Maybe he's against it. We don't know. Do not judge. In any event, read Abba Isaac. You will profit much from it. Wherever Father Euronymous was found, whatever he was occupied with, he never abandoned prayer. Prayer was his main work and his delight. Everything else was secondary. And he was very industrious all his life and skilled in many trades. He knew how to build. He was a perfect carpenter, clockmaker, and so forth. He was never idle. Into his deep old age, we remember him at his bench with his tools, tinkering with some clock he was repairing. But his mind was never bound by such things. His main concern was always prayer. He occupied himself with different employments in order to bring under subjection, see 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, his body. But simultaneously, he prayed noetically to God. His mind was continuously cleaving to heaven. There he found rest and rejoicing. Once, while he was walking in Piraeus, he saw two nuns on the opposite sidewalk. He called to them and said, How are you, sisters? How do you fare? Is your mind in God? Be attentive. Your mind should always be in God. Do not become attached to transient things. He gave the same counsel to everyone who visited him. The guarding of the noose, the mind, was his continuous struggle and anxiety. Prayer was the fitting means for this, and it was also his beloved occupation. Many times, as in a parable according to his custom, following the Apostle Paul's, I knew a man 14 years ago, he related that he knew a man who was, for 14 hours, prayed continuously and wept out of compunction. And again, on another occasion, he said, there are people who, if a little time passes and they do not pray, they suffer, they can't endure it. There is no doubt that all this referred to himself and to his personal divine experiences, but out of ex exceeding humility, he spoke of them as the doings and experiences of others. Chapter 14, Spiritual Solicitude His spiritual children, who multiplied as time went on, began to entreat him to found their own convent for them in which to live the monastic life. They wanted him close to them as their elder and could not resolve to enter any other convent. Father Euronimos, although he had planned to go to the Holy Mountain to pursue the monastic life, he began to consider it seriously and prayed to God to reveal to him his holy will. But soon he changed his mind. He considered that a convent would entail many cares and concerns that would necessarily draw his mind away from prayer, and this for Father Euronimos was an unbearable burden. Thus the thought of building a convent was abandoned. But he wished before leaving for the Holy Mountain to make arrangements for his spiritual children, and to this purpose they all made various trips together in the form of pilgrimages to many convents. He wanted to see the spiritual environment and then to recommend to them where to go to be nuns. One of these convents which he liked and which he formed a bond was the convent of the life-giving springs on the island of Andros. He went several times, either with others or by himself, and had many spiritual conversations with the abbot, Father pa Panaratos, 
Among other things, he spoke to him about his purpose, that is, of sending his spiritual children to the convent and to remain there himself for a period of time until they got accustomed to the environment and their new elder. Father Panaratos, being a very spiritual person, understood the worth and holiness of Father Euronimos and became bound to him with a deep spiritual love. But he had certain reservations to what extent he should accept his proposal, which he expressed in the following letter. One is impressed as much by his humility as by his wonder and reverence for Father Euronimos. Letter had the sacred convent of the life-giving spring, Mapsti Andro, September 4th, 1938. My beloved brother in Christ and fellow celebrant in the Lord, most righteous holy archimandrite, Euronimos, with all your brethren and children in Christ, rejoice in the Lord Jesus, our common Savior and God, always and in all things. Amen. Most sacred man, by the grace and help of our great lady and sovereign mistress, the Theotokos and ever Virgin Mary, and by your holy prayers, we are all well, for which we, the unworthy, also pray for you daily. My beloved brother in Christ and honorable father, Euronimos, I have received both of your precious letters to me with much esteem, love, and thanksgiving. I gave thanks to our Lord Jesus Christ, who keeps you and your children in, in Christ in health, and I reverently beg forgiveness for such great slowness in making answer to your brotherly letters to me. The cause is my inadequacy, and it is not out of disdain, my brother. I greatly thank you, Honorable Father, for your holy prayers and blessings and for your so many truly Christian expressions of love for us, the lowly, backward, and perfect strangers to the monastic way of life. But yet we, the worthless and unprofitable servants of our Lord Jesus Christ, hope in the infinite gulf of the mercy and love from man of him who has called us on account of his goodness to the lot of those who are sanctified through the intercessions of the Theotokos and ever-Virgin Mary and all his saints, and also through your holy prayers, to have mercy on us in the universal day of the impartial judgment, for the sake of the glory of his name, Amin. We, on our part, pray heartily that with your spiritual children you will stand before the tribunal of Christ all resplendent with the glory of Christ, and equal in rank with the saints, Amin, Amin, Amin. Concerning the matter of which you have often spoken to me, of which you write, how and what can I answer, my brother, one and soul with me? You ask of me a thing that is unfortunately, in my estimation, very difficult, honorable father, as it would seem you reckon the thing with much naivete and simplicity, without foreseeing what may happen later, to the very great harm of both you and us. Your purpose is holy and blameless, without ulterior motive or self-interest, by no means in very truth. This I know well, and I testify to it before God and men, my brother and honorable father. But experience has taught me that two rational flocks consolidating into one while having two shepherds on an equal footing of rank and honor can hardly succeed. It is foreseeable that following this, sooner or later, some personal faction will arise. It would even happen right from the beginning. What then? Should we keep silence, pretending ignorance? You happen to be a rational man with sufficient education and are a very good and virtuous celebrant of Christ and a spiritual father. Not only this, but you also have manifold kinds of knowledge and Christian vir virtues and skills useful to all. 
but I, all to the contrary, happen to be naked of all virtue and Christian works and knowledge, totally incapable of every divine and human work. And not only this, but woe to me, wretch that I am, while being filled with all evil and cunning and burdened with crimes and great sins and the failings of the elderly, I manage by the forbearance of divine justice to hide beneath the veil of hypocrisy by supposedly being a worker of the mystical vineyard of Christ. And thus I convince the naive and simple to reverence me as though I were a fervent servant of Christ, whereas I am a worthless sinner under heavy sentence. This is not just humble talk, but I am making my confession, writing the above in truth, beseeching of God and of you the forgiveness of my manifold sins, miserable as I am. How then is it possible that we collaborate? You being light, but I darkness. You being a faithful servant of Christ, but I of sin and hypocrisy. You verily being a worker of the mystical vineyard of Christ, but I the miserable one a worker feigned and false. You being a warrior and brave soldier of Christ, but I a coward and deserter. Yea, verily my brother and spiritual father, this is how things are in very truth, such that we cannot work together, because from the start personal factions will be formed. And some, seeing rightly, will quite quickly discern the differences between us and will begin to express respect and reverence towards you, with spiritual love. But the more simple and naive, on the other hand, will ostentatiously bid, begin to display toward me the most worthless their love and reverence, speaking out assuredly against your reverence and against the other sisters who will have expressed their reverence and respect and love toward you. Thus, while those who rightly see and discern the worthy shepherd will be called eronimites, those who do not discern aright, but rather blindly and without discretion, fanatically respect and love me, who am but useless and sinful, will also be called by my name, which for me is just an empty name. Footnote, that is panaratos in Greek, meaning all or every virtue. That is of panaratos or panaratitis. From the, from the start, they will begin by secretly confiding in one another, each one revealing her own thoughts and opinions simply conversing among them about the gifts of each of us, their two spiritual fathers, until they come to disagree concerning our virtues. Then that evil devising devil will find them divided and will thus contrive to sow in their hearts jealousy, bickering, secret gatherings, and the like. As for me, your presence will assuredly be saving and profitable in manifold ways, but as you know, I am not alone, but have with me people of many different temperaments, who are not able to as yet put off the mind of their foremother, Eve, even as I unfortunately also have not put off Adam's. Therefore you will bitterly regret it when new temptations, perhaps under another guise, unfailingly begin to appear. And not you only, but the people with you will also regret it, and then what shall we do? Wherefore, that I might avoid being in any way misunderstood by your reverence, I counsel you with brotherly love to prefer rather to abide in peace and tranquility in your own hermitage with your daughters in Christ, under greater progress and profit for many souls. May the grace and blessing of the grace-streaming, life-giving spring be with all of you, now and always. Amen. 
These things I now write, asking your holy prayers and blessings for me with the sisters that are with me. Signed, Archimandrite Panartos, your brother in Christ. Father Euronymous, of course, had no intention of remaining at the convent of the life-giving spring. He only wished to make arrangements for settling his spiritual children in order to leave after that for Mount Athos. But since he was very sensitive and discreet, after the letter he received, he did not pursue it any further. He preferred to wait a while until God should show him his will. Chapter 15 No man on earth loves me like Father Euronymous. During this interval he had, by his own efforts and endeavors, helped by the eldress Euphraxia to build a small hermitage to the northeast about a kilometer from the hospital of Egina. The eldress had long stayed as a guest in the homes of his acquaintances until she might find some convent to enter. This hindered her from performing her monastic rule and prayer. The ever-loving Father Euronymous, who always thought of everything and took care for everything, found this place that was appropriate for stillness and saw to it first that there be built two small cells and later a little chapel dedicated to the Annunciation of the Theotokos, for whom Father Euronymous had a very great reverence and love. Here, outside the chapel and next to the cells, he installed a small workbench with various tools and used it as a workshop. Often, when there was some time left over from his spiritual ministry, he went to the hermitage to see Mother Euphraxia and give her guidance. After that, he occupied himself with various projects. He would repair clocks, lighters, and other objects which he later gave away as gifts to monastics and acquaintances. He always kept himself occupied, and as with spiritual things, so also with the material, he did everything to perfection. At one point, the eldress Euphraxia, when she perceived that Father Euronymous had changed his mind and did not intend to start a convent, decided to go to Drama in Macedonia to her relatives and afterwards to find some convent where she could live as a nun. She had begun her monastic life in her youth in the convent of the Theoskepasti in Pontus of May Asia Minor. Many nuns led the monastic life there, and now she longed once again to be found in a monastic environment and live among, amidst nuns. Solitary life had wearied her. She confessed all her longings and dreams nurtured from her youth to the elder. She also revealed to him her thought to go visit her relatives in drama with the further purpose of finding some convent there close by where she could live as a nun. He heard her out without speaking and wished her that with the help of God she might fulfill her desire. After she had taken the elder's blessing, she departed from Egina for Piraeus and thence by boat to Thessaloniki in order to continue her journey to drama. In the lengthy trip from Piraeus to Thessaloniki, on board the ship, she felt a great heaviness in her soul. She had suffered many hardships in her life, journeys by foot, persecutions, expulsions, displacement from her homeland, poverty. All this had exhausted her. And now again she was marching off to the unknown with no certain destination. She was further tormented because when close to Elder Euronymous, her soul had found some rest. She considered him a loving and caring spiritual father and her guardian, and now that she had departed, she began to feel his absence intensely. Her thoughts were violently wrestling within her. On one hand, she wanted to be close to her spiritual father, that unerring inspired and illumined guide, but on the other, 
she was scourged with desire to be found in a monastic environment, to live in the midst of nuns and to attend the divine services with them. What was she to do? There, in a corner of the deck, she bowed her head on her knees and dissolved in tears. She prayed intensely, imploring God and the Panagia to enlighten her what to do. Should she continue her voyage or return to Egina? Many hours passed thus with prayer and tears. At a certain moment, overcome as she was by the tension and her prayer, in a state which even she herself was not able to discern, whether it was waking or in ecstasy, she saw that she found herself before the icon of the Panagia quick to hear and was entreating her to help her in this difficult moment. And suddenly she heard a voice coming forth from the icon, No man on earth loves me like Father Eronimos. She jumped straight up, the words she had heard still echoing in her ears. Her soul calmed down and all her thoughts vanished. A deep tranquility spread throughout her. That whole violent sea of thoughts, which a short while before seized her soul, had now become serene. It was as if she had received the answer she yearned for with such anguish. She bent down again, she put her head on her knees and dissolved again in tears. But they were tears of joy. How much consolation these tears now brought her. A few more hours passed like this in the same position with a prayer of doxology and thanksgiving. Upon reaching Thessaloniki, she took the next boat for Piraeus. When she arrived at Aegina, she found Father Eronimus in his workshop, occupied with various repairs. Endowed with discretion herself, she did not wish to reveal the vision, lest she harm him spiritually, fearing lest the demon of pride should trouble him. Nonetheless, she approached him, and there as he was bent over at the workbench, she said to him, Really, Yerunda, you love our Panagia very much, don't you? He didn't answer. He only smiled enigmatically and meaningfully. Evidently, he knew everything, but as always did not want to speak about himself. Once, Mother Euphrexia related, I was about to travel to Drama. I was going to see my family. I had to pass a night in Athens. And the elder said to me, Go to such and such a church to receive communion, and then take your trip. Elder, may I go to this convent where the nuns know me? No, go to the church, I told you. I departed having decided to do as the elder told me, but when I reached Piraeus, I thought, wouldn't it be better to go to the convent where it will be more quiet and the services are read more carefully? And without its even crossing my mind that what I was doing was disobedience, I went to the holy convent, but things did not turn out as well as I expected. The nuns were very busy and gave me no attention whatsoever. I went the whole day on one cup of coffee. In the evening, a family came whose daughter had left to become a nun, and they made a commotion, yelling and threatening. They turned the world upside down. Suspecting that she had come to this convent, they rounded up all the nuns and took them to the police station for an investigation. I was frightened and left. I had thought to go to an acquaintance who lived in Corridalo, a district of Piraeus, but alas, I didn't find her there. I became very troubled and didn't know what to do. In the end, a certain woman from Panta, seeing me in such a state of distress and so upset, took pity on me and invited me to her home. Have you eaten? she asked me. And I, because of my disturbed state and my embarrassment, answered, Yes. 
Thus I went to bed hungry. Then I understood that all that befell me was because of my disobedience. The elder never made any remark without a reason, superfluously. Because he foresaw everything, he told me not to go to the convent. Whenever I disobeyed him, even in the smallest and most insignificant things, everything went bad for me. For this reason, I decided never to disobey him again, not even the least of his commands. Chapter 16 Example of Humble-Mindedness Father Hieronymus decided to remain a while longer in Egina. Before he left, he wished to provide a spiritual roof for his spiritual children, so he continued to offer his services at the hospital in Egina, as always benefiting all his fellow men, both spiritually and materially. Everyone on Egina, without exception, loved him and reverenced him exceedingly. It is rare for any to enjoy such honor and esteem from all men, and especially from those that live near him, those of his own household. But Father Euronymous accomplished this without even pursuing it. His holiness acted as a magnet. Whomever one might ask on Egina concerning Father Euronymous, they spoke of him in the best terms. Many related to us that when they visited him for the first time and asked the neighbors where the hermitage of Father Euronymous was, they would receive the answer, Ah, uh, you want our holy Archimandrite? There, a little further up in his hermitage, go. He's a holy man. May his prayers be with us. Many times when we were traveling in the island and expressed to some fellow traveler on the boat the reason for our trip, we heard from nearly everybody marvelous stories about the life of Father Euronymous and personal experiences and benefactions they had received from him. One would say that Father Euronymous had saved his family from certain destruction and led it to the church. Another, that he had healed his hand or his foot. A third would relate that he had stood by him in some difficult moment and saved him from the very gates of suicide. And generally all had something marvelous and astonishing to say about him. He also regularly visited the various holy convents of Egina. Everywhere he was beloved, and all the nuns sought counsel from him in every difficult circumstance or about the spiritual concerns preoccupying them at the moment. He had a special reverence for the newly revealed St. Nectarios and often went to venerate his holy relics. The nuns of the saint's convent loved him greatly and always welcomed him with joy. In his person they beheld one who continued the work of their saint, and they had recourse to him to find solutions to the problems in their holy monastery. I remember being very impressed when on one of my visits to the convent of St. Nectarios in the year of 1967, about one year after Father Euronymous's repose, I heard the then abbess, Eldris Theodosia, say to me, Father Euronymous and our saint changed the life of the island toward a more spiritual direction. The Eldris Theodosia had known St. Nectarios and had been his disciple, and it is well known fact that all spiritual children have a special weakness for their own Yerunda, even more so when he is a saint recognized by the church. Often this weakness can influence his disciples to be partial to him, to their own elder, and to disfavor others. Therefore, this testimony of the Yerundus of Theodosia, which put the two, St. Nectarios and Father Euronymus, in the same rank of holiness and spiritual service, has special weight. 
He also went rather frequently to the convent of the Most Holy Mother of God, Chrysolentisa, where he had once served for a time as abbot when it was a men's monastery. He often stayed there a number of days and with his brother John taught the nuns how to make tiles and bricks. The nuns marveled at Father Eronimos' endurance. He worked hard all day long, and in the evenings, notwithstanding the labor and weariness, he spent many hours with them praying, and also chanted or spoke to them concerning the monastic life and prayer. While all loved him and especially honored him, he remained simple and humble. He would never gainsay, never become angry. He never insulted or grieved anyone, nor did he criticize or judge anyone. If someone insulted him and acted badly toward him or berated him, he would endure it without answering. The higher he attained to the heights of sanctity, the more he felt himself a sinner and worse than all. He accepted all things with patience. The only thing that he could not endure was separation from Christ. Quote, I could wish to be a worm that all might trample me underfoot, only that I might not lose my Christ, he would say. Once he was traveling to Piraeus on a ship named the Enchantress. As usual, he sat somewhere off to the side and prayed. Suddenly he was approached by the captain who said to him, Priest, get up from here and sit further on. Father Euronymous humbly and obediently conformed to the command, but shortly after, the captain ordered him to change his place again. The same thing was repeated a third time. The captain's attitude was very provocative. The other passengers were indignant and made a remark to him about why he had behaved in such a manner to a venerable elder who, after all, had paid his ticket. And the captain answered, My mother told me that whenever I see refugees, I should throw them into the sea. Father Euronimos was grieved when he heard this, but said nothing. He only decided never to travel on this ship again, nor to avoid temptation. But he prayed fervently for the captain and implored God to enlighten him. On another occasion, however, he had to travel to Piraeus, and there was no other ship except the Enchantress. He said his prayers, boarded the ship, and sat in the same corner. He hoped that the captain would not see him, so that he could avoid the pointless temptation. But eventually the captain passed by and saw him, and approached him. Do you have a ticket? he asked. Yes, I do. Give it to me and I'll return it. He took the ticket and returned to him the amount that he had paid, saying, My mother scolded me and told me never to take money from you again. From now on, come aboard whenever you want and travel for free. The humility and prayer of Father Euronimus, and possibly some vision that his mother had seen had subdued the proud captain. On another occasion, he was coming down one of the well-known narrow lanes to Egina. It was the feast of St. Nicholas, and after the Divine Liturgy, he was going into town for his accustomed ministry, and in order to greet certain of his acquaintances who were celebrating their names day. Passing by outside of a store, he saw the proprietor, whose son celebrated for St. Nicholas. He stopped a moment, greeted him. Good morning, many years. May St. Nicholas be with us, and may you rejoice in your son. The shopkeeper, for some unknown reason, instead of rejoicing at his blessings, answered with rudeness in an exceedingly insulting way. Get out of here, priest, as fast as you can. 
That's right, get going. Bravo, before I make some nasty remark to you. Father Euronymous went away in sorrow, not much, so much for the insult, but because he didn't want to grieve any man. Even if he was not at fault in the least, he felt obliged to comfort his fellow man. No one ever left him saddened. He always found a way to comfort and relieve whomever he saw in affliction. And in this instance, he felt that he had to redress matters. Another in his place would likely have become angry or at least would have avoided speaking with the offender again or would wait his apologies. But egotism had no place in Father Eronimos's heart. For the meek and humble disciple of Jesus, that which was important was that the lost sheep be saved. As always, he left the matter to Christ, his Lord. He prayed all day and night on the morrow. He took the same path again. As soon as he came near the shop of his reviler, he saw him sweeping his courtyard. He approached him and with a great deal of sweetness and humility said to him, Forgive me, my brother, if in any way I have grieved you. But won't you allow me even to bid you good morning? The shopkeeper was dumbstruck. He would never have expected such kindness and humility. He ran. He fell on his bosom and said, Forgive me, elder. I don't know what Satan put me up to speaking to you like that. I have repented over it bitterly, and I ask your forgiveness. His prayer and humility had worked a miracle in this man. In such a manner did Father Euronymous conduct himself. He made use of all things, becoming all things to all men, that he might gain men and guide them to repentance. This explains the fact that almost everybody on Egino reverenced him as a saint and loved him exceedingly. Chapter 17 Lover of Tradition the region of Anatolia, Cappadocia, and Asia Minor, where he lived in his childhood years, where he came to know the first spiritual stirrings, where he tasted the springing waters of orthodoxia from the holy elders who lived there, and where he matured spiritually remained unforgettable for him. He frequently referred to his homeland and waxed nostalgic for all the things he had experienced there. He never forgot the solitary chapels in the rocks where one could go and pray and utter stillness, nor those simple people, those first-rate artisans, who, whatever they put their hand to, did it perfectly with ardor and with good taste. Being a great lover of the life of Hezekiah, of stillness and prayer, he often recollected the beautiful days, full of spiritual ascents and exaltations that he had passed in the chapels and abandoned monasteries of his homeland. Quote, here in Greece you cannot find a Quiet place to pray, he was wont to say. In Anatolia, there were many places where you could pass the whole day in prayer without anybody seeing you. This insatiable and never silent desire for quietude and prayer, for undisturbed communion with God, never abandoned him. He never lost an opportunity to draw apart and give himself to prayer. Usually, even when he was speaking to his visitors, he would stop for a little and say, and now let's chant something. And he would begin with his imposing, deeply resounding, and melodious voice to chant, let us worship the word, or it is truly meet to call thee blessed, or some other hymn. These intermissions of prayer were indispensable for him. They were his life breath, his spiritual supply line, and at the same time it was an excellent example for those who conversed with him.
that they might form the habit of conjoining their every occupation with prayer. He lived the essence of orthodoxy, tradition in all its breadth. Without rejecting any of the attainments of technological society, he had a, a special weakness, a passion we might say, for whatever was old and ancient, from material things to the spiritual. He liked the ancient order of the services, the old books, antiques, because he believed that they carried the seal of their maker. They had been constructed with fondness and were not machine-made and in bad taste. With such convictions and perceptions, having always lived his life within but also outside this world, within the strict province of holy tradition, he felt a certain uneasiness from time, from that time that the ecclesiastical calendar was changed and the new was enforced. These anxieties of his increased as the years went by, and he beheld many orthodox customs changed. He did not like the abridgment of the church services, the secularization of the clergy, the abandonment of the orthodox way of life. And although he always attended to the essence and not the dry outward form, he believed that these alterations in traditional usages and forms in and of themselves betrayed a certain indifference and slackness toward the faith. That this was the beginning of a downhill slide whose end was unknown. For this reason, he often thought of following the old calendar, especially since he saw that the old calendarists faithfully followed tradition and would not tolerate innovations and transgressions in matter pertaining to the faith. For some time he hesitated and prayed continually and fervently to God that he might reveal to him his will. He awaited some sign, some indication from God that would make it clear to him what he should do. In August of 1942, specifically on the 23rd of the month, footnote, that is according to the new or civil calendar, it was the 10th of August according to the church calendar. Since the Feast of St. Dionysios is August 24th, the Elder Euronymous was being asked to celebrate St. Dionysios' feast according to the new calendar. To return, on the 23rd of the month, on the eve of the Feast of St. Dionysius of Egina, when the hospital church celebrated, Procopius, the then Metropolitan of Hydra, Spetsai, and Egina, called him and told him to get ready, so that on the morrow on the occasion of the church's festival, they might concelebrate. Many priests of Egina, who knew that Father Euronymous was sympathetic to the old calendar, but were ignorant of the vision he had seen, were under the impression that he had stopped liturgizing at the hospital church on account of his old calendarist sympathies. They reported this to the Metropolitan, and he, in order to ascertain the accusation, requested that they concelebrate. Footnote. The truth of the matter is that Father Euronymous, like his contemporary, the Holy Papa Nicholas Planas of Athens, whose holy repose was in 1932, may his blessing and prayers be upon us, quietly celebrated many of the feasts without liturgizing according to the old calendar. That he never liturgized or concelebrated according to the papal calendar, since he had detested, desisted from serving before the change of the calendar in 1924, was very convenient for him, 
and somewhat eased his conscience. To continue, men of God perceive the finger of divine providence behind every action and occurrence. Father Euronymous, who had stopped liturgizing some 18 years before, considered this invitation from the Metropolitan to be God's answer to his prayers. He prayed again all night long and finally decided not to go and concelebrate with the Metropolitan, but to follow the old calendar openly thereafter. He departed on the morrow from the hospital very early in the morning for the hermitage of the Annunciation of the Theotokos, where Eldris Euphraxia was already staying. From there, he sent the Metropolitan the following notification of resignation from the hospital church. Letterhead, to the most reverend Metropolitan of Hydra, Procopius Egina, your eminence, I beseech you to accept my resignation from the hospital, because since 1924 and henceforward, my yearning and also my zeal have been for the Orthodox Church and the faith. Since my childhood, I have reverenced her, having dedicated my whole life to her, being obedient to the traditions of the God-bearing fathers. I acknowledge and proclaim the patristic calendar to be the correct one, as you also attest. Footnote. Many, if not the majority of the bishops and other clergy of the State Church of Greece at that time privately acknowledged that the Julian calendar used by the Church since the days of our Savior was the correct calendar for reckoning the feasts as opposed to the innovating papal new calendar. But for fear of reprisals, they would not proclaim this publicly. To continue, I acknowledge and proclaim the patristic calendar to be the correct one, as you also attest. For this reason, I request of you that you yourself also pray that I abide till the end a genuine child of the Orthodox Church. Signed, kissing your eminence's right hand, I most humbly remain the servant of our crucified Lord Jesus Christ, Eronimos Apostolides. Thus, simply and quietly, without the beating of drums, excommunications, and fanatical manifestations, he simply followed the old calendar the rest of his life. This event did not in any way influence his behavior toward his spiritual children. He received them all without distinction, whether they followed the old or the new. He never preached on the calendar issue. His foremost and principal aim was to instill into his visitors faith and love toward Christ. His chief care was how they progressed in the spiritual life, how they were united to God. He never took part in fruitless and harmful conversations concerning the calendar issue, even when he was challenged to do so. He contented himself with simply confessing that he followed the old calendar since that's the right one, and that from the time the church put the new calendar into practice, quote, things just have not been going well at all. He never permitted immoderate and harmful fanaticism to prevail in his soul. On the contrary, he always strove to calm spirits. Once a visitor asked him, Yaranda, do you follow the old? Yes. Who are you with? She meant, with what faction? With all. But they have quarrels with one another. I am not with quarrels. He was very discerning and refined in his ways. Even when he went so far as to censure, he did it with utmost love. 
Not only did he not cause adverse reactions, but on the contrary, he elicited confession and repentance, which was his intended purpose. Chapter 18. In mine affliction thou hast enlarged me. Psalm 4, verse 1. The lives of the saints are full of trials and temptations. No one ever ascended to heaven with ease. All struggled and were tried as gold in the furnace. In a certain way, these temptations serve as a kind of examination by which the faith and devotion of those tempted is distinguished. Take away temptations and no one will be saved, says the distilled patristic wisdom. And wise Sirach informs us, quote, My son, if thou come to serve the Lord, prepare thy soul for temptation. Ecclesiastes 2.1 When a man is unprepared and does not take this warning into account, he will quickly be discouraged and succumb under the weight of the trials and adversities that unavoidably accompany him. Many times in his life, Father Euronymous received the visitation of divine providence in the midst of temptations and sorrows. And what suffering hadn't assailed this afflicted and hapless bird of Anatolia, as he often referred to himself? Persecutions, slanders, dangers, expulsions, etc., all of which he endured with great and exemplary fortitude, with absolute trust in divine providence and continual doxology to God. In his greatest trials, not only did he not buckle, but on the contrary, at such times he gave himself even more up to prayer with thanksgiving and doxology. But behold how, when he had already passed sixty and was found at the threshold of old age, a new and serious trial awaited him. Father Euronymous, as we said above, knew a goodly number of home remedies by which he used to heal many sick folk. This was known to almost all the people of Egina, and they had recourse to him to be healed of various sicknesses, and especially from wounds. Thus, during the occupation of Greece, a certain German soldier who was serving on Egina had a sore on his leg, which, even though he had gone to many physicians, did not close up. A certain woman informed him that there was a priest there who healed every kind of such sores with home remedies and home medicines. Losing no time, he visited Father Euronymous, asking him to heal him. Father Euronymous initially refused because he fear, feared possible consequences. But at the German's insistence, he yielded, and with a certain salve that he had, he was able to heal the wound. When the German left his cell for the last time, now healed, he left a hand grenade on Father Euronymous's table. Without, whether out of carelessness or on purpose, no one is able to say with certainty. Father Euronymous himself was cautious on this score and did not wish to impute to him any treachery. It could, quote, it could be he forgot it, it could be he was not a good man and left it on purpose, he would say. A considerable amount of time passed after that. In 1945, August 18th, to be specific, he'd gone down to the port city for his usual spiritual industry. There he saw someone holding a similar grenade, which he had converted into a lighter. Soon as he got back to his cell, he threw himself into copying the lighter he had seen. He took the grenade and began to saw off its top with a metal hacksaw. 
Suddenly there was heard a terrifying noise and Father Euronimus was found on the ground covered with blood. The grenade was full of explosive matter and as soon as the same came in contact with it, there was an explosion. Father Euronimus was seriously wounded throughout his whole body and especially in his left hand. While on account of the deafening noise, he lost his hearing. They immediately took him to the hospital of Egina where he received first aid bandaging of the wounds and so forth, and forthwith, on account of the seriousness of his condition, he was conveyed to the Tanzian hospital in Piraeus. For the entire duration of the trip until he reached the hospital, his mind was turned to God and his lips continuously whispered, Glory be to thee, O God, and Kyrie Jesu Christe eleison me. The doctors at the hospital verified that his condition was grave. His eardrums were broken, and his hearing was irrevocably lost. His left hand had to be cut off without fail in order to avoid infection and adverse effects throughout his whole body. Father Euronimus accepted the doctor's conclusion and decision with exemplary patience and a maritic mind. Quote, his will be done, he whispered. He saw everywhere the finger of divine providence and believed that behind every trial is hidden the will of God. The only thing that grieved him was when the doctors informed him that he would have to remain in the hospital for at least two and a half months for medical care. This period of time appeared to him to be quite excessive. Two and a half months away from his cell, from his beloved Hezekiah, was a very heavy and unbearable burden. He did not say anything to the doctors, but he spoke about this matter to God. He prayed much and fervently and implored God and the holy unmercenaries to cut short his stay in the hospital as much as possible. And God, who always hearkens to his faithful servants and together with the temptation, provides the way of escape. First, see 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Comforted him through the holy unmercenaries who appeared to him in a dream and revealed to them that in one month he would be out of the hospital. Indeed, although the doctors amputated his forearm a little above the elbow, and its healing, like that of the other wounds, required long convalescence in the hospital. With the help of God, he was healed quickly. One month after his entrance in the hospital, even as the holy unmercenaries had revealed to him, the doctors permitted him to leave. But his hearing had not come back. He could not hear anything whatsoever. Yet he ceased not to glorify God continually. He did not permit himself even for a moment to grow faint-hearted and lose his patience. Quote, Lord, he said, I had nothing when I came into the world. Thou broughtest me into being. Thou hast given me all. May thy name be glorified. May it be done unto me, however it is pleasing to thy grace. If it is the, to the profit of my soul, take my other hand, too. Surely his patience could be compared with that of the much-suffering Job, and these words of his strongly remind one of the words of that ancient namesake of patience. Quote, the Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. As it seemed good to the Lord, so hath it come to pass. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 121. As the venerable Eurondice Fraxia relates, from August 18th until the middle of the great fast of the following year, no one could communicate with him at all couldn't hear a word. On the Tuesday of the fifth week of the fast, he felt a certain restlessness, a certain anxiety, 
throughout his whole body. Late at night he asked her to take him to the hospital of Egina. On the morrow when she visited him in the morning, she found him much better and well disposed. As he related to her, he had seen in his sleep the holy unmercenaries dressed in the monastic schema and wearing skufus, and they injected him with something. From the pain he awoke and felt completely well. And the most astonishing thing of it was that his hearing had come back, which the doctors he had visited in Athens assured him there was no hope of ever regaining. Father Hieronymus further fervently thanked God and his saints for this miraculous intervention and returned to his hermitage. A short time later, as a token of gratitude for these two miracles, the quick healing of his wounds at the Tanznian Hospital and the restoration of his hearing he built a little church in honor of the holy unmercenaries Cosmas and Damien, about 200 meters distance from his hermitage. This is presently the parish church of the followers of the church calendar on Egina. Chapter 19, The Hermitage Henceforward, advanced in years and disabled, he settled permanently in the hermitage of the Annunciation. This became the place of secret struggles and prayer for him, and a spiritual oasis, a true pool of Siloam, for his suffering fellow men. For the elder Hieronymus, a new page had turned in his life. From his youth it was his wont to entrust everything to the providence of God. Thus it was now also. After his accident, he ascertained that it was the will of God to remain on Egina. The dream of the holy mountain was abandoned. Things of their own led him to perpetuate in Egina the traditions of Cappadocia, where the monks, known as the cave dwellers, that is, the cave dwellers who side by side with their struggles of Hezekiah, which they never forsook, ministered to the poor, the sick, the strangers, and invalids. Father Eronimus believed with the cave-dwelling monks of Cappadocia that the spirit bloweth where it listeth, it does not recognize absolute fixed boundaries of the expressions of the spiritual life. The ascetic who prays day and night in his cell does not differ in the offering he makes to God from him who ministers to the least of his brothers when the loving disposition and the self-offering of the both are for God's sake. And the elder Eronimos combined both these aspects of the spiritual life, that of the secluded hesychist and that of the merciful minister to men in society, to a miraculous and perfect degree. The partial curtailment of his services to the community after his resignation from the hospital church, and more especially after his accident, gave him the opportunity to devote himself even more to prayer. And prayer led him to the height of divine vision where his mind was illumined by the uncreated light. And this illumination of the Holy Spirit he in turn transmitted to the people of God, who as time went by visited him more often. We believe that from the moment he left the hospital of Egina and took up permanent residence at his hermitage, it defined what was to be the most significant passage in the course of his life. He was forced to cut back his other activities, such as the continuous upkeep of the hospital church and various kinds of manual labor, and to give himself up more to prayer. He himself, besides, had from the beginning had the conviction that man's primary pursuit should be this union with God, and for that reason he should avoid any occupation that would hinder him from this goal. 
His activities accordingly were limited chiefly to the three realms, A, prayer, B, benefaction, C, confession, and guidance. St. Abba Isaac the Syrian writes somewhere that for him who struggles in stillness and has no money or other material goods to give out as alms, it suffices to have contrition of heart and prayer. The elder Euronymous, besides prayer, to which he literally gave himself up, and contrition of heart, which was always a given, also found a thousand and one ways to provide those in need with material goods, and in most cases in a marvelous way, without their even asking him. But surely the fact that he spent himself in teaching and guiding the multitude of his visitors, despite his physical weakness, cannot be imputed to him as almsgiving. The venerable Eldris Euphraxia, who was his true disciple all her life and closely served him after his disability, related to us that on many occasions, perhaps to anticipate any possible murmuring on her part because of the fatigue she felt from serving so many visitors, he told her with humility, quote, None, as for us, we don't have any money to give his alms. For this reason, even these few words which we say, they are reckoned as alms. The elder Euronymous had a monastic conscience. He believed that prayer, the union of the mind, the noose with God, was his primary work. And for him, prayer, even the daily services, was not just some formal proceeding, but rather a total giving. He insisted that the church services are indispensable. He never omitted them himself, even if rarely he found himself far from his cell. But he maintained that it was equally necessary that during the time of prayer, a person let himself free, that he might make confession before God. He was wont to say to us, When your mother or some relative dies, do you take up a book to mourn them with? Of course not. The words will come by themselves to your mind from sorrow. It's the same way with prayer. We have to let ourselves confess to God whatever is on our mind. This immediacy and freedom of speech was the main trait of his prayer. He had the feeling of the omnipresence of God to such a degree that whenever he prayed, he wept, this being also a sign of the grace of God. As soon as he intoned through the prayers to begin any service, a sigh was heard and his eyes would run with tears. He had become so accustomed to this condition that he considered it inconceivable to have prayer without tears. That is why he often counsels us, do not rise up from prayer if there does not come at least one teardrop. The daily services he read completely and in their entirety. He usually got up at three o'clock at night and read the midnight service, matins, along with the kathismata of the Psalter and the hours. As soon as he finished the service, he withdrew for a little to his cell, whispering, Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. His mind was always on prayer. Most nights he didn't go to bed at all. He would recline on a folding beach chair he had in his cell, where sleep would overtake him for a little, and thereupon he got up again to pray. In the afternoon, about four o'clock, he had vespers. This service would be attended by three or four pious women who also chanted. It was also attended by any who were there then to visit him and had to go to confession or ask his counsel, usually from his immediate spiritual circle. Before any service began, 
he himself saw to it or commanded somebody else that all the books be prepared so that at the time of prayer there be no interruption or confusion. Quote, in the presence of the king there is order, he was wont to say, and he endeavored during the time of prayer in the presence of God, our king, that there be no disorder and distraction, but that order and attention should reign. He was totally opposed to the reading of the services in an improvised and rushed manner, because prayer in this manner remains fruitless. If you yourself do not hear or understand what you are saying, how is it you want God to hear it, he used to counsel us. His absolute attention in prayer and his continuous and unceasing exercise of it bountifully brought the illumination of the Holy Spirit, which was often visible to his little flock. Many times his face was seen shining with a world-transcending Tabor-like light, whereas not rarely his whole cell would emit a divine fragrance. These were the moments that his spiritual children felt shivers of emotion, which afterwards culminated with his divine teaching. Prayer for the elder Hieronymus was his real nourishment. It was not only spiritual, but that which supplemented even his bodily food, to which he was totally indifferent. He was very frugal. He never bought fruit. If his spiritual children brought him some, then only did he taste any. In the same manner, he was indifferent to all material things. He avoided wearing new rasa, or shoes, and when he had to, he was assiduous to get them dusty quickly. Once he said to us that many years had passed since he had worn new shoes. And the old shoes, where do you find them, Yeronda? The priest from the convent up there? He meant St. Nectarios. He gives them to me. Prayer was not only food for Elder Eronimos, it filled all his other needs also. Through prayer, he dealt with the cold of winter and the heat of summer. He never complained about anything. One night, some of us, his spiritual children, brought him a stove so that he might not catch cold. After he asked us how it worked, and we lit it, within five minutes he said to us, Enough, now put it out because my head hurts from the heat. It is to be understood that we were still shivering from the cold in his frozen cell. But he had another source of warmth, which at an unexpected moment he revealed to one of his spiritual children. I, when I am cold, I pray, and the grace of God warms me. This reminds us of St. Seraphim of Serov, who while he sat outdoors with his disciple in the middle of winter and thick snow was falling upon them, they felt such warmth within as if they were in a hot bathhouse. It was the same Holy Spirit that dwelt in them and warmed them. But the temptations God permitted him to undergo from Satan at the hour of prayer were not few. From the scanty incidents that have reached us, since he himself never spoke to us about his secret spiritual struggles, we mention the following as it was related to us by the venerable Eldris Euphraxia. One night, I heard a great commotion, and when I entered with fear into his cell and asked him what would happen, he answered me seriously, nothing. The elder had received Holy Communion that day. But later, Father Euronimus himself related to Father Nicholas's mother. Father Nicholas, footnote, was the parish priest of the Church of the Holy Unmercenaries, which the elder had built. He was a married priest and quite pious and holy. He reposed many years after the elder. 
Father Nicholas's mother that there had appeared to him a priest with a holy chalice, who told him that he came to give him communion. When the elder asked him who he was, who sent him, and how he had entered his cell, he answered that he had entered through the keyhole. The elder then began to pray and to rebuke him to get out, but not by the keyhole, but through the slit under the door. And indeed, he rushed to the slit, and when his whole body had gone out, his tail appeared, which was over nine feet long. And when it had gone out, there was also heard a great commotion, and the air was filled with a ghastly stench. Many were they before, many years before, when he served the liturgy, and also in later years when he was walking to his cell, who saw that he was about a forearm above the ground, and they marveled at his holiness and sanctity. The cycle of services ended at night, about eight o'clock, when he read Compline along with the Akathis to the Theotokos. Afterwards, he withdrew to his cell to pass his night between sleep and prayer till three in the morning when there would commence the new cycle of his 24-hour glorification of God. If any were to collect the elders' teachings and accomplishments, they would assuredly fill whole volumes. He was an inexhaustible wellspring, and the astonishing thing was that he had the capacity, or was it only capability, the capability to unfold to each one of those exactly those matters which most preoccupied him, and simultaneously to give fitting solutions before he who was speaking to him could even ask. From this standpoint, the elder had no rival. Of all his gifts, that of clairvoyance was possibly not his greatest, but assuredly it was the most impressive. He who spoke with him would be nailed to his chair when the elder, simply and calmly, as if he were relating some ordinary thing, began to unfold to him every aspect of his inner world, even his inmost and secret thoughts. Many times he would reveal things that even the person himself who was speaking to him was not aware of, or which he had never spoken about to anyone. People who saw him for the first time would be astonished at all he revealed to them, and they departed with the impression that they had met a saint. His revelations were so impressive that you would think he was able to observe everything from some other world, as if he had an open window on eternity, through which he was able to see things present and future. The prophetic flame of his preaching, leavened with the fire of love for God and for his fellow man, wrought miracles. Many were the souls that, from the first time they saw and heard him, felt certain stirrings within and were guided to the church. And numberless also were those who arrived at his cell, shipwrecked and left it literally saved. People who met him even once felt such spiritual prophet that they continually spoke of him and were astonished by his holiness. The following letter, which was sent by one of his spiritual children, Archimandrite Nectarios Marmaninos, Chancellor of the Sacred Metropolis of Corinth, is indicative of all that is written above. Sacred Metropolis of Corinth, my reverend elder, rejoice always with the most sweet joy of the Lord. With the deepest reverence I kiss your right hand, beseeching your paternal prayers and blessings. If the Lord permits, I will try to hop over to Egina for a couple of days, and if it is blessed, I would like to visit you to obtain new spiritual strength. The Lord only knows how much profit your holy words procure. 
You cannot imagine how much the young girl with me the last time I visited you was profited. She speaks of your holiness everywhere. Souls that feel stirrings within them toward virginity greatly desire to hear you. What can I do? I will bring one again, just so she can see you. Please do not misunderstand me on account of my audacity. You will benefit souls. Forgive me for my verbosity. Convey my humble prayers to the sister. With deep reverence, I kiss your right hand, your spiritual son, our commandrite Nectarios. The elder's speech was simple, practical, concise, and had the aphoristic quality of Proverbs. You did not encounter in his words complicated dogmatic theories. He always spoke about our Christ, about our Panagia, and about our saints. And if on occasion he was asked about lofty dogmatic matters, he would answer that no one had to be a saint, that one had to be a saint to talk on such subjects. Of course, he adapted the content of his teaching to his audience, but his goal was always to evoke compunction in the hearer and to increase his zeal for repentance and prayer. He had deep humility which made his words even warmer, more full of love, we might say alluring like a fisherman with his bait. Judging and censuring a third party had no place in his speech. If anyone provoked him to make criticisms of this or that person, he would answer, Even if I come out with a judgment, it will not be as I say. I did not see, I did not hear, I do not judge. God will judge. As for us, let us keep silence. He spoke with boldness, but with discretion also. Once he was visited by a certain clergyman who was wont to criticize others very sharply. The ever-smiling and tactful elder was reserved and taciturn. For the hour or so that the clergyman stayed in his cell, the elder spoke very little. The eldress Euphrexia went in and out to serve them refreshments, was surprised at his deportment. And when that clergyman left, she asked him, But Yerunder, why didn't you speak to that priest? He did not come to receive benefit, but to try me. For this reason, I also did not wish to speak. While he had a freely flowing spontaneity, his words were always seasoned with salt. He never said an unnecessary word or anything that would grieve his guest. His speech was always circumspect and above all full of discretion. Following the exhortation of Basil the Great, quote, when needful, see, when needful, hear, when needful, speak, when needful, answer, end quote. He avoided not only speaking idly, but even listening idly. Whenever he heard his interlocutor judge someone, he would stop him with discretion. He stigmatized the sin many times over, but he never judged the sinner. Once the elder was visited by two of his spiritual children, and he was speaking to them about the Orthodox faith and the reverence we ought to have towards the holy traditions of the church. Quote, we have to take great care to preserve our faith, even as it was delivered to us by the Holy Fathers. Today, alas, I behold many disquieting signs. The clergy cut their beards and their hair. They take off their rasa. Monks mill around ammonia square like laymen. What business has the fox at the fair? I heard that at one convent the Archimandrite compelled the nuns to take off the orthodox rasa and to wear one similar to those of the Latins. Where is all this leading to? Ah, uh, I know, Yeronda, someone interrupted him. 
he is so-and-so from such-and-such a holy monastery. Did I ask who he is? Why are you quick to judge? I simply mentioned something I heard. The persons do not matter. It's the actions that I judge in accordance with what I hear. Many times he censured to his face the one speaking with him, always with love, discretion, and humility. But he never said a bad word behind his back. And together with the censure, he consoled. He did not wish, nor did he ever permit a man to leave his cell uncomforted. And he always advised his spiritual children to conduct themselves with discretion in all their dealings. All that he spoke was based on Holy Scripture, the Father's and the liturgical life of the church, and frequently made reference to the liturgical texts themselves. As a rule, he ended his talk with the exhortation, Let's chant something now. Let us worship the word, or it is truly meet. He usually chanted, It is truly meet to bless thee in second tone, as the archangel Gabriel first chanted it in his appearance to an Athenite monk. Often when he spoke, he used parables or examples from everyday life, in order by these means to transport his hearer to things spiritual. The ease with which he made this transition, using very apt symbolic images or allegories, was marvelous. Quote, I marvel at this box here. It was a radio. The other person speaks from the other end of the earth, and I hear him here. So it is with prayer also. We pray here, and God hears us from heaven. All without exception he received with love. Nor was his help limited to spiritual guidance and teaching alone, but when there was need, this spiritual help was accompanied with material help also. He did this without being asked, when he determined that he ought to do it. The money that he gave in these instances was, as a rule, exactly the sum needed by him to whom it was given. There are many, very many examples of such instances. His cell had become a spiritual infirmary, a true pool of Siloam. When a person came out of it, no matter how distressed or despairing he had been, he felt spiritually regenerated, consoled, and full of health. Chapter 20. Daily Ministry After the morning service of matins, the elder rested a little. Then he had a cup of coffee, slung a knapsack over his shoulder, his bag of love, and went down to Egina. In the beginning, this took place daily. Later, toward the end of his life, three times a week. His mission was great. There were souls that hungered and thirsted, some physically, some figuratively. The elder felt responsible for them all. It was necessary to say a word to each in order to console and build up, or to give food so that the hungry would be filled. Let us accompany him on one of these blessed excursions of his, and from the few incidences that have reached our ears, Try to fathom the greatness of his so rich and unobtrusive offering of service. With the prayer on his lips and his mind, he began his descent to Egina at about eight in the morning. As many as met him in the way ran to kiss his hand and receive his blessing, and he, with his blessing, would say a good and timely word to them. In one of the first narrow alleys of Egina, he stopped at a wall of a certain house and cried out to the lady of the house, whose son was scorched by an illness. How are you, E? How is your son doing? How can he be doing, Elder? He's in a pitiful state, and I'm very distressed because the doctor said that he absolutely has to have an operation. Have patience, and God will help. 
God loves us greatly, and whatever he gives is for our benefit, provided we ourselves accept it with patience and do not grumble. God permitted in my case that my hand be cut off. I didn't need it. God knows what he's doing. Better with one hand in paradise than with two in hell. I never said to God even once, My God, why? Yea, not even one time have I ever said it. God loves me, and he knows what is profitable for me. I thank him for all things, and I glorify him. And you also should thank him. Suffering is a gift of God. Many have come to know God after an intense and heavy trial of suffering. One monk on the holy mountain wept and lamented because God had forgotten him and did not send him any afflictions. And should we protest and grumble whenever there comes to us a slight affliction, we ought to be patient and beseech God not to abandon us. Let us entrust our life to God, and may it be done as He wishes. Whatever the outcome may be for us, that's the one in that it is for our good. For God does not want the perdition of man, but his salvation. There is no need for despair. Rather, we should have courage and hope in God. Despair is disbelief. He who sincerely believes in God never despairs. You despair because you don't believe in the power of God who governs all things. Without God, we cannot do anything. Excessive sorrow and despair are of the tempter. When I was in Constantinople and they would tell me to leave, I did not even want to hear of it. I preferred that they should kill me. But the thought comforted me that maybe God wished it. And when I was practically compelled to leave, I learned sometime later that many of those who remained were killed by the Turks. Always say, may thy will be done. Have joy and sorrow as guests, but do not despair. No matter how much sorrow the evil one brings, do not despair. Say, I have my Christ. He was crucified for me and loves me. When you have a difficult case, you hand it over to a lawyer, and you don't speak. He speaks for you. And so it is now. Entrust what bothers you to God, and he will take it over. Run to our Christ. Implore him to give you strength. Do not despair. You are the work of his hands. He will help you. Thank you very much, Elder. You also say a prayer, please, that my son get well. I will pray, but you pray also. In, in any event, my thought says that you should avoid the operation. Have patience for a few days, and God will show his will. Don't worry, your son will get well. I thank you very much, Yeranda. May we have your blessing. It should be noted here that E's son, in fact, recovered in a few days without the need of an operation. As soon as he departed, he met a woman. He called her to himself. How are you, my child, Barbara? Why are you so sad? Listen, your husband, John, is not a bad man, but rather is led astray by the devil. Go to St. Nectarios and pray. Make such supplication he will help you. Your husband will get well. The woman lost her color. The revelations came to her one after the other. This little father called her by name without knowing her, told her her husband's name, understood furthermore that she was going to St. Nectarios to pray because her husband was an alcoholic and was abusing his family. She couldn't collect herself enough to say a thing. She only sought his blessing as she beheld him already departing. A little while later, she visited him in his cell to thank him. Her husband had stopped drinking 
and tranquility had returned to the house. The elder went further on and entered a machine shop. He greeted all who worked there. There were seventeen of them. Immediately all approached him, kissed his hand, and asked his blessing. May God bless you, he said. I envy you all, and I congratulate you. A man should have zeal and should work, not be idle. Idleness brings many evils upon a man. The indolent man is a thief. He steals from the labors of others. He who works benefits both the soul and the body. All kinds of work are good, provided that a man wants to work. Iron, if you leave it, rusts. When you use it, it shines, likewise with man. When he does not work the commandments of God, he rusts. He who is lazy in physical labors will be slothful in spiritual ones also. I admire you because you make such good things. I often marvel at the works of man, the radio, for example. You turn it on and you hear a voice from America, from the other side of the world, and I think that so it is in the spiritual realm also. We pray, in other words, we speak to God from here, where we are, and he hears us in heaven. This is a great thing, so long as we do not become proud in what we do. We see a beautiful garment. Who gets the praise, the needle or the seamstress? The seamstress, of course. We too are a needle in the hands of God. All things are made by God through us. For this reason, we should not be proud. Take care as much as you can to work at bettering the spiritual part. Every man, whatever he wills, he accomplishes. Volition and diligence advance him spiritually. If a man wills it, he is even able to become a saint. God is not a respecter of persons and does not sanctify only certain people because that is what, he, what pleases him, but because they themselves desired it and struggled exceedingly. Holiness came from God as the reward of their volition. My Yerunda, Mishael, would go up into the mountain before sunrise, would lift his hands up high and bring them down with the setting of the sun. When he returned home at night, his clothes dripped from the tears and sweat. And he was a family man and lived in the world. But he had a strong will and much zeal in spiritual things, and for this reason he was able to accomplish what was impossible for others. Then he turned to the owner of the machine shop and said, I have a thought. Maybe it is better that you do not work any more today. It would be preferable to close the shop and have all of you leave, that nobody work. Why, Yeranda, is it some feast day? Why should we not work? No, it's not a feast day, but I fear that something bad will happen. Do as God enlightens you. Farewell, and may God bless you. The owner was somewhat upset at these words of the elders and said, Huh, what kind of jinx is this? First thing in the morning. Don't get me wrong, we love Father Euronimus. We respect him. He's a holy man. But to stop working because he feels uneasy about it? Forward, men, on with the work, and God be our help. Yet not even an hour passed before a deafening noise shook the machine shop. Everybody fell to the floor. The steam boiler of the machine shop exploded, and all the workers were wounded or burned, fortunately not seriously. They took them all to the hospital, where the good elder later visited them to console them and care for them, without mentioning what had taken place in the morning. 
and they all marveled both at his love and tactfulness, and at his clairvoyance. After the machine shop, the elder proceeded to the other end of the harbor, on the road leading to the prisons of Egina. He stopped at the house of an acquaintance of his and rang the bell. The lady of the house immediately came out and welcomed him with joy. "'Good morning, elder. How are you? Please come in and have a cup of coffee.' No, thank you. I can't stay. I only pass by to say good morning. How are you? How is your husband and the children? We're well, Elder. Glory be to God. Everything is going well. The only thing is that, well, my husband, on account of his work, is dictatorial. He's used to giving orders in the army, and he behaves likewise towards us, his family. I'm tired of being around him. I can't endure him any more, and I'm thinking of separating from him. Listen, my sister, there's no such thing as separation. Only death separates. You should not get angry. Speak with kindness. Bring before you the image of a man who is laden with many heavy burdens. What would you do? Wouldn't you run to free him from his weight to give him rest? That's what you should do, my sister. Your love should pick up the burden. Make it your care to love our Christ greatly, and this love will move you to love people also and to acquire patience. Bring to mind our Christ. His sacrifice on the cross was not because we loved him, but because he loves us and poured out his blood in order to free us from sin. Pray, and God will help you. Kneel before your icon corner and say to him, Having been far from thee for so many years, I have grieved thee, living in darkness, but grant me now a little of thy light, and forsake me not, O my Christ. Thee alone do I have. People love today and abandon tomorrow. I am a sheep of thy rational flock. Seek me out, who am gone astray, O God, and have mercy on me. Thy fatherly arms do thou open to me quickly. Footnote, compunction hymns from the Tantra service. Chant when you can, and implore God to bring you close to Him and to give you patience. He is compassionate and will hearken to you, provided that you seek it from Him. At that moment, he was approached by the woman who lived in the house across the street. She was from the Peloponnesus, and a few years ago had gotten married in Egina. Since her arrival, her soul thirsted to find a good spiritual father. She had heard many things concerning Father Eronimos and his holy life, but had hesitated to approach him. She would see him when he visited her neighbor from time to time, and her soul longed to speak to him. But she didn't dare. She had heard that he followed the old calendar, and this made her even more hesitant. That morning, however, she had a very serious problem. Her son, Paul, was suffering in bed with a fever of 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Her great love for her son enabled her to overcome her hesitation, and with great trepidation she approached him. Good morning to you, Father. How are you? Glory be to God. And who might you be? My name is such and such, and I live right across the street. I earnestly implore you, my father. My son has a fever of 104 and is suffering terribly. Would you come to read a prayer over him so that he might get well? The problem isn't with your son, but with you. He meant her pathological love for her son. But I'll come to see him. They proceeded together and entered the house. The woman was so overjoyed that he had agreed to come to her house that she didn't know how to attend on him. 
What can I make for you, father? Shall I prepare you something to eat? No, just make a cup of coffee. How do you like it? Sweet. Let it be sweet, so that we can speak sweetly. The woman ran to the kitchen and shortly returned with two coffees. You love your son very much, but don't worry, he'll get well. I'm very distressed, father, for three days now. He's been broiling with a fever and I don't know what to do. Listen, this wall neither grieves nor rejoices. We humans both grieve and rejoice. But grief should not overpower us, because great sorrow brings despair, which is the greatest sin. It's a lack of trust in the power of God. You have many thoughts, and they tire your mind. Say the creed and the supplicatory canon to our Panagia. Learn it by heart. Begin to chant it so that your mind adheres to it, and our Panagia will help out. She'll help you. Our Panagia and our Lord's precious cross guard man from the snares of the devil. Without fail, kneel half an hour a day. Pray to God. When you have a great affliction, pray without ceasing. Do not stop until you're aware of some relief in your soul. God beholds our persistence and faith and sends his help. If you do not receive, do not depart from prayer. He is compassionate and will give it, but he wants us to seek it from him. And one more thing, do not finish your prayer if there does not come the drop of a tear. When compunction comes, do not speak of it anywhere so that you will not lose it. Compunction is a divine gift. Say the creed continuously, many times a day. Don't wait for Compline to say it. I say it five or six times a day. Whenever I have thoughts, I say the creed and the thoughts vanish. Gather yourself in prayer and do not slacken nor let your mind roam about. The greatest sin is for the mind to wander away from God at the hour of prayer. We have said enough for today. Let's go now to see your son. He approached the bed of the sick boy, took his hand, and then recited the prayer for the sick. Don't worry, he'll get well. Only, I beseech you, do not tell anyone that I read him a prayer. Thank you very much, my father. I've greatly profited from the things you've told me. May I come some time to your cell to see you. What do I, a naughty, sinful priest, have to offer you? Instead of wasting your time coming to me, you'd be better off praying. But at any rate, I do not refuse. As often as you have a need and you wish to come, come. Well then, may our Panagia always help you and divine providence cover you. And he left her house. The poor woman watched him in confusion as he went away. Waves of inexpressible joy flooded her breast from this unhoped-for meeting. My God, what kind of man is this, and all this time I never went to see him and get acquainted? She thought and ran inside to see her son. But here awaited her an even greater surprise. The little thing was already up, playing with his toys. She put in the thermometer and discovered that his temperature was absolutely normal. She was overcome and broke down in tears. She then went before the holy icons, knelt down, and thanked God for this great benefaction of which she was deemed worthy this day. From then on, she became his devoted disciple. The elder, he now proceeded to the marketplace. As he was passing the fish market, the first fisherman who saw him called out with eagerness, Yerunzo, good morning. May we have your blessing. Come, let me give you a few fish. 
Straightway he put a package of fish in his bag. Take a few from me also, Yerunda said the next one, also putting a few more fish in his bag. Likewise, two or three others gave him some fish. As he went on, he stopped before a fisherman who was bent over and sorting out the fishes. He pretended not to see the elder and continued to remain bent over the fish. At a certain point, he lifted up his head and he saw the elder observing him with a smile. I know what you're thinking now. What's he going to do with the fish? Why does he want so much fish? Hearken, beloved. I did not ask for fish, neither from you nor from the others. If you want to give, you give. If you don't want to, you don't give. As for me, from those which you give me, some I eat and some I give away. At any rate, farewell, and may God bless you. Thus he departed. The fisherman, he stood with his mouth open. He had heard a lot about this priest, but to be able to read his thoughts as he had just done was unbelievable. Certainly he was a real saint. From then on, every time the elder passed by, he was assiduous, assiduous with exceeding zeal to put his share in his bag. Coming out of the fish market, the road brought him outside the grocery stores. In the same manner, each of the grocers put some fruit in his bag. To all he said a good word and gave them his blessing. He proceeded now to walk along the pier. At one point he stopped and called out to the owner of a coffee house who was sitting outside his door and was evidently worried. Come here. I know what is happening to you so that you're in despair. Don't be troubled. Everything will straighten out. Just be patient and you'll see. It was a cloud and it passed. Your wife is good, but look. At one time or another, the devil draws all of us down. When you see that you are not able to come to an understanding, do not persist. But you should not hate her, rather you should pray for her. Prayer will bring relief and will give you strength. Only pray with fervor. I, when I pray for my brother, my heart bleeds. I cannot pray without offering part of myself as a sacrifice. I melt after praying. I don't have strength to speak to anybody. I am of the opinion that the prayer a man offers without his heart bleeding from love and pain does not reach God. Flee to prayer for refuge, just as a little child runs to its mother with love. Can it be called love when one forces the child to go to its mother? So should it be with you also. Love God to such a degree that this love will push you into the bosom of God during prayer. And prayer will both give you rest and help her. I'm going now. Give her my regards and my blessing. As soon as the elder left, the man was unable to hold back his tears. Even if he had seen an angel, he would not have rejoiced as greatly as he had from all that the elder said to him. The prelude to this had been a marital fight, and black thoughts were tormenting him. He felt a heavy slab on his heart, and his soul was overcome by despair. But now that he had seen his spiritual father and had revealed everything to him, his heart was softened, and serenity and tranquility spread throughout his soul. Going further down the pier, the elder suddenly heard someone uttering a fearsome blasphemy. It was an electrician who, from his youth, had the bad habit of swearing, thus without reason, at the drop of a hat. He immediately called him to come, and he said to him, Hey, forgive me, my brother. I know that from your youth you have sworn without reason but deep down, you're a good man. I'm going to ask a favor of you. I'll stand opposite you, 
and I want you to begin reviling me with loud insults until you're exhausted, until you empty out whatever you have within you so that nothing will remain, so that you won't have anything left to revile with again. What do you gain, my brother, by reviling the things of God? God has given us everything. Someone gives you a glass of water and you tell him thank you. He has given us so many good things, eyes that we may see the world, ears to hear, and all our senses. Should we not thank him? Do we pay rent for all these gifts? Of course not. Instead then of glorifying him and thanking him for all these benefactions that he gives us for free, shall we even revile him on top of that? You're right, Father, forgive me, I won't do it again, answered the man and left with his head hanging down. He went a little further down along the pier. At a little table sat two fishermen talking. They did not have the money even to drink a cup of coffee, and they appeared to be in despair. The elder drew near them, greeted them, and began a conversation with them. At a certain point, without their observing him, he discreetly left a little money on the table and departed quietly. They who had not said a word to him on account of their depression, when they saw the money, marveled as much at his love as at his discretion and clairvoyance. The elder presently left the quay and went up an alley. He proceeded a little, then stopped at a certain door. He knocked and entered. A young widow was trying to restore order among her children who were hungry and were asking for food. She was poor, could not work since she had three little little children, and didn't know how she was going to provide for them. She welcomed the elder and asked him to sit down. How are you faring, my sister? How are you managing with your children? How can I be faring, elder? Can't you see? A great misfortune has come upon me, and I don't know how I'm going to make it through. I know it, but be patient, and God will help you. Whatever preoccupies us, we should entrust to God, and he will not abandon us, provided only that we have steadfast faith in him. We are all temporary in this life. We are nothing. Where's your husband? He died. He departed. He went to where the true life is. There's where we should set our gaze. All things here below are perishable. We shall leave them all here behind us. Only our soul is immortal. Do not be envious for anything. Avoid the world as much as you can that you may be saved. The causes are what throw us down. Protect yourself from the causes. Guard your eyes, your ears, your tongue, your hands. Do not like pretty and showy clothes. A certain woman in my homeland was widowed when she was young, and she was beautiful, so that they would not take notice of her. She wore old clothes and smudged her face with coals. Care and prayer are needed. God will not abandon you. Oh, and one more thing. If someone gives you something of his own pleasure, do not refuse it, because you both deny him his reward, and you yourself are not humbled. For my part, when they give me something, I never refuse it. If I need it, I keep it for myself, but if not, I give it to others. When I give something, even one drachma or a little blade of grass, my ego goes before. But when I am constrained to stretch out my hand and beg, then I am humbled. He got up, discreetly left on the table, a bag of fish, some fruit, and a little money, and left. The woman thanked him and entreated him to come by from time to time to strengthen her. He proceeded. A little further up the same narrow street, 
We stopped at a certain door, set down some fish and fruit, rang the bell, and departed quickly before the needy woman who opened the door could see him. She then saw on her doorstep the goods which God had sent her. He continued distributing things this way at two or three more doors until he had given out everything he had in his bag. Now unburdened of the weight he had been lugging about, he took the road leading to his cell. A little before he reached it, he stopped at a door on the right side of the road. He knocked, and there immediately appeared an elderly woman with a countenance obviously distressed. The elder put some money in her hand and said to her, Hey, somebody gave me this money and I have no need of it. I ask you to take it, because today you'll have need of it. The woman took the money and thanked him. The remarkable thing is that on that very evening, her daughter, who was with child, suddenly needed to go to Athens and enter a lying-in hospital, and the money the elder gave her was all that she had. He went a little further on. A certain youth was coming down the opposite side of the road singing. As soon as he approached, he called out to him and said, Hey, you chant well, bravo. I don't chant, father. I sing. I don't know letters to be able to chant. And the songs? How did you learn them? Listen, if you were zealous in spiritual things, you would have learned to chant. Increase this zeal. You have a good voice, and you will chant beautifully. He finally reached his hermitage. But before he was even able to cross the threshold, a woman approached him and begged him to give her some money. Help me, father, I'm a widow and poor, and I have five orphans to feed. I don't have anything whatsoever to give them to eat. I know it, you're both a widow and poor, but you have five gold sovereigns hidden away. Why don't you cash them in and feed your children? The woman turned pale. Why, no one knew her secret of the gold coins. How was this priest able to reveal this to her with such precision? Forgive me, father, you're right. She whispered and departed with drooping head to tell her acquaintances that this priest knows everything. He has God's illumination. He finally entered his hermitage. There some of his spiritual children were awaiting him, having come for confession with him and to seek advice. He greeted them all and then said to the elders, Did you treat them to lukumi and coffee? Yes, elder, but come now. I've set the table. I'll keep them company until you've eaten, and after that you can receive them and talk with them. No, none. I'll receive them before I eat. He loved his fellow men and had so much solicitude for their soul's cultivation and their spiritual edification that he preferred even to remain hungry if only he might profit them. He went straight to his cell. He remained alone for a few moments and then immediately invited in those who had come first. It was a couple who came regularly to see him, who had him as their spiritual father. They had made a secret agreement between them never to hide absolute anything from each other without confessing it to the elder. But the wife once contemplated putting aside some money to give as alms to a certain family in great need. Since at the time they themselves lacked money, she feared that her husband might refuse. As soon then as the two of them entered his cell and went to bow and kiss his hand, the elder received them with the following words. Welcome to B, he said to the husband, and then turning to his wife, Welcome to the thief. You didn't make an agreement between you not to hide anything from each other? It was a good thing. Why did you hide the money? If you had asked him for it, 
Wouldn't he have given it to you? Forgive me, Elder, I won't do it again, answered the thief. Her husband hadn't the foggiest idea what was going on. His wife explained the matter to him, and they both marveled yet again at his clairvoyance. In my homeland, continued the elder, there lived a priest monk, Seraphim. He was very meek, humble, and a struggler. One month before he died, he was informed of his death. He called us to him and said, I implore you, and I give you commandment. Whatever man you see, implant in his heart compunctionate prayer, that is, the unceasing prayer of the heart. And whoever knocks on your door for alms, if you have nothing, though it be but one drachma or an onion, give it to him, that he might not leave empty-handed. Today such people do not exist. In Anatolia there were many such. People there greatly loved prayer. I know people who, if a little time passes and they don't pray, they cannot endure it, they suffer. They consider the moments that they want to pray and are unable to as a martyrdom. Others, again, raise their hands in prayer at night, and they don't bring them down till it dawns. Sometimes they pass whole days and nights in prayer. When I was young, for many years, I never slept at home but under the holy table in order to pray. Prayer has great sweetness, but one has to struggle in order to understand it. I pray every night for myself and for the whole world. I even remember all the inhabitants of my village. I begin and I commemorate the names from one end of the village to the other, and after that all my acquaintances. I do not omit the name of anyone. The Lord says that we should shut ourselves up in our closets and pray. You also should endeavor to steal time from your various engagements in order to pray. In the spiritual realm, you ought to become a thief. Make use of the time. The violent seize the kingdom of God by force, and the greatest prophet you shall find in prayer. Let not a day go by without prayer, and prayer should not end without at least one teardrop. How can we acquire tears, Elder? Our hearts are hard as rocks. We have to love our Christ very much, not so much for the future blessings or for the many benefactions with which he has gifted us now, but because he is love. Those who have progressed far in the spiritual realm, when they fall, don't give a thought to the punishment, but they are distressed and their soul is pained because they've grieved God. We should love all and do good to them as much as we can, but our mind should be bound to the love of God alone. Do not be excessively bound to the love of men because they can accompany you only as far as the grave. Today men love, and tomorrow they forget. To God only should we surrender ourselves. If we bind ourselves with men, what shall we give to God? If you love God much and pray with fervor, then the tears will come. Give special attention to the words, Have mercy on me, O God, in Psalm 50 and Compline. Strive to concentrate your mind on the prayer. Say, Give our soul love, O our God, forsake us not. We are the creation of thy hands. We want to struggle, but we are unable. Strengthen us. Thou alone art able to strengthen us, to help us. Thou, if thou wilt, art able to save us. Have mercy on us, O our God. We are alone. We have no protector. Do thou protect us. Many say the prayer, that is the Jesus prayer, but do not reap any fruit. The prayer should be said with the fear of God and not out of habit. 
The prayer has much sweetness. It is union with God. But it is necessary that you feel it in order to experience compunction. And to experience compunction in prayer is not your doing only. It is God's. When he wishes, he grants, provided only that we persist in prayer. And one more thing, if you want the Lord to hear you, never offend anyone. Your words should always be peaceful, sweet, leavened with honey. What else should we do, Elder, to be profited and to progress spiritually? Read the Holy Scriptures and patristic books. I especially recommend that you read Abba Isaac the Syrian, even if it is one page a day. Abba Isaac is a mirror. Therein you will find yourselves, and whatever you read, reflect. Do I put this into practice? Strive with zeal to lay a good beginning. This is the purpose of these books, to teach us virtue. I love the blessed Abba Isaac very much. I have him as my elder. Many times the nun says to me, Elder, let me read to you, since you can't on your own and you don't see well. And I tell her, let me make an attempt to read by myself, because that way I feel things more deeply. He who reads is like one who harvests, whereas he who hears is like one who gathers the ears of wheat that are left behind. Elder, so-and-so said something nasty to me, and I'm distressed. I feel a disturbance within me. What should I do? Listen, the grocer, whatever he has in his basket, that's what he shouts. You, on your part, see to it that you have good thoughts, so that what comes out of you, your words, may be good. Never speak a bad word because it doesn't go away. Pepper is not eaten like sugar. A monk once spit out blood, and they asked him, What has happened to you? Why are you spitting out blood? And he answered, Because they said a bitter word to me, and within me it became blood. The work of a Christian is great. He will either be burnt or he will be saved. Pray for the other man also, that God might enlighten him. If he understood, he would not speak badly. When then that they are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. Romans 15.1 Prayer will soften your heart and you will quiet down. Well then, you be going now because others are waiting also. May divine providence cover you. We thank you very much, Elder, and do pray for us. I will pray for you, but know that if you are not found on the other end of the line, that is, if you do not also pray, God will not hear my prayer. If I telephone you and you don't pick up the receiver, will you hear my voice? No. You ought to pray also, so that God may also hear my prayer. Farewell, Elder. May we have your blessing. May you have the blessing of Christ and the Panagia. As soon as the couple left his cell, three young men entered. They immediately made a bow and kissed his hand. Bless, Elder. The Lord bless. Have a seat. How is the spiritual life going? Are you struggling? Care is needed in prayer. Be careful with your senses. Wherever you find yourselves, whether at home or on the way somewhere, pray. Do not look with curiosity here and there. As often as I come from Egina to my cell, I don't look either at windows or at doors. It's possible even without wanting it to see something and be scandalized. Many times until I reach my cell, I say the creed continuously. You do likewise. When you walk in the street, say the creed or whatever other prayer you wish, and God will protect you from temptations. Do not take notice, do not look at, and do not listen to what does not concern you. 
Take heed to all things concerning yourselves, even your movements or the way you dress. If someone is scandalized by your conduct, you will give an account on the day of judgment. Have it as a rule in your life that whatever man you meet, you are careful either to be benefited or to give benefit. Otherwise, flee. Avoid idle talk. For the forty-some years that I have been a clergyman in Egina, not once have I sat at table with anyone. When they are insistent, at the most I'll have coffee, nothing more. Too much boldness, freedom of speech, and familiarity weakens a man's resistance, and little by little temptation enters and gives rise to grave situations. For this reason it is better to refrain as much as possible, and when you perceive that there is a possibility that a danger and a scandal could come about, don't take anything into account. Just flee far away. Never permit the physical to overpower the spiritual part. Be careful of your noose. Do not permit anything to captivate it and separate it from God. If you pray, and in the course of the prayer you remember me or any other person, endeavor to distance yourself from him immediately. Otherwise, that person will be your greatest enemy. Elder, what should we do to protect ourselves from sin? Be heedful of your thoughts. Oppose them. They do not easily leave a person. They come over and over again and war against him. But you strive to chase them away. There comes an evil thought and it tells you to do something. You counter saying, no, I will not do it. The thought insists. You insist, too. See to it that you have strength to chase it away. If you don't do what the thought tells you, it's not a sin. Sin is the act, not the assault of the thought. But there is need of care because many times the thoughts are elicited by ourselves, by our passions. On most occasions, if you do not give cause, the thought does not come by itself. For example, if you look at something with evil intent or just with curiosity, that which you saw will come at night, and especially at the time of prayer, to torment you. The fault lies in our passions, which we allow and do not war against them. Since we do not endeavor to avoid the causes, then it can't be otherwise. The war will come. But even then we should not be negligent, but we should fight. In such instances, of course, the warfare will be harder. There will be need of a more intense struggle to overcome our thoughts. For this reason, it is better to avoid the causes of the passions. There is need of great care. If you are not thus careful, or if you allow the thoughts to take root, the tempter will leave you in tatters. Take refuge immediately in the prayer. Prayer is the greatest weapon. Make the sign of the cross and say, Most holy Theotoko, save us, or O cross of Christ, save us by thy might. If you call upon God and the Panagia and pray with humility, you will quickly be delivered from the evil thoughts. But you should not relax your vigilance. Take heed continuously, secure yourselves in order to escape this war of thoughts. If your mind is found continuously in spiritual things, if you give a spiritual significance to whatever you see and hear, then the enemy will not be able to find any way in by which to enter and will depart. Uh, likewise, be careful of something else. After any good deed or after some spiritual joy which you might possibly experience, Take heed lest you be tempted by a thought of pride, because not only will you lose what you have gained, but the war that shall follow will be greater. The enemy is full of envy, and if he is unable to hinder the good work, 
he tries to blacken it with thoughts of pride. If you do not drive away these thoughts, God will allow a fall so that you might come to yourselves. Lucifer was not driven out of paradise because of evil deeds, but because of his pride. He stopped for a little and then, addressing himself to all three, he asked, Tell me, which has greater strength, water or fire? Uh, water, elder, answered one. If we have a great fire and you pour out a glass of water, will it be put out? No, elder, the fire has greater strength, said the second. If you have a little fire and you pour out a big can of water, will it be put out? Yes, elder. It is neither the water nor the fire that has greater strength, but the quantity. So it is also in spiritual things. If the worldly way of thinking prevails within you, that will overcome the spiritual. But if your mind is turned to the spiritual, it will overcome the carnal. In Anatolia, I knew a certain priest who had a very beautiful voice. He also played the violin. Once he was invited to a wedding together with the bishop. At table, they asked him to sing a little, but he was embarrassed and would not sing. The others understood this and entreated the bishop to permit him to sing some song. He gave him leave and the priest began to sing. But with the song, he got warmed up and then wouldn't stop for anything. So at a certain point, the bishop said to him, Oh, that's enough now. Stop. Then the priest took off his his kalimavki, set it on the table, and answered, My bishop, over this alone do you have authority. As for me, no one can stop me now. Thus also it is with the man who comes to experience the sweetness of prayer. No power is able to hinder him from praying. You have to struggle to increase your zeal for God. It should become for you a daily way of life. Struggle for perfection. If you can't gain a drachma, gain at least a tenth of a drachma. Virtues are not acquired easily. There is need of struggling. And know that if we acquire virtue quickly, we shall also lose it quickly. Whereas if we acquire it with labor, it doesn't go away. Have zeal. Obstinacy is one thing and zeal is another. Obstinacy is a fault. But if it is transformed to zeal for spiritual things, then it becomes virtue. Try to gain this divine zeal. If you do not have persistence and zeal in the spiritual realm, you will quickly be brought to your knees. And at the first difficulties you encounter, you will give up. Do not expect in your life to encounter joy all the time. The path of man has more thorns than flowers. You have to be very strong so that nothing will be able to shake you. Even if all are shaken and all oppose you, if you have zeal for God, if you are strong and have our Christ in you, fear not. It is only from ourselves that we are in danger, not from anyone else. Everything depends on our will. My hand is not able to steal if I do not wish to. What you do apart from your own will and volition has no value. A small child, if it takes communion and afterwards you tell, you tell it to spit, it will do it. It doesn't know and consequently has no responsibility. But it also has no virtue. It has to know and not to do it in order to have virtue. If you want it, the grace of God will visit you. If you leave the window open, light will enter. But if it is shut, no matter how much light there is outside, from what quarter can it get in? All things are dependent on us, on our will. I teach you, but if you are indifferent and do not listen, you sustain the loss. 
I throw you an apple. If you don't catch it, I am not at fault. Elder, how often should we receive communion? Receive communion often. I won't say how often, even as there is no need for me to tell you how often to eat. When you're hungry, you eat. So also with Holy Communion, see to it that you hunger for Christ. And be careful, before you take communion, read without fail the service of Holy Communion. Delve deeply into the words of the prayers. They will help you come to compunction and will bring you to tears. Without tears, do not receive Holy Communion. One of the three young men had a special calling to the priesthood, addressing himself to him. The elder said, Struggle in humility and entreat God to enlighten you, whether it is his will to serve him at the altar. You are still young and are not able to understand the depth of the priesthood. The saints avoided the priesthood out of great piety and reverence, not because they did not want, did not love it. Even some went so far as to cut off some member of their body, such as their ear or nose, lest they be compelled to become a priest. The office of priest is fearful. He who is to be ordained a priest should be blameless. Theophylact of Bulgaria says that if someone has killed even a bird, he cannot become a priest. The priest should be an example in all things, because whatever he does, he is observed by all. Even his gait and the movement of his hands should not be disorderly, but restrained and modest. When you are in friendly company and find that others know more than you, don't talk, just listen. But when the others are weaker than you, then you are obliged to speak, but only as much as will benefit. Wherever you go, profit should ensue. Whatever harms or scandalize, leave it alone, give it no attention at all. Never be ungrateful, show gratitude to all, but also find a way to avoid all. And when you are amid the world and you wish to pray, do it inwardly. In spiritual things you have to be a thief and exploit, if possible, every moment. Love the whole world, but not to excess. And in your prayer, chase everybody away from your mind and think only of the Lord. Watch your senses. Just as in a house we close the doors and windows in order to be safe, thus also in the spiritual realm we secure the senses to protect the health of the soul. But we should take care for the health of the body also, so we have the strength to work for the soul. Well, now, let's go see what the nun has prepared for us to eat. You shall stay so that we might all eat together, since it's past mealtime and you're probably hungry. It doesn't matter, Elder. We should be going. No, be obedient. We'll eat together. It's nothing, whatever God has sent. They went into the kitchen, where the eldress Euphraxia had set the table. The elder told her to set another three places. He blessed the table, and they all sat to eat. Having eaten a little, he began to counsel the young men again. Elder, eat a little more, said the eldress. You've eaten very little. None will eat again tomorrow. He ate very frugally and greatly loved fasting. He never broke the fast, even if he was sick. He never ate meat, nor was he interested in the kind of food set before him. Whatever was offered him, that he partook of. And as with all the saints, while he was austere with himself, he condescended to others. He did not like extremes in fasting. He insisted more on spiritual virtues. He continued his admonitions to the young men. Fast as you are able, commensurately with your health. Can you lift 200 pounds? Of course not. 
you lift what you can. Eat oil every day except Wednesday and Friday. In all things have measure. Only have humility without measure. Do not leave off prayer. No matter how tired you are, you can pray for half an hour. Feed your body as if you were going to live a hundred years, but care for your soul as if she were going to die tomorrow. But you, elder, eat very little, and we see that you are very enfeebled, said one of the youths. Let me tell you, I attend both to my nourishment and to that which is immortal. In the meanwhile, there was a knock at the door, and the eldress Euphraxi ran to open it. She returned in a little and announced that two girls had come. Tell them to wait a little, said the elder. Treat them to lukumi and coffee. At any rate, you should go now also, he said, addressing the young men. And be careful in the street, and be careful about your companions. It is good to have friends, but avoid frequent meetings. No matter how much you speak spiritually and of things profitable to the soul, you will fall into idle chatter, and you will also lose your quiet. Love others, but with discretion, not to excess. When the faucet runs too much and won't stop, it needs fixing. Have discretion. Salt is what makes food tasty. But if you add too much, it becomes excessively salty and can't be eaten. If you don't add any, it will be tasteless and again is uneatable. Have measure in all things. May God and the Panagia be with you. May divine providence protect you. The three youths made a bow, kissed his hand, and left. The elder came out, greeted the girls, and said, Sit with the nun so that I can rest a little, and afterwards I'll call you. He entered his cell, according to the assurances of the eldress Euphraxia, but also from what he himself told us many times under the form of parables. After each conversation, he wanted to withdraw a little to pray. That which he used to relate, that there are people who, if a little time passes and they're not able to pray, they can't bear it, they suffer, it certainly referred to himself, and it was only out of humility that he ascribed it to others. These intermissions were the hours of the gathering in of thoughts and of prayer, of union with God. After some twenty minutes he called them. He began his admonitions, which he addressed to one of them who was a widow. How are you doing? You seem to me to be better than last time. Endeavor to increase your zeal for spiritual things, and be careful, because you are going to have warfare. Do not wear luxurious clothes in order to protect yourself. When a person wants to practice virtue, he finds many ways. Avoid the causes of temptation. The devil is going to war against you, because all these years in the world you did his will. He is going to war against you, but it depends on you whether he will prevail. Without your own will, he can't do anything. The holy martyrs, St. Catherine, St. Barbara, and the others held the cross in their hand and said, Thy cross do we worship. We do not desire sin. He who loves our Christ has to take up his cross and follow him. In this manner will he mortify his passions. Do not be afraid. The beginning is difficult because you have to change your way of life, to leave the world and to become Christ's in order to be a partaker of his kingdom. Where there is a will, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Luke eighteen twenty seven. In what manner will I be saved, elder? The apostle Paul says, at sundry times and in diverse manners, Hebrew 1, 1. In other words, every man will be saved in proportion to his volition and the struggle he wages. 
Observe the commandments of God. Dig deeply in yourself. A certain youth went to study to become wise, but was unable. Returning, he saw by the roadside, close to a village, a woman drawing water from a well. He approached and saw that the rope with time had carved into the stone lip. He thought, why can I not become wise? And he made the decision to return and continue his efforts. So you likewise have a strong will. Be patient and be persistent in your struggle and you will be saved. Never despair. For God there is no unforgivable sin. His compassion and mercy are an abyss. Pride and despair are from the devil. Why despair since there is a God who is long-suffering? Even if you kill somebody, do not despair. Say, now it has happened. It cannot be undone, but thou, O my God, forgive me. Despair is a great sin. It is unbelief. Have your mind in Hades, but let not despair prevail over your soul. A certain monk in whom the devil sowed thoughts of despair answered him, Why do you push me to despair? Even if I go to hell, I'll be above you. How can I avoid despair, elder? I'm very weak, and the truth of it is it the many times I despair and think that I won't be able to be saved. When there is true repentance, despair has no place in the soul of man. Even Judas the traitor, if he had repented, would have been saved, but he did not repent. He simply regretted his action. When there is awareness of our sinfulness, repentance follows. But repentance has to be sincere, has to be accompanied by contrition of heart. Real repentance and contrition of heart bring immediate results. Now I look to the west. I am a sinner. I turn to the east. I am righteous. But repentance has to be continuous in man. It must never end. If the Apostle Paul said not only that he was a sinner, but the most sinful of men, he who reached the third heaven, what shall we say? This is why I say that we must always repent. David sinned, but afterwards, his whole life long, he would say, Have mercy on me, O God, and he was saved. There is no sin able to overcome the mercy of God. As often as you fall, arise. God forgives immediately, if only we repent sincerely. Elder, many times despondency seizes me, and I have no desire to do anything. How do I handle that? asked the other girl. When the devil fights us, we ought to fight him back. Our greatest weapon is prayer. Do not be negligent. Kneel immediately and pray fervently to God, and quickly you will feel strong. Prayer is conversation with God. When we experience the joy of prayer, then we will feel great exaltation. It is a foretaste of the life of paradise. But you have to struggle in order to experience that joy. And if you struggle mightily, God will give it to you. Prayer leads up to the heights of divine vision. Mishael, my elder, when he prayed, the whole of him glowed with light. And when he reached this state, he no longer prayed with words, but noetically. Words are like the kindling wood until the fire is lit. When the fire is kindled, in other words, when contrition and compunction come, a person is no longer able to speak. He senses and hears God within himself. Then come tears. This is a great gift. Then the man abandons the senses and nothing speaks but the heart, the longing, the sighs that cannot be uttered. 
You have raised us very high, Yaranda. We, we who are inexperienced and indolent, how can we acquire compunction and tears? For tears to come during prayer, the heart has to be pure, without thoughts. Prayer chases away thoughts. When you abandon prayer, thoughts will make war on you. Some say to me, I don't feel compunction in my prayers. What can I do? I answer, you aren't praying right. Come before him with humility and implore him. Weep and beseech his mercy. Then contrition will come to the heart and you will feel compunction. Do not leave from prayer without tears. And you should feel the things that we say, that you say. Do not go to sleep without prayer. No matter how exhausted you are, pray, even if it's in bed, for at least half an hour. When you have your mind in God, then wherever you find yourself on the road, at home, in bed, you are able to pray. Whereas when your mind runs elsewhere, then even if you are in church, compunction will not come, and your prayer will be formal and dry. I try to pray somehow, Elder, but I can't gather my mind. It runs here and there. Listen. Be careful of your eyes and your ears. Let them not see and hear unseemly things, because all that you see and hear will come at the time of prayer and will scatter your mind and will hinder you from being united to God. Likewise in church, we go there to pray. If we are found in church and our mind runs elsewhere, there's no gain. It's like going to the doctor and not listening to his advice. Therefore, before we set out for church, We should think for what reason we're going and should endeavor to gather our noose. At that moment, there was a knock at the door and the elders appeared. Elder, Mr. So-and-so is here with a priest. Oh, good. Let them wait a little and I'll call them afterward. And turning to the two young women, he continued, I am very tired, but what can I do? I feel like a debtor to all. I have done no good to any man. May God account these few words which I say as almsgiving. Well, now you should be going. When you can, come again and do not neglect the prayer. No matter how many cares you have, find a little time, at least half an hour of a day, to pray. Take care that the spiritual part is not harmed. Everything else is temporal. It will not accompany us into eternity. May God and our Panagia be with you. The girls left, and the elder called his two new visitors. As soon as they entered his cell, The elder attempted to bow and kiss the hand of the priest, but he restrained him and bowed himself. They kissed each other's hand. Your blessing, elder, we should make a deep bow to you, not you to us. Listen, I honor the priesthood. As for who's virtuous, God only knows, but the priesthood is the highest office, and it is also the greatest responsibility that a man can undertake on earth. Are you well? I had some time and came to see you. Glory be to God for all things. I pray to God not to take my soul until I have time to repent sincerely, because God desires sincere repentance, not that which is hypocritical and just humble talk. Two elders once quarreled, and one went to the other to ask for forgiveness, but he was not sincere and humble, and did not ask forgiveness from his heart. The other was discerning. He perceived it and didn't forgive him. The first went to his spiritual father and said to him, I quarreled with uh, so-and-so, and whereas I asked for his forgiveness, he won't forgive me. What should I do? The father answered him, You didn't ask from your heart. That's why he didn't forgive you. After a little while, he went back with sincere repentance and said to him, I'm the one at fault. Forgive me. 
and then he forgave him. So it is with God. He doesn't listen to the words. He looks at the heart. As long as we have time, therefore, let us see to it that we repent. Before death, the voice of God comes and numbers a man, either in salvation or perdition. With the last breath, the seal is set. For this reason, a man should always be found in repentance and prayer. And God, right beside the sorrow for our sinfulness, gives us joy. This is the joyous sorrow of which the Holy Fathers speak. There is no life sweeter than the spiritual life. Love our Christ greatly. Today we're alive. Tomorrow or the day after we might not be. No one knows the hour of death. And then where shall we find ourselves? We shall desire with longing to return to this life and struggle more, repent more, love our Christ more, and we will not be able to. From now, therefore, let us be careful not to give sorrow to our Christ. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Say continuously, I am a sheep of thy rational flock, and I flee unto thee, the good shepherd. Seek me out who am gone astray. O God, have mercy upon me. Thy fatherly arms do thou open to me quickly, for like the prodigal have I wasted my whole life. Hymns from Monastic Tantra Service Ah, how beautiful the spiritual life is. If people understood what they're losing by not repenting, they would leave the cities and run to the mountains to pray. Every night before lying in bed to go to sleep, reflect on how your whole day passed. Think if you pleased or grieved God. Your conscience will inform you. If you're not pleased, say, since I am not pleased with myself, how shall God be? And try continuously to correct yourself so that you will not grieve God. A conscience without censure is either pure or calloused and hardened. Since we aren't able to have a pure conscience, it would be good to have at least a certain censure. Then the elder turned to the other visitor. How are you? How goes the spiritual life? Glory be to God, elder, I try. Lately I've been charged to preach, and I don't know what to do. How do you advise me? I'll tell you, if your life is such as to agree with what you teach, and you are an example, undertake it. The saints lived what they wrote and taught, and all who write or speak concerning the Holy Fathers ought to have a corresponding way of life. To preach is good. The rabbit does not fear the thunder of heaven as much as the devil fears the preaching of the holy apostles. But teach only what you yourself practice. If you don't taste sugar, are you able to say how sweet it is? Surely not. Take care to study thoroughly. And whatever spiritual book you read, think, do I put this into practice? If you don't practice it, then the knowledge of it will not benefit you. Theology is not studied, it is lived. Are you a theologian? Then you know letters. You don't have the fear of God. Then you've only learned to trade. There are theologians, a play on the Greek words, God words, who have words but don't have God. Read without fail, even if it's one page a day, the homilies of Abba Isaac the Syrian. After the Gospels, they will be a guide for you. And when you finish the book completely, begin it again from the beginning. What other spiritual book uh, should I read, Yeruna? Abba Isaac. Oh, fine, you told me about Abba Isaac. <clears throat> Do you have another book to recommend? Abba Isaac. I cannot have enough of the Blessed One. 
If I were able to apply even one-tenth of what he writes, I would be very pleased. The other day, there came to me a sacred preacher from Athens, and when he saw the book that I have, the elder had the homilies of Abba Isaac in translation, done by the monk Kalinikos of the holy monastery of Pantocrator on Athos. He said to me, This is no good. It's a translation into spoken Greek and doesn't render the original well. And I answered him, let me understand well and apply those things that it does render, and I don't need anything more. Attend now to make profitable use of the years of your earthly life, to manage them well, because they have their consequences in eternity. Do not judge and do not tell lies at all, even for a joke. It is better to avoid speaking than to tell lies. He is good, elder, and he struggles, interrupted the priest. Listen, do not call blessed and do not praise anyone until death, for there is always the fear lest he fall. And do not despair over any sinner, for there is always hope that he can be saved. Love humility. Imitate the Master Christ. Even as he, being incorruptible, was clothed with corruption, so you also, being corruptible, be clothed with the worm. Are you able to do it, to become a humble worm, to be trodden under by all and not to protest, do this and you will be saved. God is pleased with humility and blesses the humble man twice as much as other men. Every day he blesses all men with one hand, but the humble with both hands. Oh, how I wish I could to be a worm that all might trample upon me. If our Christ, the incorruptible and incomprehensible, was clothed in human flesh, that is corruption, what is it if we humble ourselves? How can we acquire humility, elder? With the consciousness of our sinfulness. If we believe that we are truly sinners, we will humble ourselves. But be careful. Humble-mindedness is one thing, and humble talk is something else. Someone came and told me that he was humble, and I said to him, You always put the I in front. How then are you humble? He, he didn't have a humble word. When they accuse you, do not answer. The man who is patient when accused, God will number with the martyrs. In all things give way, that you might always profit. Even as the iron door has need of the wooden one, so the strong man has need of the humble. For one to come to know God, it is not necessary to be a learned man or a scientist, but to be humble. Do not trust yourself. When you don't know the way and do not ask, you can get lost. When you don't know and you ask, you don't get lost. It is necessary for you without fail to have a guide. Do not desire that, you, that they love you or praise you. He who praises you is your enemy. He is not your friend. He sends you to hell. Do not pursue praise because this will bring you sorrow. If you acquire pride, then God will allow temptation so that you'll be humbled. It is good that we be humbled before our Christ allows the temptations. Above all, do not forget the prayer. Kneel at night before the icons to say your prayers. Feel that you are condemned by your sins before the feet of Christ and implore him, My Lord, thou who becamest man for me, thou wast reviled, thou wast mocked, thou wast spit upon, thou wast scourged, thou didst wear a crown of thorns, thou wast crucified, thou didst pour out thy precious blood. Whereas I have defiled thy image by my sins, I implore thee and entreat thee, condemn me not, Give me time for repentance and confession, that I may weep for my sins. 
Help me, O my God, because by myself, without thy grace, I can do nothing. With these and other such words, speak and implore God to give you compunction. And when compunction comes, do not open up a book to pray. Say those things that you feel, even as a little child speaks to his mother. Bring to mind the sacrifice of our Christ, his martyrdom, his pain, and all that he endured for us. He sacrificed himself for us out of love, and you implore him not to abandon you. He is compassionate, and if you ask of him, he will help you. Also, take refuge often in our Panagia. I love our Panagia very much. You love her also. She is the mediatrice for our salvation. Every object shines under the light of the sun according to its form, but the mirror reflects the entire sun. Our Panagia is a mirror. She reflects all the glory of our Christ. She has become the mother of all Christians. For this reason, all men, because we fear to face Christ on account of our many iniquities, take refuge in our Panagia, that she might intercede for our sins even as we run to our mother with much boldness. Now let's all chant something together. It is truly meet to call thee blessed. I like this very much. You chant also when you can. If any be merry, let him chant. Oh, and one more thing, addressing himself to the priest. Do not serve the liturgy ever before you pray at least half an hour with tears. You ought to come to compunction before you serve. And never take heed of money because it is worse than the devil. The worst sickness of the clergy is greed. I have been a clergyman 54 years, and how a baptism or wedding is performed, I know not, precisely so that I might not be entangled with money. May God and our Penegib be with you. May divine providence cover you. And the elder arose and accompanied them to the door. In the meantime, a certain gentleman, much beloved of the elder, had come into the courtyard together with three young men. Footnote, this was the Mr. Kumbis. One of the three youths was the author of the present book, Peter Bosis. The other two later became monks. To continue, they also were waiting to see him. The elder rejoiced to see them, greeted them one by one, and invited them into his cell. It was four in the afternoon, time for vespers, he called the eldress and the two other women who had come to attend Vespers, and they all went into his cell. They brought in the analogian and the books, and when everything was ready, the Yerunder said, Through the prayers of our Holy Father, and the eldress read the ninth hour. The elder also chanted at Vespers. Despite his fatigue, he chanted with ardor. His voice was melodious and stentorian and throbbed with emotion. It was impossible for anyone to observe him without feeling emotion and hot tears rolling down his face. He had the power to transmit his own spiritual state, at least in part, to those present. As many as had the good fortune to attend these blessed gatherings will never forget the Tabor-like spiritual exaltation that prevailed. And for all, the one dominant thought at such moments was, it is good for us to be here. The elder chanted the doxot Doxstikion, with tears noticeable in his eyes. At the end, when he had said the dismissal, everyone took his blessing. The women left, and the elder remained with the three youths and the gentlemen occupying them, accompanying them. None, make each of us a coffee and to drink now and bring some sweets for the boys. 
How are you, Elder? Glory be to God. Today, the whole night long, I was in Bethlehem. I tried to comprehend the great mystery that took place there. The mind cannot contain it. The great God, whom nothing can contain. How was he contained in the womb of the Virgin, our Panagia? Can this be contained by the mind of man? I marveled, at, and my mind was thinking of the beautiful hymns of the Nativity. Why, O Mary, marvelest thou, amazed at that which is in thee? Because I have given birth in time unto the timeless Son. My mind stays there, and I don't want to leave. Without fail, before you die, you must go to worship in Jerusalem. The elder's countenance appeared altered. His gaze looked somewhere on high. It seemed that he had no fellowship with this world as he said these things. Surely during these moments he was living in these holy places, and his mind, his noose, was striving to enter more deeply into the supernatural mystery of the Incarnation, into the, quote, greatest event known to mankind, as he himself would say. He remained silent for a few moments, and his visitors did not dare interrupt this divine preoccupation of his. Afterwards, he continued the conversation. The spiritual life is the art of arts and the science of sciences. The only thing is that for one to come to know it, he has to struggle greatly to dig deeply in himself. Shut yourselves up for one hour daily in your room and think of Christ and what is your foreordained purpose. Quietude is indispensable for the spiritual cultivation of man. You can't stop the wind blowing outside, but you can close the door. Secure the door of your soul. Remain in quietude, lest you be swept away by the current. Hate no man, love all, but also avoid all. Do not pursue frequent visits. They come, they're welcome. They didn't come, it's well they didn't come. Don't get into arguments, avoid talkativeness. Have your mind continuously in God and think of the day of judgment, the hour of death. What manner of ordeal doth the soul endure when it is parted from the body? Behold, the bridegroom cometh in the middle of the night. The hour of death is uncertain. We know not when it will find us. Our bed is a grave. We do not know if we will arise in the morning. We should always be prepared. Increase your zeal for God. A day should not pass without praying for at least half an hour. When two young people fall in love and get engaged, once a week they see each other and discuss all their dreams and desires. Afterwards they separate, and all week long they continually think about all these things they discussed. The mind of the one is glued to the other. The same thing happens with compunction prayer. When you finish, you think continuously on those things which you prayed, and thus your mind is attached to God. Go to church and receive the divine mysteries often and reverence your spiritual father. He tries to bring you close to God. During confession, three are present, God, the confessor, and he who confesses. The work of the spiritual father is to reconcile the repentant with God. All these things, quietude, prayer, confession, and the like, will help you. They will increase your zeal for God. When the tile is fired well in the kiln, even if rain falls on it, it is not quenched. Thus also with the soul. When it is fired up with the love of God, no matter how many temptations arise, it is not shaken. This one, he continued, indicating one of the three men, you have not brought to me before. Where are you from? From Kozani, elder. 
What is your name? Demetrios. Your last name? I go by Yeronikos. No, that's not your last name. It's something else. Yeronikos is my last name, Yeronda. That's my father's last name also. But one of my uncles, my father's brother, has another last name. Even though they're both from the same father and mother. I don't know why, but he is named Sagrias. Is that what you mean? No, it's not that either. Your la real last name is something else. You will learn it later. The young man became confused. This was the first time he met the elder personally, even though he had heard much about him and his gift of clairvoyance from his friends who had brought him here. He was unable to understand at the time the elder's words. He thought that maybe he meant something else or that in this instance he'd made a mistake. A few years later, Demetrius became a monk in one of the monasteries of Meteora. When after the passage of many years he visited his village, he met his above-mentioned uncle who greeted him with the following words. So, you became a monk. Well, bravo, you did well. It was evident that one day you would end up in a monastery. Besides, we have a tradition for priestly things. Your grandfather was a priest and was named Papadoulopoulos. That's our real last name. But they changed it, and now we're called by our nicknames. When your father was little, he was very prudent and wise, like an old man. And everybody called him Yeroniko. And that's the name that stuck. As for me, I don't know why they called me this, and in the end, they changed my name too. These things took place a long time ago. The monk was now left with his mouth agape. He immediately remembered the words of the elder had told him some ten years ago and could not hide his astonishment. He verified then to an even greater degree how illumined that blessed man was whom he had been deemed worthy to meet, who had revealed to him something that he not only did not know but didn't even have an inkling of. He immediately re related the incident to his relatives. After his conversation with Demetrios, the elder began to admonish one of the other young men. Be careful who you keep company with. Speak well to all, but at the same time, do not become close. Keep your distance. Protect yourself. Do not keep company with people who have a worldly mind and tell your secrets to no one. The Holy Father say, Out of a thousand, let one be your friend. When you see that you are angry, don't answer. Go away, and when you come to yourself, think again about what you're going to say with love and peace. When you're trying to do something good for someone, Beware that you don't harm somebody else. Edifying conversation never does harm. The more you wipe a glass, the clearer it gets. But care is needed because with much conversation, we can fall into prattling and judging. I see that you have an inclination for spiritual things. For this reason, I tell you these things. There is nothing higher than the choir of virgins. It resembles the choir of angels. If ever you enter a monastery... Practice three things, obedience, patience, and humble-mindedness. If you observe these things, you will succeed and be saved. Many go to holy monasteries but do not succeed. Whoever wishes to become a good monk should not A. Be educated, B. Know a trade, and C. Have money. In other words, he has to renounce knowledge, renounce self-confidence, and renounce greed. All three of these things lead to pride, which is man's greatest enemy. How can I protect myself from pride, Yelder? Listen, it takes a struggle. 
When they provoke you, do not react. Even if they should spit in your face, do not talk back or get angry. When others disdain you or criticize you, do not be distressed. God will permit some to disdain you, but he will enlighten others to love you. As for you, never return evil for evil. Always offer what is good. If someone gives you pepper, you give him honey. Say this, I have, this I give to you. Pepper I have not. Never admit anger into yourself. Whatever another may do to you, you are obliged to forgive him immediately. Reading will help you much in the beginning. Regularly read the Holy Scriptures and patristic books, but strive to apply the things you read. Otherwise, the knowledge will not only not profit you, but it will fill you with pride. Someone mentioned to me that he had memorized the Gospels and the Old Testament. I answered him, If you don't experience the things you learn, then you have filled the air with words. The spiritual life has need of great care. It is very sweet, but for anyone to experience its sweetness, he has to struggle a great deal. For a man to be saved, he has to wash himself, either in his blood or in his tears. The holy martyrs were washed in their blood. We at least should shed a few tears. Elder, an acquaintance of mine does not behave well toward me, and oftentimes he grieves me, said the first of the company. What do you say? Is it right for me to reproach him? Hit, but do not kill. Everything should be done with discretion. See this stick? If I hold it from one end, it falls. If I hold it from the other, again it falls. But if I hold it from the middle, it stands. Have measure in all things. Someone came some time ago and roundly criticized the clergy. Fine, I said to him. In an olive grove, some trees have gotten rotten and gone bad. What shall we do? Should we uproot all the olive trees because some went bad? The best reproach is that we take pains to show ourselves as an example of virtue. If we are virtuous and perfect, the other person will be embarrassed and will cease from sinning. If you throw oil on the sea, it doesn't sink. It remains on the surface. So with virtue. No matter what others do, it doesn't disappear and cannot be destroyed. It remains and is a praise to the virtuous and a reproach to the sinner. At any rate, if we're careful, we will be able to avoid becoming a scandal. When you see that you are unable to come to an understanding with someone, do not persist. But do not hate him. Pray for him. Only avoid his company. And if he visits you, do not speak without his asking you. And be careful to say what he is able to bear, so that the result is benefit and not harm. As for myself, when I go somewhere or when someone comes to see me, I implore God that when he leaves, I might not feel any censure. What is your opinion about dreams, Elder? It is better for us not to believe in dreams at all, because many have gone astray on their account. There are three kinds of dreams, those from God, those from our thoughts, and those from the enemy. If they are from God and we don't believe them, God does not take offense, because we don't believe them out of fear, lest we be led into deception. If I should come into the night and knock on your door and you don't open to me because you do not recognize my voice, I'm not offended. So it is with God. He is not angry when out of fear of God we don't believe dreams. Wine and vinegar have the same appearance. From the taste you understand the difference. If the dreams are from God, they bring calm. If they are from the enemy, they bring turmoil. 
Beware of deceptions. Better to protect ourselves and not believe anything outside of what our church teaches. The elder paused a little. He leaned back on his folding chair and gazed on high. For a few minutes, absolute silence reigned. No one wished to break it. Then he sat up somewhat and continued. Praxis precedes theoria. Action precedes divine vision. God first created the body and afterwards breathed in the soul. Jacob first worked seven years for Rachel, but he received Leah, who symbolizes the practical virtues, many children. After that, he worked another seven years and received Rachel, who symbolizes divine vision. You are now at the beginning of the spiritual life. You have to struggle to acquire the practical virtues. Struggle with prayer, fasting, according to your ability, confession, divine communion, and the rest. Likewise, read spiritual books, mainly the Holy Scriptures, the Psalter, and Abba Isaac. Have a care to take away time from conversations and devote it to reading. If there is good preaching somewhere, it is good to attend. A sermon is like the rain. It rains and irrigates everywhere. Speech, edifying conversations, are like a small brook which irrigates to a limited degree. If you want your prayer to reach God, be careful not to wrong anyone. Once a stranger visited me and said, a certain acquaintance of mine didn't trust his wife and asked me to keep 2,000 gold crowns for him. Now he's died and his wife doesn't know anything. Can I keep them? How are you going to keep them? Are they yours? I said. But his wife knows nothing. That has no bearing. They belong to her. I'll give you a hundred crowns too. But from what are, what are you going to give them to me? Do you have crowns? Those which you have are not yours. I understand. You don't know. I'll ask somebody else. He obviously wanted to keep the gold crowns, but he sought for a blessing also so that he would feel at peace about it. If he found someone weak, he may have succeeded in his purpose. The only thing that he didn't think about is God. It is easy to deceive people, but God is not mocked. Whatever you do, think that before you is God. This will help you not to sin. Well, now, maybe you should be going since I'm a little tired. I've been talking almost the whole day. May God and the Pentagon protect you and divine providence cover you. Yeranda said one of the young men, This book is sent to you by so-and-so. It was a book by a well-known theologian and author who at the time was also making broadcasts on the radio. Thank you very much, and please tell him that if all that he says and writes he also puts into practice, he shall be blessed. May God and the Panagia be with you. The visitors left, and the elder remained alone in his cell for a little. But it was not meant for him to rest, for the day's ministrations had not yet finished. Ten minutes later, the bell rang again. The new visitor was an elderly and very virtuous priest-monk, accompanied by two nuns. The eldress Euphraxia announced him and immediately brought them in. The elder arose and made a deep bow to him, and each kissed the other's hands. They exchanged the usual greetings and all spoke together for about ten minutes. Then the nuns went out and only the priest-monk remained in the cell. After twenty minutes, he went out also, and the two nuns entered the elder's cell, each one separately. When the first nun came out, she approached the priest-monk and said to him, What a holy man this is, elder. He revealed to me something that only I know. I haven't even told it to you.
Yes, I completely agree with you. He is worthy of his reputation for virtue and holiness, he answered. After the second nun came out, all three entered his cell again to bid him farewell. The priest monk then answered him, Elder, I would like to go to confession. Will you receive me? No, I am not able to confess you. It would be better if you found some other virtuous spiritual father to hear your confession. After this, all three of them left, but the nun who had made the favorable critique of the elder's holiness was grieved. Her elder was very virtuous and also had the reputation of being a holy spiritual father. Why then did Father Euronymous not accept to confess him? For him not to have accepted my elder for confession, she thought, it seems that he might not be that holy, and maybe that revelation that he made to me was just a coincidence. But what astonishment she experienced and how much her awe and reverence for the ascetic of Egina increased, when on the next day, through an acquaintance, the elder sent her word saying, Tell T not to be angry that I didn't confess her elder. As soon as he entered my cell, his whole face shone. How then could I confess him? As the priest monk with his synodia were leaving, a couple with their daughter entered the hermitage. They were shipowners and well known to the elder. They visited him regularly, especially the wife, and made their confession to him. Their other daughter was seriously ill, and at that time was staying in one of the convents of Egina for rest, quiet, and spiritual reading. They were on their way to see her, and passed by first at the elders to get his blessing. Forgive us, elder, we're a little late. It doesn't matter, come in. They all entered his cell. How are you doing? Are you well? Glory be to God. Elder, for all things, you know our woes. May his name be glorified. Just pray that our faith does not fail us. Listen, God, along with the temptations, also gives patience. He never gives more than we are able to endure. For people who love God, all things work for good. I will pray for you, but it is necessary that you pray also. Pray and beseech God to give you faith and patience to be freed from thoughts of despair. The saints had power to rebuke the enemy. We, when we have temptations, ought to take refuge in our Christ and Panagia, just as a little child runs to his mother. He then turned to their daughter, who was married with children, but was confronted with many great personal and family problems. And how is it with you? Are you better now? No, not so well, Elder. Tell me, do you have a house? Yes, Elder. Do you have a car? Yes, of course. Do you have servants to help you in the house? I do. Did you ever work in a factory in order to live? No. And then you also want not to have woes. It can't be. God loves us, but often we don't understand it. If we enjoy everything here on earth, then we will forget God. God gives us opportunities to come to know him, if only we take hold of the messages. He finds a thousand ways to make us come closer to him. St. Basil says somewhere, make weakness material for virtue. No matter what evil comes upon us, if we have patience, it is possible that that which we see as evil will guide us to virtue. The greatest evil is to become estranged from God. I know it's difficult because you are accustomed to a worldly life and it will be difficult for you to put away its memories. Effort and struggle are needed. But if we make even a little effort of will, God will strengthen and support us. Do not worry and do not despair. God is great and loves us greatly. He saved the thief on the same day. And shall he abandon us? 
I, Elder, I used to play cards, but now I've stopped, said the father with a fair dose of satisfaction. Well, the illness left the hand and went to the foot. This seemed to trouble him somewhat, and he went outside into the courtyard and started pacing about. The elder addressed his wife and said, I grieved him a little, but what can we do? When we are freed from one passion, it's necessary that we take care not to acquire another one, and pride is the worst of the passions. After a little while, he approached him and said some comforting words to him, and he calmed down and left benefited. After these last visitors had also left, the elder withdrew to his cell. The time was approaching eight o'clock. He rested for about ten minutes, and afterward got up and read Compline and the Akathis to the Theotokos. When the service ended, he closed the door of his cell and remained isolated in this secret treasury of his spiritual struggles until three in the morning, dividing the time between sleep and his beloved prayer. As the eldress Euphraxia would relate to us, many nights it happened that she passed outside his cell and heard him praying with sighs and sobs and contrition of heart, so continuing the tradition of compunctionate prayer that he had been taught by Mishael, his elder. In this way, he recovered that necessary spiritual strength which one is able to draw only from God in order to continue on the morrow the same laborious work with new experiences, new visitors, and always with the same kindness and love. Chapter 21 My Strength is Made Perfect in Weakness His fame as an excellent father confessor and, and clairvoyant saint passed beyond the boundaries not only of Aegina and Athens, but even of Greece. The faithful who visited him, even from abroad, continually increased, and the elder spent himself in hearing confessions and giving guidance and doing works of kindness and in prayer. The years were passing, his age was advancing, and his much-afflicted body began to be weighed down from asceticism and privations. But he persisted, as much as he had strength, in fulfilling the work of God. His love for God and his fellow man was so great that he disregarded the labors and hardships for the sake of benefiting his neighbor while not being deprived himself of the joy of asceticism and prayer. He would not stop receiving the continually increasing visitors. Even when, having just passed the age of 80, his health showed signs that it was beginning to break down quite seriously. His body seemed unable to continue its exhausting service, but his spirit was willing. He was so aflame with love and zeal for God that he did not take his bodily weakness into account and gave himself over with unmitigated intensity to his beloved occupations. In the summer of 1964, we observed the first disquieting indications. Somewhat protracted colds and a certain persistent little hoarseness of his voice indicated that his health had suffered a serious breakdown. He seemed no longer to have the previous ease in his motions. Certain traces of fatigue marked his face. But everyone attributed it to normal physiological wear after so many visitors that he received daily and the continuous admonitions that he was obliged to give. About two years passed like this with the same annoyances and the same fatigue and the same spiritual intensity. It seems that he had decided to continue his spiritual ministry until his last breath, sacrificing himself rather than to withdraw and rest in order to protect his health. 
He did not wish under any circumstances to abandon the least of his brethren, who ran to him to find consolation and refuge in their sorrows. He became in the end a living candle, which consumed itself in the service of God and neighbor. In the summer of 1966, things began to worsen. The cough had become very persistent and prolonged. Many times he coughed so intensely that he could stop only with difficulty and had no strength either to move or to talk. Some of his spiritual children of his immediate circle, when they saw him in such a condition, implored him to enter a hospital in Athens for examination. There they would be able to ascertain the cause of these annoyances and some sort of therapy would likely follow. But he persistently refused to leave and be away from his cell. His only concession was to have a chest x-ray taken at the hospital of Egina, but this was without results since it did not come out clear at all. In the meantime, the cough grew continuously worse, while a sharp pain in the left side of his stomach began to bother him. Seeing his unyielding opposition to being taken to Athens, we thought of visiting him with a doctor friend as much to examine him as also to try to convince him to go to the hospital in Athens, if he judged it necessary. And in fact, we visited him with the doctor, John Musakis, who verified that his condition was bad. But he couldn't diagnose the illness before seeing the results of certain special examinations he judged necessary. Yet before he was able to recommend that he be admitted to a hospital, the elder surmised his intention and said to him, I am not going to Athens. In vain did the doctor and all of us try to make him change his mind. He would not be persuaded. In the end, the attempt was abandoned lest we grieve him further. The elder, in spite of his terrible condition, was well disposed and discussed spiritual subjects with the doctor, whom he met for the first time. He rejoiced to make his acquaintance, because he was truly a most honorable and conscientious man. Even jesting with him at one moment, he asked him, Tell me, if you were born again, would you marry again? The doctor was married and, ha and the father of two daughters. Hmm, I probably would marry again. Apparently, the first time didn't correct you, answered the elder, moving us all to laughter with his humor. humor. The elder deeply loved monasticism as the most perfect expression of the Christian life, and he desired, if possible, that all men might become monks. But he was always careful and discreet in his recommendations. The doctor finally left, having first recommended with love that he enter some hospital in Athens for examinations. A few days later, since the symptoms worsened, the eldest Euphraxia was compelled to invite Dr. X from Egina. He examined him and also recommended that he go to the hospital in Athens for exams. When the elder repeated to him that he did not want to leave his cell and for this reason did not want to go to the hospital, the doctor knelt before him and implored him with tears. Yerunda, Egina needs you. We all have need of you. I implore and beseech you to go to the hospital. It could be that you'll get well there. Do not refuse, I beg you. Do it for us if you won't do it for yourself. The elder was moved by these love-filled words of the doctors. He embraced him, he kissed him, and declared to him that he would give way before his love. 
He himself had never believed that he functioned as a spiritual leader and instructor for the inhabitants of Egina, even though he had spent his life in the service of all. In spite of his enormous offering, he had the consciousness that he was an unprofitable servant who is a debtor to all. But he was exceptionally sensitive and he yielded to doctors' humility and love. The doctor at that moment evidently represented all the inhabitants of Egina who understood his beneficent presence on the island. Thus, after his spiritual children undertook to find the appropriate hospital and to arrange what was needed for his admission, the elder left on the morning of September 13th for Athens. He was very feeble by now and could barely walk. They put him in a car and drove from his cell to the harbor. As the car was boarding the ferry boat, the mailman who was passing by there noticed him and approached him to give him a registered letter. The elder immediately handed it over to the eldress Euphraxia with the injunction to open it and give him what it has inside. The eldress Euphraxia obeyed and discovered that in the envelope beside the letter was also a handkerchief which she handed to the elder. He made the sign of the cross over it with his hand and told her to return it to the address of the sender. Later, when the eldress Euphraxia read the letter, despite the fact that she was accustomed to such signs, she was unable to hide her emotion and her wonderment at the elder's gift of clairvoyance. The letter had been sent from America. A sick man who had heard many things of Father Euronymous's holiness had acquired very great faith in him. So he decided to send a letter with a hand handkerchief that the elder might only make the sign of the cross over it and return it. It would be enough for him to touch it himself, and he would be healed, since he was unable himself to make the long journey to Greece. The elder, even before he opened the letter, knew everything. The faith of these simple Christians toward the elder Eronimos was so great that it reminds us of the fiery faith of the first Christians of the apostolic era. The car finally conveyed him to Piraeus and from there to Athens to the hospital Alexandra. I had as probably the greatest blessing of my life, not only to know him and to have him as my spiritual guide and instructor, but also to be at his side nearly all night and day from the first moment that he set foot in the hospital until the moment he let out his last breath. I was able in this way to follow at very close range a saint's last struggles in the preparation for his exodus, his deep faith, his great love for God and man, his Job-like patience, his indomitable spiritual strength. His whole life was characterized by an insatiable thirst for the kingdom of the heavens, a seeking for the kingdom of God, and communion with the persons of the Holy Trinity. And he encountered God within himself, digging deep within, in his heart. For this reason, he was able to face all his trials, even the last one, with heroic perseverance, having absolute trust in the love of God. These days that I lived close to the elder Euronymous are the most moving and most significant of my life. The elder's admission into the hospital had been previously arranged, and it was unnecessary to go through many formalities. He was quickly transferred to a private room, and the examinations began almost immediately. Notwithstanding his illness and the hardship of the trip, he was pleasant to all the hospital staff, doctors, and nurses, and even had a good word to say. 
He even had the disposition to jest with the male nurse who rendered him the first services, a simple man named John. John, don't scrub too much, he would say to him. Take a look at this arm, he raised the stump of his left arm. Scrub, scrub away at whatever's left. The elder's first days in the hospital passed without anything special. The examinations followed one after another, blood tests, x-rays, and so on, but without indicating anything in particular. The doctor's attention was turned mainly to the lungs because there was an intense cough and his breathing was not normal, but was done with difficulty. In the end, they drew fluid from his lungs for acidological analysis, the results of which would come out in about a week. The days that followed were nightmarish. The elder suffered exceedingly. On the one hand, the shortness of breath and the coughing tormented him, and he was unable to breathe easily. On the other, he had various other symptoms, pains in the chest, in his legs and feet, and other points of the body. And above all, an interior heat, which he felt was burning his entrails, whereas exteriorly his temperature was normal. His singular relief was to refresh his hand in a little cold water. The more that the days passed, the more his condition worsened. To the above-mentioned symptoms were added sleeplessness, dizzy spells, giddiness, and a tendency to vomiting, which made him suffer even more. His answer to all these physical sufferings was prayer. There was never heard the slightest murmuring, nor any complaint. He continuously glorified God. On the occasion that we understood from the contortions of his face that he was suffering more severely, the only thing that he was wont to say was, Lord, do not take me if I don't become all thine. His anxiety was not over the outcome of his health. That was in the hands of God. If God willed that he get well, it would be so. If not, may his will be done. That which concerned him was finishing the course, his salvation. After a whole life of struggles, prayer, and communion with God, he still desired repentance. As for the rest, it appeared that, that Paul's for me to live is Christ and to die is gain had become for him a fact, an experience of life. All these days of his cruel trials, he not only showed a meritic patience and submission to the will of God, but he even set himself aside and endeavored to benefit all that came to him. Even before he left Aegina, all necessary measures had been taken so that it would not be known which hospital he had entered. We were afraid that if the contrary happened, his spiritual children would inundate the hospital, and the elder's love for them would certainly be stronger than the doctor's orders for complete rest. But it was not long before he became known in the hospital. In the clinic in which he was hospitalized, all the nurses were religious. They belonged to religious organizations and truly performed their work with a great deal of love, with singular dedication, one might say. Those among them who first visited the elder for medical reasons quickly discovered and communicated to the other nurses also that this was a holy man. Slowly but surely they began to visit him more frequently with the excuse that they had come to bring him medicine or to tidy up the room. They lingered as long as they could speaking on spiritual subjects with him. The secret did not remain confined to the nurses and doctors of the hospital, but spread to their relatives and the visitors of the other patients in that wing, and the circle progressively enlarged. 
His room was transformed into a spiritual infirmary. Often, outside the door of his room awaited a great multitude of people. They begged the eldress Euphraxia to permit them to enter, if only to kiss his hand. And he, who often perceived what was happening outside the door, yielded to their love and told the eldress to open to them. To some of those who came by and kissed his hand, he didn't say a word. But to others, he said a few words or asked them questions, which often brought them to perplexity or embarrassment. We convey some of these conversations of which we were witnesses. What is your name? Demetrios. How many girlfriends do you have? None. Listen, I've been a spiritual father for 53 years. Tell me the truth. Right now, I don't have any. Ah, uh, you had, and you left them. You have not left them. Leave them if you want to get well. The young man, he left with drooping head. When he was gone, the elder told us the girls he has had relations with were circling around his face. To a young woman who was sick, approaching him with disheveled hair and supported by others, he said, As your hair is all disheveled, so are your brains. Take to gather your mind and cease from sinning, and you'll get well. Yes, Father, I'll try, answered the young woman and left crying. A certain elderly woman, as soon as she entered the room, knelt, and in this position she reached his bed, kissed his feet. The elder was conscious of her, but did not protest, remaining motionless. When she came closer, he stretched out his hand and said to her, This has the blessing, and not the feet. Humility is good, but empty, humble forms is pride. Humility requires contrition of heart and not display. Take care to become humble, and you will be saved. The woman departed pale and pensive. Such incidences are without number. Everyone was left astonished by this priest's holiness and gift of clairvoyance. When during the doctor's visits we came out to the visitor's lounge of the hospital, we heard nothing else save the conversations of the patients and their relatives about their impressions of Father Eronimos. My good one, that man is a saint. He revealed everything to me. He even told me that I have to fulfill a vow that I made when I was young and myself had forgotten about. What a shame that I never met him earlier, that such a saint should be around and we didn't know it. He told me astonishing things too. He even told me a great deal about my husband, whom he has never seen and described his character exactly. He told me that he is a very good man and generous, but that he swears and doesn't go to church. And that really is the case. He's very good and I have no complaint except for the things this holy man told me. To me, he revealed something that with so many details and such accuracy that if I weren't sure that no one else knew of it, I'd say that somebody revealed it to him. It's astonishing. This man has made me to believe that there really are saints and that everything that's written about them is true. What a blessing this is, my God, that I should get to know a saint. And I think that what happened to me hasn't occurred to anyone else. Without my telling him, what I had, he told me that I would go get well and would not have need of an operation, though I was scheduled to have it the following day. And as he said it, so it happened. The operation was postponed, and do today the doctors told me to leave because I'm well. This man has God in him. 
He is a saint, otherwise these things cannot be explained. The longer one was around him, the more one learned of further signs and prophecies done by this holy man. Everybody waited for the door to open so they could go in, to see him and hear him or even just kiss his hand. As the report spread quickly that in such and such a room they had a saint for a patient, the line of those waiting outside his door continually increased. One of the spiritual children of the elders' immediate circle was Mrs. S. Her mother suffered from Parkinson's disease, and since she had no one to take care of her, she didn't come to the hospital very often. But one evening she left her young niece to watch over her and rushed to the hospital to offer her services to the elder, even if it were only for a few hours. Five minutes had not passed since she entered the elder's room when he asked her, Did you leave anyone with your mother? Yes, I did, Elder. Whom did you leave? My niece. Depart quickly, your mother is alone. But yet and I left her with my niece and only then departed. She's not by herself. Go quickly, now she's by herself. The one woman was confused. She wondered what she should do and finally decided that the two of us should go down to the pastry shop next door and phone. She called home, but no one answered the telephone. She was surprised. What could be wrong? She phoned again and persisted. After some time, her mother picked up the receiver. What do you want? S is not here, evidently because of age and illness. She didn't even recognize her daughter's own voice. Mama, it's me. Do you hear me? Yes, I hear you. Are you alone? Yes, I'm alone. Where is Poppy? Did she leave now? Yes, she left. I'm by myself now. One can easily understand our surprise, our wonder, our emotion. As soon as we returned to the hospital and entered the elder's room, we found him smiling enigmatically and stretching his hand to her. Come on, daughter, go to your mother, he told her gently. His behavior was such that it was obvious that he knew everything, not only that Mrs. S.'s mother was alone, but it is even, even as if he had overheard the telephone conversation. But our reverence for the elder, besides our familiarity with such signs, did not permit us to ask him how he knew all this. We accepted them as signs of grace that had come clearly come to dwell in him, and we glorified God, who has shown mercy to us and deemed us worthy to know a true saint. Two weeks had passed since the elder entered the hospital. One morning when I was alone in his room, the doctor tending to him called me and reported to me that the Cytological analysis showed that the elder was suffering from lung cancer. It seems that the much-afflicted elder had to pass through this trial also before leaving this temporal life and departing for the eternal to Christ, whom he had loved with his whole soul from his childhood. The doctor also said that it would be good to keep him in the hospital for a certain period to undergo therapy. Even though we had suspected that there was something quite bad going on, the report struck all of us like lightning. We then understood that the elder would not long be with us, and this for us, his spiritual children, who had him as guide and support in our every problem, was a very heavy thing. But there was nothing we could do to reverse the matter. We contented ourselves with, contented ourselves with praying that God would extend his life as long as possible. We didn't mention anything to him. We only told him that there was some problem with his lungs, and that the doctors advised that he stay a few more days in the hospital to undergo therapy, 
He himself did not initially reveal anything to us. This seemed curious to us, whereas he could read the hearts of men and even reveal the innermost thoughts, how was it possible that he didn't know that he himself, what he was suffering from? Did he know it and not reveal it? Or did God and his inscrutable judgments not reveal it to him? God only knows. In this manner, another five meritic days passed in the hospital. His pains has intensified. He completely lost his appetite. But he was tormented most of all by an intense difficulty in breathing and an interior fire which he felt was burning his whole being. Yet he did not complain even for a moment. He prayed continuously, praising God, and his attention became even more concentrated. On one of the last nights of his stay in the hospital, he said to the eldress Euphraxia, who stayed with him continually, Nun, I think we shall not return to Egina alive. We tried to encourage him, telling him that it was nothing serious, that he would get well, and so forth. But he did not speak. It seems that he understood everything by now, and was not saying anything to us in order not to grieve us. On the morning of the twentieth day, since his entrance in the hospital, he said to us suddenly and unequivocally, Today we leave for Egina. In vain did we try to convince him to remain hospitalized a little longer to continue his therapy. He was not to be persuaded. Twenty days have I been in the hospital and have seen no good, he answered. What more can I do? At least I'll go to my cell and have some quiet. Seeing his irrevocable decision, we notified the head nurse and the doctors to issue the release, and we began to prepare for the trip to Egina. As the preparations were being made, two spiritual children of the elders came from Egina to visit him. Having spoken with them a little, he suddenly asked them, How was the trip from Egina? Is the weather good? Yes, yet under the weather is quite good. I intended to accompany him to Egina, and for this purpose went to my house at Amp and Pelikipos, where I was living at the time, with Mr. Eutherios K. About 10.30 a.m., and as I was returning to the hospital, a nun of my acquaintance greeted me from afar, saying, Run, because the elder isn't going to Egina. He's coming to your house. I was caught by surprise. I returned to the elder, and he told me, The weather's not good. There's a sea storm. For this reason, we're not leaving for Egina. We'll go to... Lutheris. I was confused. I myself had just heard the two people from Egina affirming the opposite. How is it the elder now says that the weather's changed? But I rejoiced that he was coming to our house, and so I didn't ask him how he knew about the change in the weather. A few hours passed until the proceedings from the elder's exodus from the hospital were finished, and about three in the afternoon we put him in the taxi and headed for Empelokipos. The elder had worsened a lot. He wasn't even able to walk. When we reached home, we were faced with the problem of getting him the taxi into the house. We brought an armchair and put him in it, but now who would carry the chair? Beside myself, there was no other man to help, and the elder, he was relatively heavy. I was forced to stop a passerby and ask him to help us. The man offered readily and suddenly asked, Who is the elder? Does he happen to be Father Eronimos of Egina? Yes, I answered him in astonishment. Do you know him? Popo, can you imagine that? The man cried out. 
I was seeking you in heaven, and I found you here. I am so-and-so, and for some time now I've wanted to come to Egina to meet you, but was not deemed worthy of it by God. Now you were needed, so now you've come, replied the elder. With his help, we were able to carry the elder into the house. Not even an, half an hour passed after we entered the house, before one of his spiritual children from Egina, Peniotis T., telephoned to ask how the elder was faring. We related to him the particulars and the elder's decision to come to our house, and he answered, You did well not to embark for Egina, because the weather has changed and you would have risked your lives at sea. Once again, we marveled at the elder's clairvoyance. There was not an event in his life, or even in the life of others, that he did not foresee. In his every word and action, it was evident that the grace of God dwelt in him and operated wondrously. He was a living vessel of the Holy Spirit. Enclosed in the four walls of the hospital, he knew all that took place outside in the world, even the change in the weather conditions. Chapter 22, Last Struggles The state of his health steadily deteriorated. With the exception of some short intervals when the pain left him a little, the greater part of the 24-hour period, day and night, he suffered greatly. He was especially tormented even here by a fire which he felt burning from within, and a frightful shortness of breath accompanied by coughing. Virtually his only relief was to put his hand in a plate with ice cubes, which he even found rather amusing. But out of his mouth was never heard the least murmuring, not a single complaint. Most of the time we saw him praying with attention and fervor. A few times we heard him loudly calling upon the Lord, the Panagia, and various saints. On the last days we often heard him crying, My mommy, my mommy, once the eldress Euphraxia ventured to ask him, Yerund, are you calling out for your mother? It's our Panagia I am calling out upon, dear nun, our Panagia. Not a few times we saw him in ecstasy and whispering certain words we found incomprehensible, among which we were able to distinguish a few phrases, such as, all around my head they're putting on the crown, or Egina, Egina, you're going to be very sad, but then you'll rejoice again and will compose verses. One week passed in this climate of strain, agony, and perseverance. Night and day, someone stayed beside him either to keep him company or to watch him or to offer some service. But his condition continually worsened. On Monday, October 10th, or September 27th, old style, in the evening, I intended to go down to Piraeus to pick up some of the elder's clothes, which S., whom we have mentioned above, had taken to wash. A little before I left, the elder called me and said, Hey, tell S. to come today without fail so that I can see her. Both of you come together. I didn't understand it all, but I transmitted the elder's message to S as soon as I saw her in the port of Piraeus, where we had agreed to meet. She herself also asked what it meant, and we departed together for the house. As soon as we entered, we found the elder very moved. He called us all, the elder, Elgis Euphraxia, Stiliani, Euthurios, Helen, John, and me, and said to us with tears, I see myself that I am not well. Until Sunday, if God wills, I will remain in this life. For this reason I called you, to give you my last counsels. 
Stilani, I implore you kindly to have the nun as your mother and your sister. Go to Egina and live together as sisters, but know that she is older. The elder said other things also. He counseled all the others and then fell silent. We on our part were not able to restrain ourselves, and being moved, we wept, some quietly and others out loud. It was the first time that the elder revealed to us his innermost thoughts and specified the exact time his end would come. The atmosphere weighed down heavily because we then began to realize much more clearly that the hour was at hand when we would lose forever that heavenly man who was for all of us a tender loving father, a dear friend, and a sanctified spiritual father. We could no longer do anything to keep him in this life. Everything indicated that the Yeranda was hurrying with joyful step to depart, to go to the true life, to the Lord, whom he had loved with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength from his childhood. He had struggled hard his whole life long with consistency and full awareness for this moment. And now, when he felt or was informed that this moment had arrived, he wanted to be prepared in all things. Beside his spiritual preparations, he felt, as it would seem, the necessity not to leave anything unresolved behind him. He had arranged everything pertaining to the transfer of the Hermitage and the Church of the Holy Unmercenaries, which were in his name. Now he wished to attend both to the succession of his Hermitage and to providing for the eldress Euphraxia, who had remained his faithful disciple for 47 years. Many souls during the latter years had expressed their fervent desire to remain and become monastics close to him, but the elder remained reserved and cautious and would not express himself. On this day he chose to settle this matter also, choosing for this ministry her who later became a nun, being named Euphraxia also, and who today continues his tradition in his hermitage. On the morrow his condition gave perceptible signs of having worsened. He ate very little all day and spoke even less. In the evening, in order to please him, we played some tapes on the recorder so that he could hear some rare performances of Byzantine chant. Despite his weakened state, he listened attentively and with evident emotion. When the tapes finished, he said to us, What beautiful things! They remind me of Constantinople, of the Patriarchate. How beautifully they chanted! In my days, the precentor of the great church of Christ was Iacovos Napiliotis. What a voice that was! But how much piety and devoteness he also had! Whenever he chanted, he wept. Where can you find such chanters today? My soul within me skips for joy and longing. As long as that, the tape recorder, chanted, I was saying within me, let it stop and I'll start to chant. But the flesh is weak. He even tried to chant a little. He said, the impassable and boisterous sea. Footnote, the first ode, Hermos, and second tone used in the Triodian canon of Holy Monday and the prefestal canons for the Holy Nativity and Theophany to continue. But his voice failed him. It could just barely be heard. Late that evening, he was visited by an archimandrite of his acquaintance. He also had seen him in the hospital two or three times where he had gone to give him Holy Communion. You will become a bishop one day, the elder said to him. I, 
become a bishop elder, I neither want it nor will they ordain me. You might not want it, but someone who wants it will ordain you. Some years after the elders reposed, this archimandrite became a bishop. Three days more passed, during which his condition was for the most part the same. He was totally without appetite. The only thing he had was a little milk and a few spoonfuls of soup. He also stopped speaking. He said only what was strictly necessary, but his attention was ever sharp. He prayed continuously and made the sign of the cross quite often, saying, Glory be to thee, O God, or Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Evidently, he was preparing for his end and prayed unceasingly. He wished his mind to be united to God at every moment. He spoke to us rarely to give us his last counsels and admonitions or to thank us. I am a sinful man. I have not done any good to any one. Yet even so, there were found people to serve me in my illness. May the Lord repay you bountifully both in this life and in the one to come. From Friday morning on, his condition showed signs of worsening. He almost totally stopped taking food, and he limited his speech even more. His movements also began to be made with greater difficulty. Seeing this condition, in the evening we all conferred with the elders and decided to inform his closest relatives and his most beloved spiritual children to come by and receive his blessing for the last time. Thus, late that night, we informed a few people. From the morning of the next day on, it was Saturday. The house began to overflow with relatives and acquaintances who came to bid the elder farewell. We were astonished that although only a few in that late at night had been informed, yet early the next day, they were coming to see him in groups. The report had obviously traveled like lightning. One could discern pain and sorrow depicted on the faces of all like a group of companions losing someone exceedingly close to them. You might even think you were seeing people passing in procession before the Epitaphios on Holy and Great Friday. All were weeping and sorrowing, and all were relating how they had met the elder, how beneficially he had influenced their life, and the divine gifts, both of prophecy and of healing, that adorned him. In the conscious, consciousness of all, he was a real saint, and now all these people, his little flock, were mourning that they were losing this angel-imitating Hezekist, in whose cell they had laid aside all the burdens of their soul, and in whose person they had found consolation and deliverance. One related the decision and singular solution that the elder gave to some terrible impasse he had been in. Another, the surgery he had avoided by his blessing alone. A third, the domestic tragedy from which he was delivered, by having recourse to his counsel. Everyone had some impressively astonishing event to relate and did not want to part from him. But the hours were passing and the time was growing shorter that separated him from his departure to the heavenly tabernacles. On the evening of the same day, we asked him if he wished to have Holy Communion, and he said he did. We called Father Nephon, an Archimandrite well known and loved by him, and he performed the unction service. The elder followed the whole unction service sitting, and afterwards he communicated. When all those present left, the elder lay down and did not speak any more. He passed a relatively peaceful night, during which he was evidently praying continually because his lips often moved, and with his hand he made the sign of the cross. 
On the morning of the next day, Sunday, the number of those who came to bid him farewell and receive his blessing increased continually. An impenetrable press of people filled the house, and the more they saw that the elder was living out his last hours, the more their pain increased, and they all dissolved in tears, some even with loud crying and sobs. The pilgrims came and went, and the narrations concerning the elder followed one upon another. A person could compose whole volumes if he gathered them all. Through it all, the elder remained speechless, devoted to prayers, and awaiting the bridegroom, whom he had worshipped his whole life long. Around twelve noon, he was visited by a certain hierarch, who read him a prayer of absolution. Afterwards, he asked him, how are you, Father Eronimos? The elder was no longer able to speak, but he was possessed of all his senses. He shook his hand from right to left of his saying, so-so, and then was peaceful. But he continued here and there to make the sign of the cross, and his lips trembled. It was evident that he was praying. We who were near him observed the last moments of a saint, as well as his undiminished combativeness. His whole life was an unceasing prayer and an offering unto his brethren, and he did not abandon prayer until his last breath. He lived with prayer and ended with prayer. A little before he gave up his last breath, his face acquired a certain unworldly tranquility and brightness reminiscent of the transfiguration or resurrection. It was evidently the gladness of salvation the foretaste that God-loving souls experience in these critical hours when they are found between corruption and incorruption, between temporal and true life, when they behold their expectations and struggles vindicated. In this state we beheld him make the sign of the cross many times. After that, a smile formed on his lips, and he said, Glory to thee, O God. He seemed to give a kiss, and he closed his eyes. The time was exactly 12.33 in the afternoon, Sunday, October 3rd, October 16th, New Style, the Feast of St. Dionysius the Areopagite, 1966. Chapter 23, Departure The moments that followed were heart-rendering. It was distressing yet deeply moving to see adults crying like little children, and publicly declaring that the elder had been quick to rescue them from desperation and despair, that he had saved their life, and the like. Two priests revealed that as long that as long ago as spring, he had already notified them that he would need them in October. Another said that the first time that he saw him, the elder revealed to him that when he had gone to Jerusalem, he had committed a great sin, and that he needed to go back again and correct it. It was something that not even he had been conscious of. And the narrations came and went. Each one had something wondrous to relate of the elder. In the meanwhile, two priests, Nifan and Eurasimus, with the help of two young men, did all that is proper for the dead, the washing and preparation of the body and so forth. By five in the afternoon, the coffin which conveyed him set off with a multitude of people for Egina, where the elder, having a continual remembrance of death, had already prepared the grave where they would place his body. As soon as the boat drew near to the pier of Egina Harbor, we beheld to our surprise 
a large multitude waiting to receive the Holy Spiritual Father, the guardian and benefactor of the island. Various people of every age and class awaited him with tears in their eyes and accompanied him on foot to his hermitage. There the body was placed in the little church of the Annunciation of the Theotokos for the veneration of the faithful. All night long, and especially from the morning of the following day, thousands of people, both from Egina and from elsewhere, began to come by to venerate the body. There came nuns from St. Nectarios, St. Minas, St. Catherine, and other convents and holy monasteries of Egina and Attica. Bishops, priests, monks also stopped in. Especially moving was the weeping and lamentation of many orphans and widows who had lost their provider. It was the first time that we ascertained with our own eyes how many had been given relief by that, quote, little bag of love which he always bore on his shoulder. As long as he lived, it is evident that he had, pro he had prohibited those who were benefited to mention anything about this activity of his. But now they felt released from this prohibition, and they began to relate with tears in their eyes the manifold benefactions they had received from his holy hands. Nor was it only the widows and orphans who acknowledged his work and wept. All the local authorities, with the mayor of Egina at the head, came and venerated the body and attended the funeral. The entire board of directors of the hospital of Egina, which also published a proclamation that, among other things, mentioned that, quote, it proclaims him as a great benefactor of the institution, because he offered the highest services for the duration of the construction of the chapel of the institution, end quote, attended and resolved, quote, to be present as a body at his funeral, to display his photograph in a conspicuous place in the hospital, and so forth. At about 3.30 p.m., after a great multitude had flooded not only the church and courtyard, but also the whole area around the hermitage, the funeral service began. During the service, eulogies were given by the officiating bishop who emphasized the holiness of his life, the mayor who proclaimed the gratitude of the entire island of Egina toward the great deceased, a representative of the hospital who expressed the grief of the entire board of trustees, and its gratitude to the great benefactor, and Panayotis Togias on behalf of his spiritual children, who stretched out with broad strokes his personality and the void left by his demise that no one would ever be able to fill. At about 5.30 p.m., after the whole multitude present had given the last kiss, the sacred body of Father Eronimos was lowered into the grave, which he himself many years ago had prepared on the south side of the church. This was the last act which sealed a whole life of struggles and sacrifices, prayer and vigilance of a man who passed through this world but lived in it only to benefit and profit others. As for everything else, his mind was continually found outside this world, in heaven, given over entirely to God, and now his soul flew to his desired fatherland, leaving behind on the seashore, as the poet said, the Moving Graves. Epilogue Twenty-five years have passed since Father Eronimus reposed, twenty-five years that have proved insufficient not only to erase him from our memory, but even to diminish in the least the perception of his presence in our midst. Quite the contrary. The more time passes and the more we are impoverished spiritually, this perception and our nostalgia for him continuously grows more intense, 
His admonitions and his teachings, moreover, have such a timeliness that we continually see events coming to pass at a totally unsuspected time that he himself had foreseen. Very many who either met him personally or heard or read of him and his wondrous and holy life wonder if and when he will be recognized as a saint by the church, all the more because those who call upon him, he supernaturally appears and performs many and wondrous miracles. It is not our intention to circumvent the Holy Church or to hasten to a proclamation of his sanctity, which is the work of God. If God wishes to console us with the appearance and presence of a new saint in these evil and dark days of ours, he knows the time and the way he will do it. This is also the reason that, in the present edition at least, we avoid giving an account of the very many miracles he has performed to known and unknown persons who call upon him. Miracles, mainly healings of serious illnesses, which might presage the existence of a second wonder-working saint on Egina. For the present, I will limit myself to only one observation. On one of my recent trips to Egina, I had the opportunity to meet and speak with people who either were bound spiritually to the elder or were ordinary secular people whose relations with the church range from non-existent to bare formalities. And the testimony of the first perhaps does not concern the matter at hand, because one could argue that it is influenced by subjectivity on account of their acquaintance with and reverence for the elder. But the opinion of the second is of very great interest. Those who came to know Father Hieronymus without any kind of personal bias toward him, the opinion we mean of the common fishermen, the merchants and small vendors, of the shop owners and the workers, all that anonymously the multitude which had known him. I was impressed by the fact that all were talking about him with great wonderment and particular reverence, and nearly the identical expression which, like some conclusion issued from the lips of all, was that Father Hieronymus was a saint. All of them narrate marvelous things about his clairvoyance and his great love for the poor. Without my even seeking it from them, they all spontaneously made haste to inform me of others also who knew him and had something to add to the information which I had sought about him. The universal recognition of his sanctity by people who could under no circumstances be accused of subjectivity or emotionalism is surely a piece of evidence that cannot escape notice. This consciousness, acceptance, and admission of sanctity by the people, along with the miraculous interventions, are the main criteria for the recognition and proclamation of saints. It is a known fact that the Church permits a considerable period of time to pass after the repose of a saint before proceeding to the recognition of his sanctity. This is so that even the last survivors may die out, who could possibly have been displeased by some human imperfections or even personal misunderstandings with him. This precaution we can maintain with certainty has no validity in the case of Father Hieronymus, since no one at any time was heard to express the least complaint against him or to doubt the all-encompassing holiness of his life. Even the proclamation of the Master that, quote, a man's foes shall be they of his own household, Matthew 10.36, and a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house, Mark 6.4, is not applicable to the person of Father Hieronymus, for with his angelic life, his love, and his discreetness, 
he succeeded in never offending anyone, but rather in impressing himself upon the consciousness of all as a veritable saint. Footnote. In his introduction to a book of hymns composed by Harlambos B., in honor of Elder Eronimos, printed in Greek by friends of the Elder Eronimos, the author Peter of this book, Peter Bostis, states that, quote, at the time of the uncovering of his bones, they were found to be free of any stain whatsoever, like amber, and they gave off delicate fragrance. Appendix Euphraxia Galanopoulos, none of the Hermitage, Annunciation of the Theotokos, and Egina. It is not easy for me to speak about the Elder. Even from the few things written in the book about him, anyone can comprehend who and what kind of man he was. Without my knowing it or seeking it, God permitted it. The circumstances came about in such a way that through my brother, Arsenios, monk, I was found at the feet of the elder and was deemed worthy to minister to him till the end. From that time on, I understand that this was a holy elder. But even as it was with the Lord's disciples on the road to Emmaus, so with me also my eyes were holden, so that I did not perceive precisely who he was in all reality. Had I known it, I fear that I would have not been able to serve him. There are so many things that even if I could relate them about the elder in a very simple account, another book would need to be written. For this reason, I shall limit myself to a very few. His whole concern was how to please God. All his love was directed to our Christ and his teaching. The tears of his joy-making sorrow were unending. As for his loving kindness toward the afflicted and helpless, it was more than fatherly. He was inexhaustible in his counsels to everyone, which he provided in proportion to the thirst, the faith, and the receptiveness of those who came to him. His chief aim was that the faithful come to know and love our Christ. He often said, To please both God and the world is not possible. As much as you can avoid the things of the world, which are in opposition to the spirit of our Christ. It is difficult to please God, but not unachievable. God has given the key into the hands of man, the key of freedom and good volition. Only the key of perdition does he hold, because he does not want man to be sent to hell. But the key of paradise he has given into the hands of man. He never spoke to us about his gift of foresight and clairvoyance, but very many times he would foretell everything to us exactly. Once I asked him, But how do you know these things? Yet Thus it came to me, was all he said. He would not explain further, nor did he leave any room for further superfluous questions. He would not permit anyone to praise him. Praise, he would say, is not permissible. Virtue, of course, is laudable. It is praiseworthy, but not in the person's presence. For what sin did the angels commit so that they were punished? They were angels, but they fell into pride. Do not praise anyone, he would say, because in one moment a man can be damned, as also in one moment he can be saved. But neither surrender anyone to despair, because till the end there is hope. Concerning his food, since I was asked, he was indifferent and very frugal. A little macaroni, stewed potatoes, coarse ground wheat and bulgur, octopus or fish, 
was what we prepared for him and what he usually ate. Never meat. It was always very little, and when we implored him to eat a little more, he would say, Eh, we're going to eat again tomorrow. It doesn't matter. Prayer was everything, his all. This was his food and his joy. The church and the participation in the holy mysteries was his strength and his renewal, his rejuvenation. The exact keeping of the evangelical commandments and ecclesiastical canons was his vigilant endeavor as regards the Orthodox Church calendar, which from the year of 1940 he followed unwaveringly and remained faithful to it to the end. Often, especially after an awesome vision he had seen, he exhorted the faithful to follow it. But he did this in a fatherly way, without obstinacy and fanaticism. He was wont to say, quote, The Church of Greece, by the change of the festal calendar, has become diseased, and the change became the beginning and cause of many evils. Many bad things will come to our church through this door, that is the change of the festal calendar, which has been opened. Things which we already see, which in the name of love and economia, are already being brought to pass. May God take pity on us. He lived the last days of his earthly life with con continuous unceasing prayer. Three days before his repose, he communicated the Immaculate Mysteries, and also on that very day, October 3rd, it being a Sunday, he partook again with the rejoicing of one that is ready in all things, having first made the sign of the cross many times, and rising up a little, he gave a kiss to a holy icon that was invisible to us, and with a strong voice, that of a heavenly man, he said, Glory be to thee, O God, and forthwith he bowed his head, and gave up his spirit. Three days before his repose, he called us, the few persons nearest to him who served him, and filling us all with great compunction, he gave us his last instructions and commandments. And to me, unworthy as I am, he showed his tender kindness, entrusting the care and protection of me to a known and tired, tried sister of ours, but simultaneously having it in mind to prepare for the continuation and succession of our sacred hermitage, he said, You will live together. Everything will be done with understanding and agreement. All that we know and follow will be observed, and you will be obedient to the nun. As for me, do not forget to do all that is due me, that is, liturgies, memorial services, mercy meals, alms, and the rest. Afterwards, Turning to me, he said three times, perhaps to lessen the pain of being deprived of him, None, love God. None, come to love God. None, come to love God. Do not leave your cell, no matter what happens. He told me other things besides which I continuously have in my mind, but which I am not able now to write. I abide according to his command, but then... I would not be able to do otherwise in the hermitage, in my cell at Egina, and I try unworthily to live as when he lived, to observe my monastic rules and order, the Tipikon, and to derive strength from our Christ and our Panagia, from the saints, but also from the extremely alive presence of the elder, who already unto many, as also to me the unworthy, shows a miraculous audience and succour. By two or three, as they related to me, he was seen openly, as if he had never left. 
May we be deemed worthy, as many as lived with him and knew him, to please him with our life and our works. Signed, through the prayers of all my brethren, the unworthy Euphraxia Nun Egina, January 1986.